Hi, this is Dale Lear, designer of TRS-80 Color Baseball, and you're listening to Coco Talk. Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. It's time to drop your socks, grab your real time clocks, and let's rock. Coco Talk is rocking the 8 bit world, keeping the Tandy flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coco Talk is rocking the 8 bit world. Welcome to Coca Talk, episode 277. Today's episode, we have an interview with Dave Dyes of Dicom Product and special guest Dave Dahlgren. Coca Talk is rocking the 8 bit world, keeping the tiny flame alive. We may be mocked, but we'll never stop, because Coca Talk is rocking the 8 bit world. <laughs> and on a footnote that would be glenn dogren <laughs> <laughs> just a couple of days here oh and i even practiced that this morning oh how's everybody doing today good good it's doing great, sir. And how are you? Oh, apparently still tongue-tied again. <laughs> so who wants to do the panel introductions? Because I'm definitely going to butcher that today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can say our names. Hey, I didn't practice either. Somebody has to direct us, though. Because we all know our names pretty well. Yeah, but we're like cats. Somebody's got to hurt us. Uh, hurt us? What's okay. my name again? Well, let's start off in the upper left-hand corner. Uh, let's see the, the name I've. I'm just all I can do is read the names off of uh, Zoom here. Uh, Patrick Euland, how you doing? Yeah, hi, folks. I'm Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and next, next over, we got Dave Delvo. Dave Delvo, how you doing? <laughs> Everybody's Pretty gonna be Dave today. <laughs> and yours truly, Dave B. <laughs> And Dave Leedy. Hey, how's it going, everybody? <laughs> All right, who's on the next row? It's me, and I'm actually Mark David, so I'm Mark Dave. Okay, oh. sounds good. And then we have uh, some guy called Mr. iPhone. Yeah, Tim Tim Linder. <laughs> Tim quote Dave quote Linder. Um, hi, everybody. Good to be here. Kimbo. All right. And D. Curtis Boyle. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Not to be confused with D. Bruce Moore. And we have Glenn. Glenn Dave, <laughs> Dave Dahlgren. That's right. Glenn Dave Grin. That's what we're calling today. Yeah. Okay. And bottom row. Let's see. I usually do character turn line feed. Um, Ken Waters, how you doing? I'm doing good. Oh, right. Canadian Retro Dave. Canadian Retro Dave. Okay. 
And bottom row center, we have our special guest, Dave Dyes. The real Dave. I am the real Dave. (laughs) And last but not least, the other Dave. Dave. Why, hello everyone, and welcome to an interesting interview again this weekend. I hope you're ready for it. Are you? I am. Let's move it. (laughs) So you like that Doctor Who character, Other Dave? Maybe. (laughs) Or the Kids in the Hall song, These Are the Daves I Know. Personally, I prefer the Tom Baker days with Sarah Jane. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Curtis, I think it's your turn now. Okay, well, before we get into the interview with Dave, and uh, Dave, I don't know how much time do you have to hang around with us. So. Uh, I've got enough time. Okay. Uh, but uh, Glenn actually came on both to help interview you because you guys have crossed paths numerous times in the gaming industry in the past, from the Coco days onwards. And uh, he's got a few announcements he wanted to throw in just before we get started the interview itself. So take it away, Glenn. Yeah. So thank you very much. Um, as people who've been uh, coming to the show for a while, you may have you know getting sick of me because I've come on for this is my third week. Um, talking to everybody, and uh, and the reason, one of the reasons I've been doing that is because I just launched a book, and that's a House of Prophecy. I actually have a copy of it here. That is the third in my series, um, and just a few things. Um, so the um, the prizes that people have won on that big wheel that we spun last week. I just want to let everybody know I'm I'm on top of it. However. Um, if I haven't sent it to you, then it's because you probably have something else coming, like a book or something else. I'm waiting for all those books to come in. I'm going to ship everything out at the same time. So don't worry. You'll, it's getting there. Also, anyone who's interested in the audiobook, um, it did not come out on, on ship date, but I'm working on it. I'm about 24 chapters into it. Um, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to come out in about two weeks. Um, so you're still locked in the closets, what you're saying? No, no, I'm out of the closet. <laughs> um, it's all editing. I mean, recording is one thing. It's a huge burst of activity. And then it's all editing and a lot, a lot of editing. Um, also, because uh, um, House of Prophecy launched, I did this launch sale, um, which was the um, House of Prophecy for 99 cents, the ebook, and the other two for $2.99. That ends today. If anybody wants to pick up those books, now is the time to do it. You can get all of them for like seven bucks, which is unheard of. And it will go away tomorrow. So get it today if you can. And the last, but definitely not least, Game of War just won the um, the gold medal for Reader's Favorite, um, YA, fan, YA Epic Fantasy. This is the same award that um, Child of Chaos won. And it's it's kind of a huge deal. I'm still kind of reeling about it. So now I get to put the, the sticker on Game of War. Um, and I'm actually thinking about going to the awards ceremony in Miami in November because I have two awards to collect now and they haven't done it for the last three years. Um, so now because COVID isn't a thing, evidently, um, they're going to invite everyone to a hotspot and, uh, <laughs> and give out, give out awards. So that's, that's, uh, those are the things I, I just wanted to mention, but, uh, but it, for me, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. So thanks very much for chance to, to share that. Oh, huge congratulations on two awards there. That, that's that's right. amazing. Especially for a first-time author for the last three years. And second and third, yeah. By the way, Glenn, you have at least one fan here. He says he's not sick of seeing and hearing you yet. <laughs> well, I'll keep coming back for that guy. <laughs> I'm surprised he's not on the panel today. 
Okay, well, thanks, Glenn. Um, so I think we'll get straight in the interview because I, I imagine this is going to be a long one because uh, Dave's done a heck of a lot over the years. And so I'll start with the standard, you know, questions we normally ask. Um, and I guess the first question for you, Dave, is uh, what was the first computer you ever used, whether it was in school or at a friend's house or, or whatever? Uh, so in school, I would have used a, uh, a PET computer, a Commodore PET. Um, I think before that, I had used a, uh, a TRS-80 Model 1 or a Model 3. Uh, I had uh, played a few games on that uh, uh, before I got into actually doing any programming on the uh, the pet computers at my high school. Okay. And then what was the first computer you ever owned yourself? The first one I owned was a, uh, a color computer, the uh, the original color computer, the big gray beast. <laughs> 4K? <laughs> Uh, I had 16, uh, but when I uh, eventually met Roland Knight, uh, we uh, piggybacked uh, an extra 16K of RAM on that. So I had a big whopping uh, 32K of RAM for a while. Uh, so that was uh, a nice upgrade back in the day. So you, did, you must have had one of the earlier, like a Rev D board like I did, because I did the same stacked 16Ks there. And then you find out your video RAM didn't work past the first 16K. <laughs> uh, it, de- it depended on which RAM you put on it. If you put on slow RAM, then the second 16K wouldn't support uh, video. But if you had the faster RAM, it would. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. That's the the advantage to knowing a really smart person who knows uh, uh, <laughs> electronics way more than than, than I do. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll actually get you. Had, you had a quite a cluster of uh, pretty good programming friends all within a 30-minute drive of your house, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so I guess uh, what you, you said you started your programming originally on the PET, which is actually the same thing I started on. Um, what 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 kind of got you into the programming side? Was it just the computer itself, or did you see video games and you wanted to try to emulate those, or or yeah, like natural act? Yeah, like I was uh, a big gamer before that. Uh, I loved uh, the arcade games, uh, Pac Man, Asteroids. You know, pretty much anything I could find at uh, at the local arcade. And once I had access to a computer, um, it, I it all I wanted to do was was create my own games, figure out how to write them, and uh, initially started writing in in BASIC. And sort of at the same time that I was I was working on the PET is when I got my color computer, and and uh, I started playing around and and uh, you know wrote some stuff in BASIC, and then. Uh, happened across uh, Roland, who uh, put me onto uh, assembly language, and uh, that's sort of how I got uh, got my start. And I just happened to have the ability to to take the ideas and, and make them into a game, and or you know uh, you know take something I'd seen and and recreate it in in whatever manner I could on uh, the limited systems that I had. Okay. Yeah, because one of my questions was going to be what what got you into machine language programming versus basic. If if you had some you know hints from people, and so Roland was a, a huge influence in you getting started on that. Yeah, he was he was leaps and bounds ahead of of everybody that that I knew at the time. Uh, he was already uh, building robots and and uh, writing in assembly language and you know new hardware in and out, new coding in and out, um, and you know basic being especially at that time, like insanely slow, it was like, well, this is just not going to cut it. And, you know, uh, he had, you know, you know, programmed in, in assembly. So he was able to sort of give me, um, 
through osmosis some of his his programming knowledge and and i was able to to pick up um you know my level of of assembly language programming from him now was was he uh like older than you and like college educated or was he like a, a natural hobbyist type like thing like you were he sounds like a bit of a renaissance guy who knew the hardware and the software i do know a few people like that i'm definitely not one of them uh yeah he was just born really really smart uh we were uh either the same age or he may have been a year younger than me um but by the time he was you know 12 13 years old he was you know programming and new electronics he was just on on a different level than uh than anybody uh that, that i knew and anybody that we were around so he was just just ahead of the game now was he into the gaming side of, of programming too then like did like i know he ended up helping you on some stuff at dicom and, and you guys co-wrote stuff together but in those earlier days before you started you know publishing through both your own company and then earlier before that, you know, third party had, he tried publishing stuff through other people too, or? Uh, he had not published it. Oh, well, he hadn't published anything, but he had attempted that. Uh, the original Lansford mansion was written by uh, him and Dave Shushan uh, on the, the model one. And they had submitted it to big five software and potentially a couple other places. Uh, they just hadn't gotten any takers. Um, so he was obviously into playing games and, and uh, you know, played a lot of games on his Model 1 and then ultimately Color Computer and PC. Um, and so he, he was much more into games then and, and designing and writing games. Uh, and then he sort of, over time, uh, moved uh, away from that, uh, that part of it. Okay. So would you consider yourself one that was more in tune with the business side of things than he was? Like he, maybe that's one area he was a bit weaker on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, I, I understand sort of all aspects of it. I mean, I'm a pretty good coder, uh, pretty good designer and I understand the business side of things, you know, extremely well. Um, so, and back in, in, in those days you could, kind of do all of those things uh compared to what you can do now and, and glenn can attest to that he was sort of in the same boat as me uh you you wore a lot of hats you did a lot of things and you sort of you know coded artwork you know sound uh, promoted yeah. sound and you ran the company um probably produced the discs packaged the disc shipped the discs <laughs> You did everything back in the day, and and that was sort of my forte that I could do all of those things. And and if you, and that's where I've sort of run into problems with a lot of people over over the years is they never really fully understood the business side of the business. And so if you bring in a, you know, someone submits a game and you give them a royalty, they're like, well, why do I only get this percentage of it? And I go, well, you're not paying for the advertising. You're not producing this stuff. You're not taking any risk outside of, you know, your, your time in, in developing the game. And so, you know, over time, it just ultimately starts creating more and more risks uh, amongst, uh, you know, the company and, and coders. Yeah, because there's like shipping, there's returns and warranties, there's all kinds of things that go into that, that uh, your, your average bedroom coder is not going to be concerned with whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, you you like you, people don't understand, you had a three-month lead time on running ads, and you had to pay for those in advance, and as we'll 
Glenn can attest, the average dev cycle was probably two or three months on a game. So you didn't want to wait till the game was done. So you'd mock up some screenshots and maybe have some of the coding done, you know, run the ad for it, you know, work, work, work. And then the ad comes out in the magazine and the game has got to be ready and you try to coordinate all that. And there, there's a whole cost involved in that. And, you know, if you're just running, you know, a half page or a full page ad, like there's, there's costs associated with that, that, you know, you've got to have upfront before you've even made one sale. Yeah. Now I do know some of the, the Cocoa developers, a lot of them came through publishing through magazines, first like basic listings, et cetera, through Rainbow or Hot Cocoa, Color Computer News or the various Color Computer magazines we had. Did you do any of that or attempt to do any of that? Or did you go straight into submitting games to companies to actually sell before you, even before you started Dicom? Uh, yeah, so I had, because I had gotten into assembly language pretty early on, I, I was developing games that were a bit more uh, commercially ready. Um, and so I had uh, obviously submitted stuff to to Tom Mix Software, um, and they ended up selling a couple of my games. Um, I had a couple other games that went through uh, another company. Seguro? I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but I have no idea how to pronounce it either. But yes, <laughs> I, I, I did run into them at one of the, the color computer shows and they showed some interest. And, and one of the reasons that I, I did uh, try a couple games to them at the time was uh, the sales that I had through Tom Mix slash Novasoft were non-existent. Uh, we sold like a few dozen games or something, maybe. Um, and so, and because they had put it into a second company. Uh, yeah, the budget know, company, Novasoft. Yeah. yeah and so they, it just wasn't as well known. And, and arguably the games weren't the same as some of the stuff I did later, which was based off of much more well-known arcade games. So because of that, the sales were lower. I, I tried a second company that um, basically had the same results. And, and that was sort of at the point where uh, I was, I decided that it seemed to make more sense to do this on my own um, and, uh, you know, run my own ads and collect the majority of the money and, and sort of be in control of what was going on. And Glenn, I think that paralleled you because you published through Mark Data and Prickly Pear and others too before you started Sundog. Yeah, I think I had a better experience um, working for other companies. Prickly Pear was kind of, you know, I was their flag, <clears throat> I was their flagship product for a while, and so I, I saw some sales from them. I just <clears throat> my my experience outside of Prickly Pear, so uh, Mark <clears throat> Mark Data, Saguaro, yeah, I kind of got I kind of got burned a little bit through them and decided taking it, but I kind of wanted to do it on my own anyway. You know, I, I just wanted to have the fun of running my own company, too. So the, the success I had with Prickly Pear led me to believe that I might be successful on my end, too. And, and Dave, did you have that as well, the same feeling that you just, that it would be more fun for you as well as the, the practicality of selling more copies, et cetera? Uh, I don't know about more fun. Um, <laughs> just just my, I mean, I, 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 I had talked to another company before um, I had gone to Tom Mix, and looking back, I was probably really, really arrogant back then when I was dealing with this other local company that ended up publishing a couple of of Roland uh, and and Dave's games. Um, and 
there was no real rhyme or reason other than I thought I could make more money myself. It wasn't that it would be more fun. Over time, looking back, you know, I, I now understand that I had a, a good sort of concept of, of how to run the business and was able to make, I've always been able to make the hard decisions and not second guess myself. And that's sort of been one of the things that sort of served me well over the years, especially looking back is, you know, you make decisions and, you know, some of them go well, some of them don't. And you learn from the ones that don't go well and you don't let it cripple yourself and not allow you to make the same type of hard decisions again uh, when when they do come up. So you had a good self-confidence, I guess. You, you, you could sell your own product being committed to it and really believing yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and looking back, having control of your own products and being able to market, you know, the ones that you, you thought were going to be good and, and sort of, uh, you know, make them the marquee products in your advertising and stuff like that. Those were all sort of business type decisions that were obviously a lot easier to make if it's you doing it. Arguably, if, if my products had initially been, you know, you know, front and center under Tom Mix's ads, probably would have sold more just because Tom Mix was a, a bigger a big name. name then. Nobody knew that Novasoft was really part of Tom Mix um, in the grander scheme of things. I think they probably promoted it that way, but not in the same way that if, you're, if, if your game was right there next to the king, uh, you know, the, the Donkey Kong clone, then people would have gone, oh, well, this is going to be really good. We'll buy this. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's sort of how it went with a lot of my software, even though, you know, I was doing clones of all the top arcade games, we basically had a standing order from, uh, you know, a bunch of, of, uh, of our customers that said, whenever a new game comes out, just charge my credit card and ship it to me because we want everything you develop. And it didn't matter what it was. We were, you know, we want your stuff because we know your stuff is always good, at least most of the time. <laughs> okay. Now, before we get into DICOM, I, I just want to kind of go through some of the stuff that you came up first. So which, which is the first one that you got published? From what I can tell, looking at Rainbow Ads, it looks like Color Car Action was the first commercial that, product you had. Yeah, that was number one, followed by uh, Gold Runner and then uh, Pump Man and Fighter Pilot uh, through Seguero Software. Okay. And was there any particular reason you picked those games to, to clone at first? Like, were they have personal favorites of your in the arcade or ones that you thought had sales potential? or? Uh, as I've told most people, uh, you know, over the years, uh, I have never started writing a game that I didn't love to play personally, because I was going to spend two months playing that game as I was coding it, like day in, day out, I was going to be playing that. And if I didn't like it when I started then uh, it was going to be really difficult. And I've also said that by the time I was done um, developing any game, I probably never played it again because I had played so much of it. Um, <laughs> so everything that I work on, generally speaking, was something that, that I, I enjoyed playing in the arcade or somewhere else. Um, and uh, it, it, it was just... For me, it, it was always a necessity to enjoy the game uh, before I started developing it, or it was just going to drive me nuts. 
Okay. So I just decided to go through a couple of these old ads here just to kind of show people what we're talking about, especially if people are newer to the cocoa community and you know, just got into retro recently type thing, maybe never had a cocoa in the old days, uh, just to kind of show what what you were publishing at the time and through who and what the ads looked like. So this is a full page ad from Novasoft, the first appearance of Color Car Action from uh, December 1984 Rainbow. And this is um, Novasoft's first ad, if I remember correctly. And basically, the, Novasoft was, and you can see it's a Tomix company in smaller print. Now, Tomix is one of the premier you know, publishers, as you mentioned before, and they usually had like the inside front cover in full color ads for stuff like Trapfall and Donkey King and, and Sailor Man and, and some of the other his P51. So, Novasoft being their bargain thing, kind of like some of the pocket money software stuff we've seen in the UK for the Dragon, um, is basically about 10 bucks cheaper than your average game was at the time. Or maybe a little bit more than that, but cheaper for sure. And uh, I don't know, was that something that uh, Tom Mix told you that they were doing, that they wanted to sell it as a quote-unquote bargain versus a regularly priced game? Or or is that just, like, how did that happen? Uh, no, that was all done without my knowledge. Uh, the first time I picked up a magazine knowing that the game was going to be advertised in it, uh, this is what I saw. I had no idea it was going to happen. Okay, because this is like a black and white ad, unlike the inside front cover ones that they did for the big quote unquote titles. And they also threw it like on page 120 or something like that. So you had to kind of hunt through to find it. At least it was a full page ad, I guess. That was one one positive. And then uh, this is where the Gold Runner came out here. And that was uh, advertised about six months later in the June 1985 one. And this one actually... Tomix did throw a little bit of color into the ad here as a background color, so it, was a, it stood out a bit more. And I was wondering, did that have any effect on sales? Like, Color Car was like a black and white ad when it first came out. Um, did you see any better sales after the, you know, kind of more highlighted ad came out? Or, or did it make any difference at all at that point? Uh, as I recall, it didn't make any difference at all. Okay. And then the alternative company that you did some work through here was... Uh, Saguaro, is that how you pronounce it, Glenn? It sounds like you're familiar with it. Saguaro. Saguaro, okay. Yeah. I'll probably forget that. I'll, I'll probably call it you know, Dave or something. Do you uh, know why they're called Saguaro? No, I don't. Um, it is, it's a cactus, and they were basing themselves off of prickly pear, which is also a cactus. So they pretty much stole their name. <laughs> now, I were they like near each other name. physically as rivals? or? Uh, I think they were inspired by them, and I, but I don't think they liked each other very much, but I, I can't be certain of that. Okay. And as I recall, I don't recall there being a whole lot of love between any of the companies in the day. <laughs> like, I think everybody saw everybody as like the competition more you know, than they did anything you, else. You could, you could be right, but I actually had a relationship with a lot of these people and you know, once you got through that, um, a lot of them were friendlier than maybe you like would expect. And I have a couple of, I mean, obviously you and I got along, um, but like Gimme Soft, you know, he, he and I were best buds for a while too. I was supplying him. He was more of a, of a dealer than he was a developer, but they did have some, some uh, pieces that they developed as well. And so like Prickly Pear, I had an awesome relationship with. And Saguaro, whatever, you know, not, not so much. <laughs> and, and Mark Data, I, I, I didn't get that at all. But I mean, at the end of the day, you and I were also the coders as well as the business owners. Right. So we interacted on a different level. I think you'll find 
in the grander scheme of things, coders tend to talk to each other like coders more so than we do as business, business rivals. Whereas Tom Mix wasn't a coder, he was a business and he saw us as a threat. And I think a lot of the business owners saw us as a threat to their business. Whereas I look at competition as, all right, you guys are going to challenge me to do a better job. And, and we also, and, and I, I talked to Steve Bjork a little bit back in the day sure. and, and, and we got along fine from a standpoint that, you know, we would, you know, talk a little bit about coding and, and developing and stuff like that. The same way you and I did, we never talked about, Oh, like, oh, you're taking sales away from me because you're creating a, this game or, or you're doing this and, oh, that's just bad for my business and, and, and I don't want competition. I've always looked at if there was no competition out there, then the market's probably really bad at the end of the day. And, <laughs> well, that was you know, true too there at the end, but... <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, And actually, so, Steve's company, Game Point, I guess it was, Am I remember that correctly? Oh, oh yeah, his later later one. Like he, he also did SRB software, but that was kind yeah, of his, but that's right. his thing. But the, yeah. the company he was effectively working with exclusively, I think it was Game Point. They did the yeah with Pete Digitizer and all that. So he's yeah, Nick Moretti's who's on the call actually sold his stuff in North America through the same company as well. Uh, yeah, he. I think he had a problem with a lot of people. He viewed everyone as competition, and uh, and so he and I didn't get along too well. I don't. I don't think, as I remember, and actually some of his people came to me and I, I don't know if this was like a problem with his company or sort of a broader issue, but one of the reasons I had people writing software for me is that they got paid and a lot of other companies just didn't pay. I mean, I don't know if they didn't reveal their numbers or if they didn't send the checks or whatever, but you know, when I revealed what my, my royalty was and I paid them every month on the, on the month, they were like amazed. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to get too much into you know details. Obviously, I wasn't directly involved with, but I do know there was some issues, and I think Nick can attest to this too. Um, well, Nick, I think you actually you had a special deal with uh, GamePoint because living in Australia, uh, you know, that made payments and stuff a little bit more difficult. You actually, instead of taking cash payments, you took like uh, hardware so, donations and stuff, didn't you? Yeah, uh, because of the distance, Australia and America it was always hard to transfer money and. Back then, there was no internet or anything. So we just came to uh, the agreement that, you know, he just sent me stuff, presents. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of odd because if you figure the shipping to Australia would be more expensive than trying to send a check. Yeah, I guess so. But, hey, uh, if he sent me money, I would have probably ended up buying that stuff anyway. So... <laughs> What kind nah, of guess. sales data did these old companies provide? That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. Dave? Um, I don't recall. It, it was probably just a very simple uh, form uh, that basically said how many copies of, of X product was sold at X dollars and you got whatever the, the agreed upon royalty was. Um, so it was probably something as simple as that. That was I don't know what Glenn did, but that was basically all I had with with my coders was, you know, uh, just a, a basic accounting of of how many copies we sold, what they sold for, and you know the you know here's the the royalty check that that corresponds to to the money that we took in. Yeah, that, that's exactly that. That was what I um, had a prickly pair, and so that's what I based my company on. And I was just really surprised that other people were kind of, you know, surprised. 
that that's what I was sending my authors. I would tell them exactly what I sold, when I sold it, how much it sold for, and here's your cut. Yeah, I mean, like, and I don't know. I mean, I've been in business long enough to know that there's a lot of companies out there that just do really bad business. Um, like, here, here's just a, a crazy story. So with with Cosmic Infinity, Cosmic Games, as we as our brand was, we ended up getting the rights to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire for mobile uh, back in 2001, 2002, somewhere around that neighborhood. And it was a bizarre deal with that was that Bell was involved at one point and and then ABC was doing some crazy stuff. But we ended up with the rights to that. And we had they were doing really well from us, like the, the royalties they were getting. And at the end of each year, we had to pay them, uh, you know, the, the royalty that was owed to them. And we sent them a really big check. Um, you know, it, it was a six digit check that we sent off to, to ABC. And three months later, we get a call from them going, um, yeah, Dave, could you send us another check? We lost your check. And, and I'm like, all right. So I, I, I go to the bank and, and I, I put a stop payment on the other check and I, I issue another one. And then like the next week I get a call from the, oh yeah, like um, we, we found the check, but we tried to deposit it, but there was a stop on it. It's like, yeah, no shit. Like, <laughs> what do you want? But th- that's companies, right? Like they just, like it was a big check for us, but for them it was like, Oh, I found some money in, in the couch <laughs> and it, it was, it didn't matter to them. So like if, if a six digit check came to me, like I'd be clutching that until I got to the bank for them, it was just like, Oh, let's just throw it in this box over here. And, and maybe someone will get to it eventually. And, and companies are just like that, uh, you know, especially small companies, like, with a lot of these companies, I don't know how much money was coming in. And if their outlay was more than what they were taking in, obviously they were going to prioritize paying for the ads or they weren't going to have ads as, as Glenn can attest, Lonnie wasn't the, the most lovely person to deal with. So <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> if, if you didn't pay him, you, you weren't getting your ads in the magazine. And if you weren't getting your ads, then you weren't getting the sales you were getting. So it was sort of the lesser two evils. It's like, do I pay my coders or do I pay for my ads or do I pay for X, Y, or Z? It, it's just, those are the, the, the pitfalls to, to business that I, I think you come across all the time. Yeah. Unless you become somewhat successful and you actually have uh, you know a, a storage of cash that you've built up, you are, you know, checking like who, who who can I afford to pay this month, and I'll have to skip the other people to the next month or whatever. I go I go through that with mine too. So yeah, totally understand that. Now yeah, I have like, one question before we get onto the DICOM stuff here. <clears throat> so this is a uh, Sohero's uh, final or first ad where they actually had both your games, including Pump Man, with a screenshot, which is kind of cool because the other one was just a kind of a drawn graphic. Now the copyright date on Pump Man says 1984, but this ad actually didn't come out until near the end of 1985 like there's a huge at least a year delay here and i was just wondering do you remember what caused such a delay was it just they had you doing changes or sat on a shelf or, or you submitted it in multiple places and it didn't get accepted for a while or what happened there um yeah it was probably done and and just waiting for me to make decisions i probably you know had 
both of these done. I know Fighter Pilot I had submitted to to Tandy, um, and uh, they they passed on it. Um, and it, they were, they were probably sitting there, and I probably didn't want to to put them to Novasoft because there was just not going to be any money. And I was I think I probably ran into these guys at the first Rainbow Fest I went to and and I, I found out when I went to the Tom Mix booth that they had only brought like five copies of my game to the show to sell. And, <laughs> and that doesn't bode well. <laughs> and so at that point I was like, uh, and, and then, you know, I wasn't doing well from them. So it was kind of like, well, maybe I'll just try some other stuff then. And I think I was probably 17 at the time. And it was just like, I came across these guys, these guys seemed pretty interested. So I figured, Hey, I might as well try someone else because, um, it can't be any worse than than uh, Tom Mix was at the time. So, so they all required exclusive. No, no, there was no exclusivity with anybody at the time. Uh, it was just like really? they're, they're, just one offs. Yeah, I, no I, 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 everyone I worked with, I worked with exclusive. Oh, for the uh, for the videos. game for the game itself or for the for you the game itself probably they were all exclusive yeah 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 that's, yeah, yeah. that's what it's asking yeah yeah the games would have been exclusive there but I I didn't have anything you know exclusive right. with yeah it wasn't like old Hollywood where you had to work for MGM or whatever yeah or, or <laughs> a lot of people if you didn't if they weren't exclusive they had right of first refusal on your products and I, I didn't have anything like that at the time. Um, so I was able to sort of shop stuff around and, and, uh, tried this and, uh, um, it, I don't remember if it went any better than, than the, the other stuff did, but, uh, uh, that's sort of when I started thinking, you know, much more about, uh, uh, doing stuff on my own. Okay. I, I will mention something like we interviewed Chris Latham a couple years back. He's a guy who wrote Donkey King and Sailor Man. And obviously he was, you know, one of the marquee products, or actually both were marquee products for them. And he had a quite a different experience from you. Like I think he I'm trying to remember what he said. I think he sold forty thousand copies of Donkey King. Um, <clears throat> which is best selling Sailor Man, actually, which took him a lot longer to do and is a lot more technically advanced. Wasn't that popular of an arcade game it was based on? So he actually sold like half that on that one but i mean his experience with tomics he was quite happy with but i think you're right you had to be in their premier league getting advertised as opposed to in the novasoft you know bargain basement bin oh, okay I'll, I'll say a couple things on that uh one how big a title you were basing your game on obviously basing on donkey kong is, is huge it, it's a much more well-known game um i'd be curious to know where where glenn falls on this but I never sold anything close to 40,000 copies of anything. Like, uh, Yeah, I, I don't remember, but I would be shocked if uh, if I hit those numbers in, in the color computer world. I think yeah. that might have been the heyday of the color computer game market. Like, I would, I would argue that if Tandy sold 40,000 copies of something, that would have been... Yeah, well, yeah, there's pretty, people pretty more good. than that. <laughs> but, like, the color computer didn't have the biggest distribution of, of the computers at the time. You know, if you compare that to Apple and, and Commodore and, and things like that. Um, like, if we sold 1,000 or 2,000 copies of a game, that was probably really good. 
uh, you know, for, for us in the day. Uh, if they sold 40,000, all the power to them, um, that would have been really nice. I'd have retired much <laughs> earlier if I'd been selling that many copies of my stuff back then. Well, I, th- I think Glenn hit on it. it. Basically, like 82 to 84, I think, was the heyday of the cocoa. And that's when the third-party ones, that's when we had five different magazines devoted to the cocoa itself, uh, briefly during that one summer in 83. And I think that's why the sales really took off. And like you said, Tandy, I mean, the highest sales I've heard of anybody from Tandy, we've talked to like Rick Adams and, and Dale Lear and a few others, and they sold like five, 10, 20,000 of some of their games. Um, I know Steve Bjork's kind of hinted he's had a few up in the uh, six figures. The highest I've heard is super bust out Glenn Soggy at Image Producers. Uh, he went through and kind of looked at it and he sold over a quarter of a million of that cartridge. And that, you know, honestly, that wasn't one of the best games, but it was one of the initial first six releases that Tandy ever put out. So, of course, it was something everybody at the beginning bought because there was nothing else to buy. And, uh, you know, so if you sold through Tandy, you were on a whole different level, I think. So the, the, oh, the 40,000 for Donkey King is is rare in the third-party community. And as you said, Tandy didn't distribute third-party products. They only distributed stuff they kind of did themselves or directly you know, latched into type things. So they didn't carry anything. Like the Apple dealers and the Commodore dealers all sold stuff from every other party you know, that you could. So you had much better distribution for third-party. You guys were basically dependent on magazine ad sales. There wasn't any storefronts, per se, carrying your stuff on the shelf. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally different marketplaces. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, like even my my foray into the Atari Lynx uh, didn't even come close to those numbers. Okay. Um, so basically, around the same time, in fact, I think your first ad for Dicom actually showed up almost the same time as um, the first Pump Mad ad that we're looking at here. So that that one got delayed for quite a while, and, and ironically, it got released the same time you were starting your own <laughs> with Tycom. So I guess uh, what what was it? Just the fact that you were not selling enough um, that really prompted you to do it, and did, how much research did you do into running your own company? Like you said, you got a kind of a natural knack for business. Did you have to go talk with a bunch of other business people to kind of get an idea of what you were doing, or talk to the bank or whatever? Like, how did you get the business started? Uh, so the the decision to start the company was just you know based out of the fact that it, it seemed to make sense to to do it myself um and the way i got it started was i, I didn't talk to people i i didn't uh, really do a lot of number crunching i just saw that companies were successful and and i figured i i, I can try that myself uh when i turned 18 i went to the bank and they had a, a youth venture program that you could get a uh, uh, a loan from to to start a business, and uh, I fortunately they they accepted me, and um, you know from there just used the money to 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 run the first ads, and uh, it just uh, took off from there. Now, since you got the start with the youth venture program, are you are you still using that same bank? Because that's a pretty nice jump they took on your behalf. You don't uh, have to say who it is or anything, but yeah, no, not with that bank anymore. Had uh, had <laughs> some, had some issues with the bank uh, at, at some point. Uh, it's something that uh, that ticked me off. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it, it and it was again. It, 
like a lot of businesses, banks cycle through managers pretty quickly. If if there's a manager, anybody who's successful gets promoted and, and moves to uh, another place. So, you know, the people that I had dealt with early on all ended up leaving. It, it, you know, I started with a $5,000 loan um, and uh, I had fully paid that back by the end of the first year and, you know, was, was doing really well. Uh, and so I never had to, to borrow money uh, for anything after that. So. Okay. Now the first two games, which were showing on the, the first half page ad, you took out the October, 1985 rainbow uh, marble maze would based on marble madness, of course, knockout from punch out. Were these games that like when you went to apply for the bank loan and decided to start your own company, did you already have these games in the bag or is this also where you were kind of, doing mock-up screenshots at the time to to get the ad going, but the game wasn't quite done yet, timeline-wise? Uh, no, the games had not been started. I probably had not even decided what games I was working on. There was... Gaming was non-existent back then um, from a, a banking standpoint. They had no clue, and, and the, the, the manager who ultimately gave me the loan, it was a special... Uh, a joint uh, venture between the the government and and the banks. So the banks were basically, if they loaned the money out, they were guaranteed that the the government was going to pay them back if it was ultimately defaulted on. Um, and so the manager said, "Look, if it's my money, I wouldn't be giving it to you. But hey, uh, your your all your paperwork on paper it looks good, but it's not something that the bank was going to touch. It'd be, it'd be like if you went to the bank now and said, I want to open up a restaurant, they're just going to laugh you out the door uh, because it's just not not a business that that they'll touch. And back then, you know, computer games." Nobody knew what computer games were. If, if they'd even heard of Pac-Man, um, you, you'd be lucky. Um, but to, to think you could actually make money doing this would have been just unheard of. Um, so, you know, even being a programmer, like, wasn't really a, you know, a thing back in the day. Um, you were, you know, basically hippies doing crazy stuff that nobody thought was going to amount to anything, uh, you know, down the road. So, um, you know, I had cash flows that, you know, I did a cash flow and it, it looked really good on paper and we, we scaled it back cause it seemed to look too good, you know, presented all this stuff and, and answered all the, uh, the questions from the, the bank and, and that's how we got started. Were they surprised that you paid it off in a year? Probably. I don't know if they they specifically had any comments on that, but uh, they were definitely happy that it got paid off quickly. Um, I don't think most of the loans got paid off uh, as fast as mine did. And was this a provincial government program or a federal government program or both? You remember? I don't recall. At that, I don't recall. It was so long ago. And I, I don't remember all the details. I just remember being that there was this youth venture loan at uh, at uh, the bank that we had heard about and uh, I, I applied and, and uh, I got it. So Now, now was Dicom Products, uh, I'm assuming like you're obviously the principal, but were you totally alone, like you were the sole proprietorship type thing? Or did you have some other people involved maybe even later on or was it always yours or...? Uh, it was always mine. Uh, it was, uh, you know, everything, all the decisions, everything. Uh, I was responsible for everything. Okay. Because, Glenn, I know you had a, a bit of a partnership with your brother, at least helping at the booth at Rainbow Fest. I remember meeting him a few times. But did, was he involved at, at all with Sundog? No, not really. I mean, occasionally, 
yeah, he came in and he did a little bit of coding on soundtracks. He would, yeah, he's my brother. So he helped me out at the, I don't even know if I paid him anything for helping me out of the booth. I felt really bad after actually. I mean, I figured if he, we were selling his product, he was getting some money, but I really should have paid him. <laughs> but, he, but you paid for his hotel room, right? No. No, you made him pay. Oh, that's just and I think he drove us too, which is even worse. <laughs> now that's, that is cold. I think I'm about to pay for gas. Like, at least when my sisters and my parents and my grandfather came to work at the booth, at least I paid for everything. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to bring up your sister for a second here, because that was actually one of the questions we got from our Discord from a user named Shenley. Uh, and I'll, I'll just read the exact quote, because it's kind of funny how he, he found this out. But he says, I see most of your games also included credits for Lori Dies, who I always assumed was your wife, but recently found out was your sister. And he says, I couldn't work with either my wife or my sister. So what was that like? Uh, it wasn't too bad. Like she did some of the artwork for for some of the covers, and and uh, you know she worked at uh, uh, taking some of the orders and, and managing a lot of the shipping, and then you know did a bit of artwork on a couple games. Um, yeah, it, it was it was fine. It wasn't uh, a big deal. I've I've always had a pretty good relationship with all of my family. They've been, you know, obviously been very you know helpful to me through all of my different businesses, and uh, so it. it it was sort of just fairly common for us to be be helpful. Was she the voice to Welcome to Iron Forest? Yes, she was. Yeah, that was uh, taken and run through our, our digitizer. And, uh, uh, but yeah, she did do the recording. And I see Glenn has a cat behind him. I am I fortunate. I, I closed the door, <laughs> but I didn't. I, I, we've got five cats here. And one of our cats knows how to open the door to my office. So I'm surprised they, and when he comes, he brings them all with him. Um, so, uh, so I'm lucky. Well, cats showing up at random on our show is actually kind of a thing. Cause a lot of the people on the panel have cats and they always just wander in and jump on the desk or whatever. So it's tradition. And, and damn, the, our two most recent cats look just like that one. Oh yeah. <laughs> tuxedo cats. Pardon me. Yeah. Tuxedo cats. Yeah. They were, my my wife rescued a a barn cat uh, late last year, and uh, it turned out to be pregnant. Um, and bonus cats. Uh, a week <laughs> a week later, when she wasn't home, it started popping out little ones, and it was just like, Ugh. Um, and uh, we ended up keeping two and and finding homes for the uh, the mother and two of the uh, the little ones. So, but we we added them to our brood of uh, of Siamese <laughs> cats. So. Um, and just one other last question about your sister, which I actually wanted to ask, um, because she was doing the artwork for, like you said, the game covers, and also like she did some artwork for Medieval Madness, which she actually credited on the credit screen for that one in particular. Um, is is that something that she was doing or is still doing? Like, is artwork her thing, or was that just something she just helped with? Uh, at the time, it was something something she helped with. She is very artistic. She's very much into photography and things like that. Okay, so she's kind of stayed in that realm i guess yes okay now just to go back to your your ad here so we got the two games um at, at this point you you've mentioned before that you were playing games that you really like to play so marvel maze and knockout i'm assuming you really like punch out and marvel madness but at, at this point had you started to figure that you wanted to try to cover games that are more popular in the arcades to see if that boost sales as you were mentioning like some of the other ones you've done earlier were fun ones for you but maybe not the most popular arcade games yeah, I don't know if if I ever made overly conscious decisions to pick more popular games. 
I think I just ended up to some degree falling into picking games or sort of falling in love with games in the arcade that ended up being more popular uh, at various times. Because we, we had varying success with different ones. You know, I, I, I will say that both of these games, you know, did really, really well for us. I wouldn't exactly say Marble Madness was like the most popular arcade game because it was very, very hard. And there's there's been a lot of articles written uh, about it and and the the guy who who created it and his um, sort of fascination with making games that are really, really hard um, <laughs> and uh, always being a bit of a problem with with the publishers that uh, the, the games were a bit too hard for the average person in the arcade. Uh, but, you know, both of them had sort of interesting visual hooks and, and you know, varying degrees of, of popularity in the arcade, and, and that sort of served us well. I'm just yeah. looking at the ad here, and it says that um, the first five people to solve all the levels and identify the message win a free game from Daikon Products. Did somebody win that? Oh, absolutely. All right. Oh, they they won that real fast. Well, I, I think <laughs> I th- I'm pretty sure a couple of them figured out how to get the message out of the game and yeah. not actually solve them. Uh, as yeah. you can attest that, you know, people, <laughs> people like the shortcuts, right? I just got a, um, an email from someone from my, um, my website who was playing white fire fraternity and discovered the message that I put in for people scanning the disc for, for clues and saying, you're pathetic if you're looking through the disc for clues. And he sh- had to share that with me. Oh, <laughs> I, I will. I could tell endless stories about uh, my Cosmic Games days of of games that we've created, especially our our MMO that we created for the mobile space, and the lengths that people will go to uh, exploit a game. Um, it is absolutely insane the lengths they will go to to figure out how to cheat a game. Yep. Yep. And and you've been in this industry long enough to know that people will look for the easiest possible solution to everything, and they will arguably spend more time finding that than actually uh, playing the game. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, like even back in the Coco days, I mean, the cheat pokes to give yourself still like 255 men or something like that or change the start level of the game or, or, or different things like that. I mean, I did one, like Gates of Delirium, which I actually did complete. I did cheat a little bit. I tried not to cheat too much, but it was taking too long over the summer when we're trying to win that Coco 3 you were offering. Yep. So I, I figured out where on the disc it had saved the uh, the location of the character on both of the worlds. <clears throat> and then you know, if I got too many monsters, I didn't feel like dealing with them all. I would just save the game to disc. Disc I string it, change my location somewhere else, past all the monsters, disco it back out and then back into the game type thing. So uh, there you go. Yeah. It's the only way to do it. It's, and I don't know uh, if Glenn has sort of followed games and, and sort of the the philosophy behind gaming now, but we've we've gone into a whole new area with the how games are are created now, and that everything has to be you start it, you play it to the end, and there's there's no roadblocks. You never go backwards. It's it's basically like playable thing that you have to do in one sitting otherwise 
people won't play the games anymore. And companies have adopted this new philosophy that games almost come in God mode format because that's the only way people will, will play through games anymore. That's, that's interesting. I, I have not encountered that. What I've encountered is games as service. Um, companies won't even consider a game unless they think that the, somebody can play that for 10 years or more. Um, and they can continue to get subscription revenue and microtransactions and they want a customer that's going to be around forever. Yeah, that's, there, there's two aspects, right? Like, because, you know, games like Call of Duty, there's a new one every year. Um, and, and they're banking on you buying the next one every year, plus the 50 DLCs that, you know, triple the cost of the game. But there's, I've been reading articles over the last year about this new philosophy, and there's companies out there that basically publicize, if you have any trouble playing a game, here's the God mode cheat code so that you can just play through the game from start to finish. And it's been a long time since I've seen a game that's anything like a Mario or, or anything like that where you you die you you die and you you start the level over it just doesn't exist nowadays even games where you can actually die you basically just pick up from where you died nowadays there's not a whole lot of setback anymore and it it, it, it's i find it really sad because there just doesn't seem to be any challenge you pick up a call of duty you sit down for four hours you you start it and you're you're done the campaign the the multiplayer is is sort of where it's at for for longevity nowadays right um and, and a game like i mean call of duty they're you know their their big thing is they're free to play um uh whatchamacallit warzone uh, yeah warzone and i mean that's where they're making all of their money and you know their their other marquee products are you know they are that's sort of how they attract attention but warzone is everything for them well warzone's new though like that's that's only for like, like is a it? couple Warzone Warzone's only a couple years old. Fortnite is going on it'll be 4 years old this fall. Um and that's the marquee like everybody is trying to catch up to um to Fortnite. Not uh, anymore. Not anymore. Fortnite is not not the uh, the big thing anymore. It no. is I think Warzone is is making more money than Fortnite. No. No, 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 no. Fortnite is printing money. Fortnite is... Is it? Is it still true? Oh, they're God. printing money? It, it's not even close. They're printing oh, money. I, okay, I, yeah, I, I defer to you because I haven't actually seen any numbers, but I oh, mean... Fort, seems- Fortnite made, two years ago, they made $1.2 billion off of Fortnite. Epic made off of Fortnite and nothing else. And that's... Just from in-game purchases. Yeah. Um, nothing, none of the other ones come close. Warzone is pretty big. Um, uh, Apex Legends is pretty big. Um, but uh, nothing in that genre comes close to Fortnite from, from I what thought I Fortnite was passe. I'm, I guess I'm way off. Oh, no. It's, <laughs> it is... I, I could talk endlessly about the brilliance of what they do in that game. Um, mm-hmm. It is... And, and as a company, they're so in touch with the user base, it's scary. But that game is, like, every week there's something new in that game. Every day there's something new to buy in that game. And it's, right. unlike Warzone and Apex Legends, which are first person, because of the third person nature of Fortnite, 
they can sell so much more stuff because the visuals lend itself so much more to selling the skins and sure. and everything that you do in that game. Uh, it, it, it's it's so well done. Um, it, it's it's one of the things that's held my attention as, as long as anything uh, over the last five years. I have to agree with you too on the, the fact that the modern gamers do not have the patience to slog it through an Ultima or a Wizardry like they did in the old days. Um, I mean, Nick Nick uh, Marenti's here when he published a couple of his games recently, like Popstar Pilot and Gunstar for the Coco. You know, they're multi-level games, so they take quite a bit of skill to get to the next level. You have checkpoints and stuff, so you don't have to do the whole level over. But Nick actually found it kind of disappointing on these games because he, he'd done all this time designing these levels and like 80% of the players never see past level two. They just don't have the patience to slog through it and figure it all out type thing. I, I don't want to like this, their game playing skills. I just don't think the modern gamer has that attitude of like, I paid for this product. I'm going to get my money's worth out of this sucker, man. I'm going to play this thing for three months straight, eight hours a day type thing. And I, that does, just doesn't happen. It's more no. of a casual game. You want to just pick it up and get it done. Like you were saying. And Nick actually changed his uh, last release zero zero hour so that uh, he has like a, a set of doors in the beginning where you get to pick which level screen you want to play and you can do them in any random order you want. So you get to see everything. The only one that you have to actually have skill to is the very final level, but you'll be able to see like 90% of the game. And he actually did that design on purpose because of the disappointment that you, he sold these games to other people and they go, yeah, I've never seen past level two. I know there's five of them, but I have no idea what they look like. Yeah, I, I will attest to that with with uh, with my son who's been playing games since he was young. Um, I know whenever he got stuck, I got to play through the tough parts to get him past it. And as soon as I got past that part, then the controller was back in his hands and he was playing. Um, now, to be fair, he's he's a bit older now and and he's starting to to understand you know, having some challenging games and, and starting to appreciate them much more. Um, and uh, it, it's a lot of fun playing anything that we can play co-op um, or even some of the the shooters where we play on the same team and stuff like that. I know uh, my wife plays a lot of games as well. And the three of us uh, put in, you know, numerous hours playing um, Horde mode and Gears of War. Um, and then my son and I played a lot of Borderlands and more recently Wonderlands um, and a uh, variety of shooters and stuff like that. So, um, but I, I've, I see that a lot from when he was younger and in a lot of people that, you know, challenges are just things that nobody wants anymore. And, and it, it really is pretty sad. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of found the opposite just from talking to friends. Like most of the time, once they become adults and you, they've got families and jobs and blah, 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 that they have so much less time to be able to devote for you know recreational entertainment of any sort that uh, they want. Like that's why casual games are so popular in phones is because you want to you. I'm in the lineup at the grocery store for two minutes. So I'm going to play, you know, some random you know gem quest or whatever type of thing. And they don't really have the time or patience. So they kind of lost the drive to do these long exploration style games that were so popular, like, you know, like Mario you're mentioning or Zelda or any of the other stuff from back in the day. And it just seems like the whole industry's kind of changed into that direction with some yeah. of the MMOs you know, being an exception. Yeah. Like, and I think part of it is um, there's a lot of people who say they're gamers that aren't really gamers. Like uh, you, you really have to qualify hardcore gamers and casual gamers 
And there should be a whole lot of space in between, but I don't really think there is. I think there's hardcore gamers and then casual gamers who lump themselves in with gamers. But if you play the Candy Crushes and the games like that and, and a lot of the mobile stuff, they're, they're more time killers than they are anything else compared to what we grew up with and, and at least what I like to play now. And, and you really have to qualify the difference and i will say the one reason i think fortnite has been really successful is because they have made a game that can be played from someone who's five years old all the way up to 70 years old and, and everybody in between because they've made a game that can be played in a hundred different ways it's not there's a hardcore mode, there's an ultra casual mode, and there's 50 modes in between, which means anybody who wants to play the game can play it the way they want to play it. Where almost every other game, there's only one way to play it. If you want to play Warzone, it's hardcore. There's no non-hardcore mode in, in Call of Duty or Warzone or Apex Legends. All of these games are strictly... You play it this way, and it's the only way to play. Fortnite's the only one that really breaks out of that mold and sort of gives you the opportunity to just play entirely differently uh, based on what you want to get out of the game. Okay. Now, get it coming. Being in touch with their, uh, their, their base. They basically know what yeah. people are looking for, and they appeal to it. Yeah, and, and they, they continue to, to grow out and, and allow more and more to be done with with the uh um some of the uh the creative mode stuff they put in there where you can literally build your own game in the game and then invite your friends in to play it um they've they've really built something you know pretty pretty stellar and then they do a whole bunch of of stuff in-house that gives you you know 20 different ways to play on top of the ability to create your own thing as well yeah uh, Alan Murphy in the chat actually kind of talks a little bit along the lines. He goes, old man voice on. Uh, kids these days can't even solve Daggerath, grumble, grumble. Yet kids can memorize every Pokemon and, and solve those entire worlds. So it's, <laughs> yeah, the, the gaming mentality has changed. Pokemon's more of a an interactive multiplayer thing, though, too, in some ways. So I think that has something to do with it because that, that has remained popular. And people will stick with those for much longer periods of time. But the solo games... I, I don't think people have the patience just to sit there and like, you know, locked up in the basement for two months straight, just playing the one game over and over until they solve it. Nope. Nope. They, they definitely don't. And to some degree, the companies are, are smart in some of the things they're doing because when you're spending a hundred plus million dollars developing a triple A title, you really do need it to have some longevity uh, yeah. because if it doesn't have longevity, like it's really hard to make that kind of money back. Yeah. You'll have no ROI at all. <laughs> okay. I will go on to the next batch here. So not too long after the initial release, uh, you update with a couple more games here, paper route or route, depending on where you are and karate. Um, obviously, uh, Paperboy and um, how what the name is it, Karate Champ? Karate Champ. Yeah. Now, uh, one thing that had come up a couple of years ago that some people had noticed, um, and it kind of got re resurrected again recently when they found out we were interviewing you, is that there's some hidden codes still left in Karate about running this over the modem for head to head modem play or over a no modem cable. 
kind of along the lines of we had some checkers and chess and Othello type games that were done that way back in the mid 80s. And P51 is a rather famous one from Tom Mix that, that also did that. Um, but it's not actually enabled properly, but some of the code's still hanging around, some even the text references still hanging around. So I wanted to ask you, like, what happened with that, that it, it got ganked out before the, the game got released? Uh, my lack of technical ability just did not allow me to get it to work properly. Um, so, you know, I had it, you know, working to some degree, but it just never got to the point where it was going to be solid enough and stable enough to to release it with that code. Now, is that something you'd like, you'd mentioned like your, your friend Dave Shuchin and, and Roland Knight and stuff, um, you know, some of them had some pretty strong technical skills and knew the hardware and the software. At this point, were you still running fairly solo so that they would not have been able to help? Or is that something even beyond their experience at this point? Oh, Roland could have done it in sleep. Um, <laughs> Dave probably could have done it. He might have had to have been awake, but he, he probably could have done it too. Um, yeah, we weren't working uh, collectively on products uh, as much at that point. Um, you know, Roland was still, uh, he was probably finishing up high school, uh, getting ready to, uh, or, or first year university. Um, and so, but we were, we were still really good friends. You know, we got together all the time, but we just weren't, you know, doing anything collaboratively at that point. Now, is that something that you would have ever considered maybe going back to like once he did kind of join with you a year or two later on, on some of the games here and kind of like maybe revisiting that? Is that something that ever entered your mind or basically once you're done a game, you're done and you're on to the next project? Yeah, there, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of value in going back. It's not like today where you could offer online updates or anything like that to the people that had it. So to re-release a game, you, you just wouldn't have got the, the revenue and it wouldn't have been worth the time. So it just made more sense to keep uh, putting out new products. Okay. Yeah, because obviously there's upgrade paths nowadays. You know, like you said, like the subscription models and stuff is con like constant upgrades, basically. Like here's a new map, here's some new characters type thing. But that oh, yeah. hadn't really existed back in this this time period. Oh, yeah. Nobody, like, it was way pre-internet. Most people didn't have modems. And you would have basically had to, you know, make a new disc and ship it out to everybody. It just wouldn't have been cost effective at the end of the day. And to release, uh, you know, other than doing a, a full-on sequel, um, then it, it wouldn't have made sense. And, and you know, karate wouldn't have been one of the, the bigger sellers the way, you know, Gauntlet was. And, and marble and knockout so it just didn't really make any sense to revisit it okay um type in patch you put in the magazine wink wink yeah i mean but you, you can't it, it wouldn't have been easy to patch assembly language in in uh in those days like if you recall was it i forget which magazine had the big contest um in and around 84, 85, they had a big gaming contest. They had a whole bunch of big prizes. The oh, one Color that, Computer Magazine. The one that uh, Bugs won. Yeah, yeah, it's Color Computer Magazine. Right? They, they weren't expecting a full-blown assembly language game to win that contest. They were expecting a uh, something written in basic that they could publish in the magazine. They had to include it on the, the subscri subscription cassette that you got because... There's no way you can publish. Yeah, you're not typing that sucker. In. Well, yeah, you, you just can't print 16K of of uh, raw numbers in a magazine and, and expect someone to, to type the game in. So, um, you know, there's there was just no way to do anything like that. And, and you would have 
you know, at the end of the day, you would have had like a full disk of, of, you know, numbers to type in to, to even do an update. Uh, so it just wouldn't have, uh, it wouldn't have worked. I, I will mention too, and that we actually just discovered this uh, with Glenn recently here, but uh, his very first published work was in that same contest. Okay. I was on vacation, so I didn't get to write something for that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? I still wasn't going to beat Bugs, and and I will, you know, to this day, I think Bugs was was one of the best things that was ever written for the color computer. Wow! Yeah, that's a fun one. Uh, it, it, I mean, for you know, for something that you actually knew the guy who wrote it, and and for what I where I was at that time, I, it was it was pretty awesome. It, it, like anything that Roland worked on, um, it, is is pretty stellar. Like his his coding ability is is just beyond anything that I know. Um, and, and I know I told uh, Curtis this, this story a couple weeks back and, and I tell this story to, um, to a lot of people. Um, and, and that is, if you're familiar with the, the so-called legend of, of uh, John Carmack, uh, rumor has it that the big graphics card companies back in the day when when Doom and Quake were coming out, they would look to what Carmack was writing in code to reproduce in the hardware of their next uh, their next graphics cards. I don't know if it's true or not, but it, it it certainly seems that way. I feel that if Roland had stayed in in coding and in gaming, that he would have been on that level of pushing engines forward with his code. Uh, like the last experience I had with Roland was he was he was working on a product for me and he wrote he'd written a, a decent chunk of it, uh, but for for one reason or another he couldn't finish it and we we went back and we were going to try to utilize some of what he did and we looked at the code and I had two Waterloo grads so like MIT grads for the Americans out there and 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 a couple of them, other programmers and myself we looked at his code and we could not for the life of us figure out what the hell it did. <laughs> other than it, other than it was just the stupid fastest code we'd ever seen, but we we didn't know what it did, and, and like that's where he was. Like he was just leaps and bounds beyond everybody. I, I remember one of my we had a computer class together, and and one of my computer teachers went told took me aside once said, you know, he's not as smart as as he thinks he is. It's like, well, hindsight being twenty twenty, no, nah, he's like a thousand times smarter than any of us thought he was like just you know his his knowledge of, of hardware and and coding just surpasses anything that i've seen no offense glenn i was not in, i was in that competition but i, I clearly wasn't gonna win maybe, that one maybe you can send me a some of your code snippets and maybe they will confound me too i i, I don't know <laughs> but I, i've never i've never you know, decompiled any of your stuff to know that if you were, you were that far beyond me too. So I was not, I remember actually you helped me out a couple of times and I was very helpful. I was very thankful for some of the tools that Roland produced. Oh yeah. 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 He did. Uh, he did some great stuff. That was just, again, that was just him being bored and it's like, well, let's write an assembler. That's way better than everything that's out there. It's like, I know. Can you I, do that? I, I can't do that. I can't, I can't do that. I, I believe me. I'm not trying to compete. <laughs> 
Well, I remember, Glenn, uh, there was a blog posting that some of us found that actually, uh, it was one of your college mates, I think, that you guys were trying to figure out some of the IRQ sound graphic routines. Um, I think it was for ChemGuy. And, uh, you know, doing stack blasting and stuff, and you had it, you know, every time the FIRQ came through for the sound routine, we would quickly put a blast of crap on the screen because that's where the stack pointer happened to be for the stack blasting. And you guys <laughs> had to do it in reverse and stuff to figure out that basically it would instantly overwrite itself anyway, so it would work out okay. And that was a one that got a lot of a lot of traction, I think, on Reddit or something like that at the time. So ah. you guys came up with some pretty pretty cool routines too, but yeah. That, that was uh, Tom Mortel. He, he also was a really, really sharp guy. I really enjoyed working with him on our copy protection scheme and and uh, and some other stuff. So it, it's always fun to have friends who are really good at this stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, it sure makes life easier when you don't have to be the creative person to come up with crazy stuff. Now I, I'll ask Glenn this: like I, I don't, I know on my side, I know Roland was the first one to come up with it. The push pull copy, where did you get that from? Because I know Roland came up with that for one of our products projects at one point. Um, and it was something that he he didn't get it from anywhere else. So I don't mm-hmm. know uh, who was the first to to do that. Um, uh, if people, you know, uh, decompiled some of our stuff and started using that, or if someone else had come up with that. Yeah, I did not. I did not get that from anywhere except maybe me and Tom sitting down figuring out, you know, how do we make this like thing faster? Um, start unwrapping, uh, unraveling loops. Um, and I think we started using the push pull at that point. I don't, I'm pretty sure I didn't read that from anywhere, but it's I can so say, long ago. I can say in my case, when, when Bill and I were at Rainbow Fest in Chicago in 86, Steve York's one who told us about that because we'd never mm. heard of it. Now, since going through and decompiling stuff, because I've done some optimizations for 6809 and on various things, including some of, of Dave's, I still haven't done any years yet, Glenn, but I will. Um, but actually, the first instance I've seen in a Coca game was skiing by Robert Kilgus, which is one of the early Radio Shack cartridges. They used just stack blasting to clear the screen white because on the 4K version, you didn't have two pages to flip. So you had to like redraw the screen as quick as you could. So it flickered a bit, but he used stack blasting extensively, un- partly unrolled too, to clear that screen as fast as humanly possible. So it definitely was known at least you know, around 1980, 81 when, when Robert was doing it. But I don't know. The mentality with a lot of the programmers back then was like, that's a trade secret. I'm not telling you. I was quite surprised when Steve told us at the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I found that there were a few people that I connected with, but mostly it was not a community um, back then. It was not, you know, people wanting to share secrets and, you know, make each other better. Um, you know, when I actually got to know Dave, I was really surprised at how open he was. And that was a relationship that I really appreciated. Well, thanks. Yeah. I've, I've always been one to share most of my knowledge um later on is when i stopped being uh as forthcoming and that was uh when i was doing my some of my early mobile stuff with uh, some of the first um, java-based cell phones um we had we were working with some nokia devices and we were trying to do um network code and we had come across this problem where if you made a network connection enough times, the phone would stop making network connections. And we were directly in, in contact with Nokia about this and uh, their, their engineers. And they sent us sample code that proved that there wasn't a problem. The only problem was their sample code made 10 connections 
and then stopped. And then you could push a button to do another 10 connections. And on the sixth connection, it was always 16 network connections. It would stop working. So their, their test program worked the first 10 times. And they go, well, see, it works. It's like, yeah, but push the button and then tell me when it stopped working, which was 16. And it always was. And then implicitly in all their documentation, they said you can't make uh, direct connections, like raw connections to the server. They're, they're just not supported. Um, but being that I'll try anything to, to get around problems, we tried it and it worked. And, and every other mobile company was calling us up going, um, so you seem to have solved this problem, but nobody will tell us how. <laughs> like, and I'm not going to tell you either. And, and I had actually had a run-in with one of these companies you know, a few months earlier where they had some, some knowledge base and, and they were dealing with another company. And that company said, well, we, we're, in, we're under NDA with these guys and they won't let us share any code with anybody and then they come to me and go, well, yeah, could you tell us? It's like, no, you won't share. Why am I going to share? <laughs> so it, it became, I became less inclined to, to share certain things over time just because uh, it becomes very, very one-sided when, when they have knowledge, but uh, uh, they need yours. So. Right, yeah. But generally speaking, uh, you know, as a coder, you know, that's that's how I learned everything was was talking with Roland and and have been fairly open with, uh, you know, talking about uh, things that I've done and, and coding uh, secrets and, and tools and stuff like that. Yeah, it's not like the open source community is now where like everybody's codes out for everybody to, to fiddle with. That, that didn't really exist back then, except for maybe like, you know, shareware or public domain stuff. But those were generally lower quality coding that's why they were being shared nobody cared if somebody copied off them okay so i brought up the next ad here and this is uh adding mission f-16 assault and gamblet now mission f-16 is actually one that i think this is the first one that you sold through dicom that you didn't write yourself uh yeah that was uh kevin Orr. he wrote that one uh he ended up writing two or three things uh that we uh, published. So again, he was another uh, guy who was local to us, probably two or three years younger than than Roland and Dave and myself. Um, but uh, again, he was uh, a good programmer in his own right. Uh, he was, I would argue, probably a better artist than a coder, but still uh, quite a good coder. So, yeah, and that's also uh, that's the first game I think that you guys supported the speech sound pack for some of the sound effects. Now, is that something you pursued? I, I guess Gamlin had some too. He had some speech and stuff then too. But was that something that you guys were really hoping would really take off? That we could get, you know, the Coco doing stuff a bit more competitive with some of the other 8-bit machines having an actual sound card? Yeah, it it, it was something we would we were definitely hoping would would sort of catch on, and it was it would allow us to do a lot more. It, it just it turned out to be not nearly as powerful as it should have been or could have been, and it, it gave us some benefits, but but not a huge amount of benefits at the end of the day. Yeah, did you do I mean, a lot the of, biggest. Oh, go ahead, Tim. Did you do a lot of uh, seeking out of local people who, um, for lack of a better word, groom into into great programmers? Oh yeah, we're definitely grooming people. Um, <laughs> no, no, it, it there just happened to be a a small group of us. So Roland, Dave, and Kevin uh, sort of knew each other before I met Roland. Um, 
And then when I met Roland, when I was probably in grade 10, um, then, you know, it just, uh, you know, we just sort of all started to, to work together at, at various points. And since they were writing games and, and I had the conduit to, to publish, uh, that just sort of became um, the, the route that things went. Yeah, because you'd mentioned on, on our uh, initial call that uh, you had a, like within 30 minutes driving time of your place, you had a whole whackload of these really talented Cocoa programmers. Was Were, were Dave Turgeson and Jeff Noel part of that too? I mean, they published some stuff through you and then eventually started to try it after DICOM ended, but um, were they within that close circle as well? Or Yeah, yeah, those were uh, a couple other guys and I forget who who ultimately knew them we we all all ended up being uh, in touch with each other uh, to a great degree so those Triggerson and Noel were a little bit older than us um, but uh, again uh, you know they they knew some of the hardware and and the software and uh, um, I don't know what they had been doing before they they wrote uh, collateral um but uh and i don't know if that was because there was a, a way to get it published through me um but uh, ultimately they they brought it to me and uh we we published it okay i know one thing i want to mention on, on gala besides being a, just a really fun game is that I, as far as i remember i think it's the first three players simultaneous coco game i can recall there's some other ones later like you know steve york's rampage and a few others and then we'll get into Gantlet 2 where you really went for broke. Um, but was that something you kind of planned like right up front when you were first starting it? Or were you originally planning it just making it a two-joystick game like most other platforms did? Um, no, we were trying to, to clone the arcade game as much as possible. And, you know, three seemed to be the best route. I mean, back in the day, uh, joystick slash keyboard were sort of interchangeable uh so there were were a lot of games that you played on keyboard back in the day compared to to nowadays where you know it's it's either a joystick game or a keyboard mouse there's only sort of one input system for whatever you're going for um but back in the day you you did have a, a lot of people who didn't have joysticks so there was very few games that were joystick only and so it just made sense that we could get the three going um and it wasn't until later on that we thought Okay, we can get the fourth one in there by putting two people on the keyboard. So yeah, I'm definitely going to be asking you about that when we get to that one. <laughs> yeah, actually, that was one nice thing about Gala because if you you picked up a Coco brand new at Radio Shack and you didn't get joysticks with it because maybe your parents didn't want you just gaming all the time, you should actually learn something. You know, Gala at least you could play a one player one with the keyboard, and you can actually you know play the game without having to add any extra hardware for it. Right um, now, one thing I did want to check with you when you were doing your stuff you did through third party before DICOM started, they were generally system requirements were a bit lower, 32K. I think everything you published through DICOM at least required 64K. And of course, on the Coco 3, more than that. Um, was that a design decision because you needed that RAM to, you know, actually enable your vision to become reality? Or did you feel that the market was big enough on the 64K side that there wasn't that many 16 and 32K machines left to worry about, you know, that I'm losing market share because I'm making these games all require 64 so yeah, it's it's a, a double-edged sword. Having the extra RAM was obviously advantageous for for developing the games, and I think uh, the hardware itself had caught up far enough that you could get away with uh, developing for 64K only. So that's why we went down that road. It, it, it made things easier, um, but at the end of the day, I, I don't think we ended up losing too many sales because of that. I don't remember if. 
because the Coco 2 was probably out by then. And I don't know if, if you could get a, a smaller version of that then or if 64K became pretty much the de facto standard. I think it was pretty much. They did offer a 16K model for at least the first few years of the Coco 2, for sure. In fact, I think they even offered standard basic instead of extended basic on some of those early ones. Later on, they I think they all came with extended. And I think most were sold to 64K because the price difference at that point with RAM wasn't that much different. So it was you know, four times as much RAM for 20 bucks or something like that. So it wasn't really worth. Plus they were trying to compete with everybody else at that time. And of course, everybody else had 64K at that point. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to stop the share and switch to a different one. So this is the first color ad you guys took out. And actually with full full color screenshots and the whole bit, plus a few new product announcements. Um, and this is where we get in the first one uh, where we really see that you were you know, doing the mock-ups and stuff well ahead of the game being done. Or maybe you had some design changes. I'd like to ask you about this. So this appeared in the November 1986 Rainbow. And this is your first inside front cover where you kind of took over the old Tom Mix spot, um, who were kind of getting out of things at this point. So you have another one by Kevin, uh, WrestleManiac. Now, I'd be curious to what this one sold as, because, I mean, there's there's pockets, of, especially in the, the States, where wrestling is hugely popular even to this day. Um, but then there's other parts where it's it's kind of viewed as, you know, theater, not not a real sport, et cetera, type thing. I was just wondering, like, how did that one sell? Like, what at that point, I, I don't really remember back in 85, 86, you know, was it that popular back then? Uh, I think it was fairly popular. I know, uh, obviously, uh uh, the WWE was was doing their uh, WrestleMania shows, and and they were sort of uh, on, on the upswing at that point, and that's sort of what prompted uh, uh, Kevin to to do the wrestling game, and and nothing else had been done. There was a bunch of wrestling games in the arcade at the time as well, and I think it did sell pretty well. Okay, I know it had some yeah. really nice, strong you know graphics and some of the animations for the various moves and flips and bouncing off the ropes and everything. So it was actually quite fun. Yeah, again, that was Kevin. Uh, he sort of handled all that, and like I said, he was arguably uh, as good or better an artist as he he was a coder. So, okay, and then bouncing boulders, of course, is based on uh, Boulder Dash, I believe it's called. Yep, that one now, is one of. So that one's got is interesting. That was the first game, and maybe the only game we ever worked on that we actually had to cap the frame rate on uh, because again Roland wrote some crazy code and without capping the game actually was it scrolled around too fast to be playable because <laughs> uh, he was utilizing that's when he started coming up with crazy ideas like hey let's only redraw sections of the screen um, the change yeah the dirty tile method and uh, because of that, that game ran at lightning speed, so we actually had to to slow it down. <laughs> you don't hear that very often with the Coco. No, <laughs> you never hear that with the color computer. <laughs> now, was like, there any... I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Was there any... What was the politics behind getting the inside front cover? Uh, we were always looking to to get better position, and it became available to us. Um, I think I don't know if if we called and said is it available or if they said it's going to be available. Do you want it? Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was 
you know, I, I, I don't know if we were on a list or, or how exactly it happened, but we'd, we'd always wanted to, to have one of the, the covers and that one became available. So we took it. And, and I mean, obviously it's more expensive to do the inside front cover for placement <clears throat> as well as going to full color versus, uh, you know, two shade. <clears throat> Did it actually pick up sales? Like having the prominence of being in the inside front cover and having the full color screenshots and everything that people could really see what the game looked like. Did that actually instantly develop into extra sales? Do you think? Uh, I would think it did. I, I never really tracked any of the numbers from that standpoint. Um, if financially we were doing well enough and it just made sense to, uh, to have as marquee a location for the, uh, uh, for our games. And, uh, so we, we jumped at the opportunity. Okay. Okay. Now I'll go into the next but, one. By the way, I wrote the review for Gates of Delirium. Yeah, you, you know this. We've had this conversation. Yeah, I wrote the radio okay, I'm, I'm, for it. Okay, I'm old now. I forget a lot of things, okay? <laughs> so what, what did you think of it, Glenn? I have to ask. I don't remember reading that. It was a positive review. I, <laughs> I enjoyed the game. What I didn't like was that Rainbow asked for me to return it after I had written the review. And I remember telling Dave that, and he got pissed, too. He was like, they should have let you keep it. Yeah, that's... Uh, you know what? I've... I have generally so outside of Rainbow when I was doing my my Atari Lynx stuff, I I was sending off copies to to all the magazines and 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 I would call them up and go, well, who do I talk to to about you know submitting games? They go, well, just a minute, we'll pass you along to the editor. It's like, oh, okay, I just needed to talk to some random person to find out who to submit to. So I talked to you know back in the day, I forget what the. Uh, Electronic Gaming Monthly and Joystick and, and some of the bigger ones. I, I talked to those, some of the um, the editors there, and it, it was just for them. It was just like normal to to talk to to the companies, and and uh, it was it was really interesting. It was very different than the experiences I'd had uh, with Rainbow and that. So, uh, but I remember I think it was Andy Eddy was the editor of one of the magazines, and and I I talked to him at some point later on and, and he had said oh yeah uh, when Joe's came in um, I, I get to pick and choose which ones uh, go where and when Joe's came in for the Atari Lynx it was like oh, I'm taking this one and and he, he recounted he was playing it in his office and I had digitized all the sound effects right from the original arcade machine and he said people kept knocking on my door going when did you get the Joe's machine in here and he goes no it's, <laughs> it's just the Lynx game and it was like alright and uh uh, I had also talked to um, uh, Eugene Jarvis, who was one of the original uh, Williams guys, yeah. Williams guys who worked on Robotron and Joust. And I had talked to him when I got the licenses, and uh, he had just given me the okay to to publish Robotron. And he said, "Look, we just got uh, one of the best, you know, conversions in, and one of the worst conversions in, and our Robotron was the best, and someone's Smash oh. TV for their Super Nintendo was the worst. <laughs> so, ironically enough, Robotron and Joust are two that we now have Coco Three Trans codes, where they've actually taken the original arcade source code, converted it directly to the Coco Three, and it plays as well as Mame does. I mean, it's it's basically the same game. They have to scale it slightly vertically." There's 240 pixels, so you have to like skip scan lines every once in a while. But they play pretty well identical. But if memory serves, the uh, the original uh, Williams arcade games were all 6809 yeah. or something very close to the 6809. So we were able to. I didn't actually have the source code to Robotron. I wrote that from scratch myself. 
but Roland did most of the coding on Joust, and it was basically close to a line-by-line -line conversion of the original source code. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's been pretty amazing. I mean, uh, Sock Master John Kowalski from Montreal area, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or not. I think he came along a little bit after you're out of the cocoa market, but uh, he, he started the whole transcoding uh, bit there when he converted Donkey Kong over. And then he actually made a Donkey Kong remix, which he actually sells as an arcade upgrade board, and it's on the Coco 3 as well, where he's like jiggered the levels and changed them around and stuff to make it much more challenging. Not, not that Donkey Kong's not challenging enough in its own. <clears throat> but yeah, we've got, uh, I think we're up to five or six official, you know, you know, full transcodes of the actual arcade games now, where you, you, you took a quick look at a screenshot, you or even watching it play and listening to it sound wise and everything else, you would have no idea that was a Coco running it type of thing. So. Yeah, a lot of the coding techniques that, like, like you said, you get you know, more advanced as you learn things like with uh, Roland and stuff. So, sure. Um, so, Gates of Dilemma, I, I did want to touch on this one. I mean, it's it's an Ultima style game, obviously. <clears throat> yep. And now, this is your early ad. Now, this the, the whole screen layout actually changed quite a bit by the time the final came out, um, which is months later. And you announced the Gates of Dilemma contest, which I did enter, and uh, we were too late, so I didn't win anything. <laughs> but you sent a very nice polite letter back saying, sorry, all the prizes have been claimed, right? Hey, we did something right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like on this particular screen here, I don't know how well people can see it here on the bottom, but basically you had your four lines for up to four characters on the bottom and then your little command window on the lower left. And then you had a, like a huge screen for the actual scrolling around. I'm assuming it was probably using very similar technique as bouncing boulders to keep the speed up with, you know, if the ground tile doesn't change when you move over, just don't redraw it. So play fast. But this original, this was just a mock-up or did you guys figure, you know, I want more than four active player characters? Because eventually you got up to eight when you rejigger the whole layout. So I was wondering if this was design changes that went along or is it just because you had to quickly put together something to put in an early ad? Uh I'm pretty sure it was because it was uh, really early. We had just we had just mocked up something. I know we were uh, Roland and Dave were playing, and I was playing a little bit uh, of uh, Ultima Three at the time, um, and we were kind of like, "Well, like, let's let's mock this up and and see if we can uh, uh, do our own version of that." And so this would have been just an early early mock up uh, based on us having played, and then. Um, I probably got involved at some point to to sort of you know reconfigure the screen. Probably not as much for speed um, because it, it was role playing. It didn't require the speed per se. It was probably just more uh, for aesthetics and to display the information in a better way. Yeah, I have to say the display. <clears throat> I mean, you've reduced the screen size of the actual play map, but I, I, the information is much more clearly presented. Like it's kind of hard to read all that stuff jammed together on the bottom there. Your stats for your for up to four characters so i think yeah. i definitely think you made the right decision so was this initially started by the other two you kind of joined in afterwards and as far as the original concept here like this or were you actively involved right off the start uh i think i, I was involved in the sense that like that we were we knew we were going to create this and we knew we were going to publish this um I, I think at a certain point i got involved and did a lot of the the world design um, because they were. Uh, I know Dave did a little bit early on, and then Roland did the bulk of the coding, and then I had to get involved to uh, to finish up some of the the maps because of time constraints. Okay, was it was it designed like in the initial stages? Because <clears throat> you have that whole hollow world concept where you basically go that one 
Twin City 1 down to Twin City 2, which is this 32-level dungeon romp you have to go through. And then you emerge in this inner world, which is a bit smaller, but it's kind of like the hollow earth theory type thing. Was that something that you guys had planned right at the beginning? Because that was a pretty, pretty cool concept. And I was quite stunned when I kind of figured out what had happened when I finally made it down all the way. I was like, wow, there's a whole other world down here type thing. I'm, this game's really worth the money. Yeah, I think that was that was always part of of our uh, concept from it design wise. I know I know some of the Ultimas uh, had done a little bit of that, but I think uh, uh, it was something that we had planned from from pretty early on. Okay, so now I'm going to jump ahead about half a year, <clears throat> which is the next uh, set of ads, and this is where that you can see the first appearance of the final layout for Gates of Delirium. So let me find which one we Actually, I'll do that. This is when you actually did two two ads, two pages. So I'll show the first page. It doesn't have gates on it, but it's got some other new products on it here. So just well, your computer must be hating you today with all them tabs open. Well, that's why I don't have any of the new stuff open. I'm reserving it strictly for Dave at the beginning here because I'm sure I'd crash my machine with everything. <laughs> so this is when you actually had the inside front and inside back cover, which I don't even recall Tom Mix or anybody else doing before you. I think you were the first to actually take out both. Um, so I'm assuming sales must have been going rather well at this point if you could afford that. Yeah, this would have, this would have been probably at our at our high point. And uh, again, the, probably the, the second cover probably became available to us. Um, and we also had uh, a slightly better ad agency. Well, that wasn't me basically uh, putting <laughs> together the the ads and and doing most of the creative. So yeah, layout definitely a step up. Yeah, money well spent on thirty degrees. <laughs> but here you can see a couple of the new releases uh lansford mansion um and then collateral is that how you pronounce it uh i think it was collateral collateral which is the jeff noel and, and dave turgerson now when dicom folded they actually got the, they got that back from you and actually started selling it themselves and then a coco three sequel whatever <laughs> number two yep um so this is when you first start working with them now lansford mansion i'm trying to remember who wrote that one that was uh dave and roland and, and it was the color and a little bit of version. kevin it looks like too from what i saw on the cruise. oh he may have done uh, he may have done the graphics for it uh they had originally written it for the model one um and then they converted it over for the color computer and kevin probably did all the artwork for it okay because one thing i wanted to ask about that up until this point aside from gates of delirium being pronounced as a role-playing game but still a little bit arcadey because you're doing like live battles and semi-real time uh, but this was the first adventure game you'd attempted. And I know, Glenn, you you did a ton. That's how you kind of started was with adventure games, graphical adventure games. Um, I was wondering, what were the sales like for that? Like, was this, uh, from what I've heard from some people, um, Glenn, you, maybe you can uh, confirm or deny in your particular case, but adventure games, I don't think sold quite as well as arcade games because it was a bit more cerebral and, you know, not a Twitch game that just somebody can just pick up and go in. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have sold as well. Uh, both uh, Lansford and Collateral didn't sell as well. People really wanted the, the titles that they were familiar with from the arcade. That was sort of the what it was like in in that uh, in that day. It was like we want our arcade games on, at home on our computer, um, and you know other stuff uh, was available. And on certain platforms, certain things did 
you know, a lot better on the color computer. It, it just wasn't as, as popular. Okay. And Glenn, was that kind of your experience too? Cause you did both arcade style and adventure games too. Sure. I think part of it may have been, that's what people came to expect from DICOM is these, you know, machine language, awesome arcade um, conversions of games that they are familiar with. Um, so I wouldn't have assumed at that point that you were the best place to place a, an adventure game. And that's actually one of the reasons I made Sundock Systems is because working with Prickly Pear, they were becoming known as sort of a, a place for adventure games. And so I, I enjoyed having my adventure games with them. And I still released some under Sundog, but I wanted to go more towards the, the, the arcade experience because, yeah, definitely there was a big demand for that. And, um, and you know, becoming known for those was it definitely helped sales. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I know uh, Scott Adams and Adventure International and different companies, Infocom. Uh, Glenn sort of has some some bits of info, or bits of uh, knowledge base working with some of the old Infocom guys. And, and certain companies were obviously known for certain types of products. Right. Um, so I, I I I would tend to agree that that was probably part of it. Okay, yeah, I, I think there was a bigger market in the color computer space for those arcade games. The, the the ones that made the most money were, but you know, there were adventure game fans out there definitely because I, I sold a bunch of them. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, we had a couple of uh, you know adventure game newsletters for the Coco that were actually sold as a paid subscription service for playing all of them, and they had walkthroughs and tips and tricks. I think you even guested some articles for that Adventure Survivors one, if I remember correctly, Glenn. Uh, or was it maybe just reviews of your games I'm thinking of? I did an article or a, a, a column in one of them, uh, I think. And, but but I'd have to dredge my memory to try to figure <laughs> out. Like, yeah, it's yeah. I had fun in doing something along those lines. And <laughs> Collateral, <laughs> that was one actually I quite liked because it was a bit more arcadey in the way it was done. It wasn't just typing in text commands. You actually used the arrow keys to run around and you'd hit an object to pick it up and You'd still have the puzzle elements of an adventure game, but it wasn't like, you know, go north, go west, go south. You would just right arrow key, run across until you got to a bridge or something interesting popped into your path and you'd have to, you know, it would tell you what it was and you'd have to deal with it. So it had a nice presentation that was, I think, fairly unique for the time. Yeah, it was, and then if it was, you look, go yeah, it was, it was definitely a little bit different and it did sort of uh, incorporate a couple different uh, sort of genre styles uh, in the game. And, and that was one of the things that uh, that I liked about it. Now, on, on these two here, because they were essentially programmed and, and, and designed, I think, by other people, did you, <clears throat> like, I know, Glenn, you became kind of a creative director at Sundog, so you would give suggestions to some of the programmers, like, you should change this to make this more, you know, palatable for the, the general public or whatever. Did you get that kind of uh, integration with your other teams there too, Dave, where you would give some suggestions, even if you weren't directly involved with the coding or anything on some of these games? Uh Generally not. If I wasn't involved directly with the game, then it was basically I would look at it, and if if I liked the product, then I usually saw them when they were done. So I would uh, it was either a yay or a nay on the product, and go from there. And Collateral came to me as a fully complete project, um, and so it was like, all right, yeah, we'll we'll take it. I had played the original Lansford Mansion, uh, the Model One version, and and liked the adventure itself, and. You know, they said, uh, uh, if we convert that over, will we publish it? And I said, sure. We just we just added the graphics to it, or actually, actually better graphics than 
than the uh, the model one version had so <laughs> I, I have a question for you how often did you get games that were pretty good but not good enough to sell uh, i don't recall um i'm going to say We didn't get a whole lot that we could publish. We probably got a decent number, but most of them were just, and we got some in basic and, and mm-hmm. you know, a few in assembly language. We got a, probably a decent number, but very few of them were just polished enough to, to really publish at the end of the day. I mean, and I've said you know, this for years as well, like as much as I, I, I want to help and I, and I like to support um, hobbyists and, and people who, you know, who, who want to develop games and, and, and be in this industry. Um, I try to be as amenable and try to, um, uh, you know, support them and, and encourage them to do stuff. But at the end of the day, people who don't do this full time, don't do it full time for a reason. Um, and it, there's just if you want to devote yourself to this then you have to to really become successful at it if you're just doing it as a hobby unfortunately you're probably you're doing it as a hobby because you can't do it as a job and, and i'm not trying to be be mean or disrespectful um because you know on on a certain level i was a hobbyist when i started this um and you know i i've turned it into uh to a full-time career for the last almost 40 years um but it's really really hard to do okay yeah because actually uh kind of going along those lines here like if you go through everything that you sold uh through dicom almost all of them were that pocket of people you knew in that 30 minute radius from your place um yeah and and to be fair on on multiple levels it gave us a lot of content um you know we we couldn't have supported too many more products. Otherwise, we would have sort of diluted our own product line. If, if we were to release, <laughs> if we released four games every month, uh, it wouldn't have been as good as as two games every couple months. You, you would have had to make a Novasoft. <laughs> well, we we could have, but that proved to not be successful. So, right, right. it woun't have made sense. Uh, uh, actually, that that brings up a good question. I should have asked him about the Novasoft thing. The fact that it didn't last that long. Do you think it was because the cheaper prices just made people think, oh, well, if it's ten bucks cheaper than everything else, they must not be that good of games? I don't know. I, there's probably an element to that. There there is a psychological part. I just think the games weren't as mainstream. Like we we had, you know, the success rate of our games was was all over the place depending on which game you it was, right? Like some of them sold, you know, uh, 100, 200, 300 copies. Other ones sold a couple thousand. So I think a lot of it is is product specific. If you you pick up on something that is insanely popular in the arcades and more mainstream, it's going to do better than something that's lesser known. Okay. And then uh, just to touch again on the on the Gates Delirium screenshot, you can see in the lower right corner there, this is the redesign layout where you've got enough room on the upper right for up to eight characters in your party, whereas you only had four in the original concept. And then you've got uh, you know, your food and your gold kind of like highlighted at all times. And then you've got a little window that's actually bigger than the original version giving you room for that. And then you also have the phases of the moon gates, which is very yeah. critical of the game to teleporting to places you can't normally get to. 
And uh, yeah. that that Moongate concept, I'm trying to remember, was that part of one of the original Ultima two or threes, or was that? No, no, we wouldn't have taken anything like that from another game. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was, uh, and part of the evolution was probably going from from uh, Ultima three to Ultima four, where I think they expanded a number of characters and redesigned the screen. Um, the Moongates, yeah, they were they were obviously out of uh, Ultima. It's a huge uh, uh, part of the Ultima games. Okay. Okay. I'd, I'd like to say we were more creative than we were back then. Um, Glenn was probably much more creative with with his game designs than than we were. Uh, we were very very focused on reproducing uh, stuff that had been done before. So you, you were making more money than me. That's <laughs> <laughs> all that matters, right? right? Scratch, right? <laughs> I believe at one point when I the, the last time I talked to you, you said if I was in your position, all I would do is just write books. <laughs> did I say that? You did say that after I, after I sold my company. Said if I was in your position, all I would do is just sit at home and write books. <laughs> Which is that what Glenn is doing now. So that was way before I was writing books. I think. I know it's when you wanted to write books, but you couldn't. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, before I get on to um, the the first Coco three ads and stuff, and also some other new products, I did want to bring up the uh, Gates Delirium archive on my site, which of course I stupidly didn't get ready ahead of time here, so I'll just yammer for a bit. <clears throat> but this is actually something Tim Linder you can talk about because you were actually involved in creating this this archive project here with Andrew Ayers and Michael Crawford, John Riddle. Do you want to kind of explain how that whole thing started? Well. Um... I had done some archiving in the past and I had a little bit of a reputation in the community for helping archiving projects. And they came to me uh, with some discs they had and uh, we were all spread out over the country and they were looking for ways to digitize um, their discs. So I wrote some utilities for them to um, defeat some copy protection. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the instigator of that, Tim? Was it you kind of joined in afterwards or? or? Uh, it was a sort of ad hoc mailing list saying, uh, I, I do not remember who started. Okay. Yeah, I think that bought me but the time. When, when, I find, when I saw the final, <laughs> the, the, the final archive, it was, I was impressed. It, they, had, um, they had done a really good job. Yeah, I, I liked it so much because I really liked the original game because it, it basically it took my entire summer away that one year. I didn't do anything else but that and work. So thanks, thanks, Dave. Um, <laughs> I do what I can. <laughs> I, I, so one of the games that we created early on when we were doing our mobile uh, stuff was uh, a game called Shade, um, which was basically Ultima Online with Ultima 3 graphics, graphics very similar to this, that was played through uh, WML uh, web pages on the early cell phones. And it, it was basically an MMO version of this. Um, and it was really, really popular in the day. And it, it ran for... So eight years it was it was live and we we ran some tracks on some of the stats of our players 
And one of our top players had played the game an average of eight hours a day, every day for five years. Oh, wow. My, my two months doesn't seem so bad then. It, it, it was, and, and this is on like a really limited powered cell phone, like 2001, 2002 era um, cell phone. And arguably they would play it in the non-graphical mode with just ASCII characters for the display because it loaded faster. So kind of like a rogue style. Yep. Yep. So we, we had sort of designed it with a, a graphical slash rogue component, depending on which type of cell phone you had, what the capabilities were back in the day. Um, but we based uh, a lot of the initial artwork and everything was was literally taking from what we had done with this. Um, we just turned it into an MMO and, and we would have up to 500 people's live in in the world uh, simultaneously uh, running around playing and and uh, it was uh, quite successful okay which, which then leads to the thousand stories of of my life being threatened and, and people being insanely crazy and doing all sorts of stuff that we could tell stories for a week about yeah well we'll touch on those a little bit uh, a little bit later when we get into your your career post coco actually i think we'll have, probably have to divide this into three chunks so i think i'll finish this here because uh, this is uh, the the ads after this is when we started getting Coco Three, so that may be a good time to have a quick you know bathroom break, grab some coffee, etc. So we'll kind of finish off on on Gates here before we do that, and then we'll have a, a probably a second break um, before we hit your your post Coco career. But I wanted to uh, touch on this here because this is one of the things I found the most intriguing about the original archive. One of the reasons I saved it on a DVD ROM back in the day, and thank God I did because the original one disappeared and I still had it, so I put it back up on my site. But there's a couple of things in here, and that you'll see little asterisks beside them, that these are shapes that are actually in the game but never got used. And I wanted to ask if you remember any of the history of what they were there for, what the plans were, why they were yanked out type thing. Um, so on the top row, there's two, and one's labeled dog question um, mark, and the other one's labeled spaceship question mark. It looks more like a plane to me. Now, I do remember Ultima 2, I think, had a spaceship. I think you had traveled between planets, if I remember correctly. Um, so I don't know, were you guys originally planning on kind of duplicating that? And then as it progressed to Ultima three, et cetera, that maybe you'd change your minds or. Yeah, we, I don't recall exactly what happened, but we may or may not have just pulled all the artwork out of one of the old uh, games and, uh, did some touch-ups on it and just sort of left it intact. It probably came as a, a, a sprite sheet and we just probably kept the sprite sheet or something like that. And uh, we, we may have had ideas to do certain things. I don't think we were ever going to do a spaceship. I know it was in Ultima 2. Um, the dog may or may not have been a dog or a horse. It's hard to say. Um, and uh, so, yeah, some of the early stuff would have been just stuff that Roland and uh, Dave had uh, thrown together and was probably just in the files. And a few things probably were added to that at the end. And we just probably just didn't rip out anything because... It, once you start trying to pull stuff out of a sprite sheet, then you got to rewrite code. It's just not worth doing that. Yeah, and this was a bigger game. This actually took two discs because you had your main boot disc with all the the raw stuff, and then you actually had your player disc, which is all the maps and locations, and you know what treasures have you already picked up, which items have already gotten, type thing. Exactly. <clears throat> and then on the second last row on the bottom, there you can see shield and sword. Now, obviously, you can get these things in the game, and you purchase them, or you can steal them from vendors, etc. During the game here, but uh, they don't actually appear as as icons. Um, so I don't know if you originally had planned on having everything picked up as a graphical thing rather than just you know talk to trader 
whatever at the countertop and you just basically say, you know, I'll give you 50 gold pieces to buy whatever type thing. And then maybe yeah. you're... Yeah, they may have been uh, part of uh, depicting different stores or something like that, or they may have been. We may have been going to use them to, for the uh, the interface or something like that. They just never ended up being used. Okay, I, I always find those tidbits here when you got like, like we were mentioning with karate earlier, like some of the code that was left in, uh, to, you know, referring to doing stuff uh, with either an modem cable or, or online uh, modem. But you get all these little bits of history that you know never quite happened, and you know how would the game have been different if they actually had incorporated these things? So I always find these things fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I've got, uh, I guess even even recently, like uh, I I've got tons and tons of projects that have been started and completed to whatever level that that uh, just ended up getting shelved. So I've I've done that. Uh, I did that in the color computer days and I did that uh, in, in my mobile days and that. So there, there's always projects get started and for whatever reason uh, don't uh, end up getting released. And this is this, I just wanted to show the scope of the, <clears throat> the game here for those who have not played it. Like this is the outer world. Um, and this is actually, you have to scroll around to see it all here. So this is like rather huge. And you can see stuff like here, like this, you can't walk through mountains, for example. So you had to use the moon gates to actually teleport into this particular island. That's the only way you can get in there. Well, unless you used my my fake teleport spell by cheating. But um, I'm surprised you just didn't make a nice little land path across there. <laughs> I, well, I edit, edit one in. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in these maps, too. Like, like this particular island here, for example, you've got this one little square that's actually not a mountain stuck in the middle of nowhere. And I don't remember there actually being anything there. I think I did teleport in there to see if there was. And it, it was just like yeah, maybe somebody just glitched and typed in the wrong you know, byte value for that particular map part there. Yeah, we would have had an editor for this. And uh, it, it's hard to say why that's that way. I mean, it, it could have been potentially a, a glitch on on the disc where, where something was written badly or maybe it was just edited incorrectly um if it was something you never could see then we we probably just sort of left it never got back to fixing it it was made to drive you crazy <laughs> yeah it's, well it did worked <laughs> i i do I, you know what nowadays i do more of that i i will i will i will put stuff in there to drive people not to put put things that they can see but they can't get to and and see uh, how long it drives them nuts yeah the teasers like you you figure there's got to be something special i can do to open up this wall or yeah, exactly like exactly yeah. you put a whole put up a whole bunch of doors in there that can never be opened but they think they can open them <laughs> <laughs> and here i'm just showing one of the random towns this happens to be the ghost town which actually i quite like because it's an abandoned town you can see like there's chunks of walls missing the rivers flowing into the ration store and the, the walkway to get across the moat is you know broken up in pieces here. And if I remember correctly, this healing fountain is actually so old and corrupt here, it's actually a poison fountain at this point. Um, but yeah, there's just tons of detail in these maps here, and they're, they're, they're kind of fascinating to go through. I know Ken, Ken Waters, who's our Game on Challenge uh, director these days, <clears throat> he's actually going through and trying to win the game now. And I think, Ken, have you gotten to the inner world yet, or are you still on your way down? Assuming he's still awake. Or is internet still holding up for that matter? No, I guess you dropped off for good. But anyway, it's a it's a huge game. Like it literally took me and another person locally here, lived three houses down from me, also at a cocoa. We were trading the the disc, so I'd save because I was working days, and uh, I would give 
the disc to him to play during the day because he was a bit younger than me. He was still in school in the summer holidays. So he'd play the game and save the state. And he'd run over to my place when I got off work and give me the disc. And I'd play it till like midnight. And then I dropped the disc off in the morning as I was going to work type thing. And we kind of tag teamed it all the way through and still didn't get it done in time to win anything. So I kind of sucked. But I feel bad that I was the guy who reviewed this and I didn't see hardly any of this content. <laughs> well, you had a game similar to this later on too. Paladin's Legacy is kind of an ultimate style mm-hmm. game too, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, stuff like this is, it's really hard to to review something like this. Um because you'd you'd need advanced copies of it so that you could you know yeah. do do justice to playing through. You'd also nowadays you'd have all sorts of cheat codes or or uh, mid game saves or something with high level characters so that you could actually see a lot of different things or or get sort of if it was a multiplayer game you you get some sort of mint to to drag you and and teleport you all over the place so that you could really do the game justice. Yeah. When, we, when we released Unreal 2, we actually had a, a press event where we had saves in all the locations and, you know, we let them experience the whole game, um, basically, uh, but only in our contained environment. But we had a lot of the, the big magazines there to to, uh, to experience that. So that was one way to, to address it. Yeah, you'll, you'll have uh, embargoes and stuff on it, too, where they, they can come in and see it, but they can't release anything until a certain date, things like that. Uh, that's pretty commonplace nowadays that uh, uh, they get to, uh, to see stuff in a, in a form that uh, the average person doesn't get to see. Right. Yeah. I, I think sometimes they're, they're even giving you like cheat codes, et cetera, now that you can actually see other parts of the game without having to actually go through the whole thing. Which I mean, this is where your your review would have been, you know, an issue trying to give a full scope of what Gates of Delirium was. Because how long did you have to review it, uh, Glenn? Do you remember? I think I had a few weeks. Um, yeah, there's and, no way in and, hell and, you'd be you able know, to get through that. And the review that I made was fine for the magazine it was in. I mean, it basically said, you know, this is a great game, and here's a lot of here's the you know some of the kinds of content you're going to get to. You should play this game, you know, and that's <laughs> that's what people are kind of looking for. They're not looking for the fans' in depth analysis. So I don't really feel bad. I think I did fine. You know, times yeah. times definitely changed. Uh, you know, you know, in, into the the '90s and stuff like that, where you would uh, have had like all sorts of screenshots and and right. uh, much more of a walkthrough type uh, presentation and things like that that they 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 started to do when you started to get into the Zelda games and some of the role playing games of that era. Uh, you know, you you got a lot more in depth and you would have had some level of this map you know drawn out nice and been able to publish that and, and you know it, yeah that would have been a feature yeah of the you know the few column inches i got uh, to write a review yeah it, like like at this time the, the gaming industry was still really in its infancy um you know things changed a lot uh you know in the years after the the color computer yeah, but this this is definitely one of the largest scale um, Coco games I can think of. This Paladin's Legacy and I think Seventh Link, which is actually done by Jeff Noel and Dave Triggerson too, when they did a try, which is basically a Coco three version of Ultima, which actually filled three discs and you needed a forty track drive to run it on top of it. Um, but these these are games that you definitely got your money's worth because this this literally would take you months. And as we were talking about earlier, that's not really the mindset of most gamers these days. They they want to be able to jump in and out of games. And as, as Dave, as you mentioned, you you want the game to be solvable fairly quickly. Otherwise, people just kind of lose their interest, except for, you know, a certain hardcore set. 
So uh, these games, I don't think, would be as successful these days as as they were back in the day. No, they're they're definitely very very limited marketplaces, right? They're they're very niche marketplaces. People who will play MMOs for, for like people who who've been playing you know World of Warcraft for twenty years. Um, you know, there's there's not a a huge market for those types of games anymore. Not, not for the not for the cost to make the game, and then the insanity of the user base. Like when when World of Warcraft comes out with an expansion, like it's twenty four hours before the expansion is been solved, right? Like, like there's just insanely hardcore people out there that just blast through content. It's been one of our problems you know with with our shade game and stuff in the day was like people would demand more and you'd, you'd create a new dungeon and they'd be done the next day and be going we want more content it's like we can't make content that fast you know it, it, it's so difficult and, and with a lot of games um it, it's really hard to get that type of longevity because you just can't create that much content and it, it's one of the things and I, I keep falling back on this but Fortnite has been blasted for the fact that they work their uh, employees pretty hard because they're constantly creating content. And I get that, but I can also argue that it's one of the reasons why the game has stayed so fresh for so long, because there literally is something new every week. And if you have a game that doesn't change for six months or a year, like most games they do stagnate so it, it's sort of a double-edged sword you can knock them for one thing but at the same time your user base is demanding it, it it's a it's a real hard thing to juggle nowadays and yeah. and and the industry and glenn can talk to this as well the industry is is constantly knocked for for crunch time when when games are are going to come out from a business standpoint a lot of businesses have a crunch time. They're just different than the one in the gaming industry. I'm sure when Kellogg's is launching a new breakfast cereal, the six month leading up to that is their crunch time. And, and they're putting the packaging there, figuring out how to manufacture it. They're figuring out how to ship it. They'll have a crunch time. It's just not as public as the gaming industry is because the people behind the scenes there don't really have a voice the same way uh, developers do or testers or, or or different things. It's become very public in the gaming industry. You just don't hear about it in other industries, but it's there. Um, and so, you know, yeah, it's definitely in mine. I'm in the commercial ticketing industry for like, you know, events and sports and stuff here. And They'll wait to the last second to design the artwork for tickets or whatever, and then they send it to us. And you've got like four weeks to produce, manufacture, ship out to every individual ticket holder, and and you just got to blast it out. So we have what we call rush season. So I'm like, you know, sixteen hour days, seven days a week, for like three months of the year. Yeah, the the exactly right. Casual. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it's just sort of the nature of the beast, and, and the gaming industry's gotten a bad rap for it. But um, you know, part of it's sometimes just bad planning right like you 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 set arbitrary deadlines to get stuff out and uh you either can when there's the longer the lead time the harder it is um and and it's just sort of the nature of the beast i I actually think i mean this is a bigger conversation than we probably want to have right here but i think it is 
the problem is when game companies decide that it is a tool that they can leverage on every product that they do so that they assume that they are going to get, you know, 16 hours of work out of somebody for an extended period of time in order to release this game out of their, their huge, um, their huge staff. And so you end up really burning people out. People leave the industry. They can't handle it anymore. It's like, and they assume that, you know, they build that in. They know they're going to be killing people making the games and that's a problem. Um, so yeah, I, you know, everybody has crunch time, but you need to be able to schedule to, to, to create a structure for your game that doesn't require people to die to make it. I, I don't disagree with you. And there's, there's a lot of aspects. And like you said, we could have a, a whole conversation about this. You also factor in that. I mean, when I was with Capcom, like we basically had four people doing the job of one because nobody spends the time to figure out which one person is actually doing the job. If you actually had four people working, then it would be fine, but you only end up with one guy working and he gets burnt out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you and I both worked in an environment where we did all the work on our game and it's become much more hire 10 people to do that. And if you don't, if the person hiring the 10 people and monitoring the 10 people doesn't understand who's doing what, then you just keep 10 people doing the job because it's getting done, but you really don't need the 10. You could do it with a lot less if you actually knew who was working and you got rid of the dead weight. You know, one of the things I asked um, companies when I interviewed with them is how many people here have children? Because I knew that if a company matured to the point, because early game companies, they were just guys, you know, guys who were in a room making a game and they would work themselves to death and they would love it. But as soon as people started getting children, they started realizing that there was life outside of game development. And so whenever I'd ask you know, how many of the people in power who are making those decisions have children, then I knew that they would be usually kind of reasonable about what they demanded from their development staff. Yeah, and that's actually brings up a comment that uh, Karen, uh, who's a Dragon developer in the UK, he says it's the difference between passion and abuse. Mm-hmm, Exactly. All right, I think this is a good place to stop for a quick break. Anybody needs to go to the washroom or grab a coffee or whatever here. Um, throw on a couple of commercials and we'll come back and start talking about the Coco 3 stuff that DICOM brought out. Okay, sounds good. You are watching Coco Talk, the world's leading weekly video podcast featuring a candy-colored computer. We spread the love to the past, present, and future for all models, including the original color computer, Coco Talk would like to thank the patrons who sponsor our program, so our heartfelt gratitude goes out to Alan Huffman, Alan Murphy, Blair Ledoux, Boat and Aaron, Brendan Donahue, Brian Weasler, Brian Walsh, Karen Anscombe, D. Bruce Moore, Daddy Burrito, Daniel Williams, Diego, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Graham Vebge, Grant B, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, Jason Downs, Jay Style, Ken Reichert, Malfunct, Melly, Michael Pitsley, Mike Rayburn, OG Hugo, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Paul Thayer, Retro Tech Time, Rick Eulen, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Stephen Wagner, Steve Batson, Steve Rasmussen, Terry Steen, 
Terry Steggy, The Backyard Shed Gang, Tim Thayer, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom Heron, Tom S., Tony C., and William Athing. Thank you ever so much, patrons. It's time for everyone's favorite segment, Who's New to Discord This Week? PW underscore 32X says, Hello, I'm Sean from Canada. I've been working as a programmer in the games industry for over 20 years and I've been trying to write games for longer. I've also done retro console dev for the past 10 or so years mostly concentrating on the Sega Genesis and 32X. The Coco 3 was my first computer growing up and I have fond memories of building my first games in BASIC. In my middle age I've recently wanted to get back to the Coco and found a Coco 3 for ridiculously cheap. I want to spend time learning the Coco's inner workings so I hope to find great technical resources to my surely endless list of questions. Thanks. Oscar-Tabak says. Hello there. I am Oscar from Wales UK. I've recently taken up programming the Dragon, a close relative of the Coco for the past year or two after acquiring and repairing one, creating various demo scene productions for it and showing them off at events. I believe I was on this server once before, a while back but must have left doing a server list clean. Unagi says. Howdy partners, I am Marlin the Altair Keeper. As a new keeper of a TRS-80 Coco, I have joined to gain knowledge on the system and solve the issues it has, to later use it to learn BASIC and make some programs. The previous bios were edited for time, thanks to Boys in Tech, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Nightbeard, Glenside Computer Club, and the Coco Talk patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. Just go to discord.cocotalk.live. See y'all on Discord! It's now Septandy, and the hottest game this video is talking about is... Robot Nightmare. Robot Nightmare. What new accolades are being shown upon... Robot Nightmare. Robot Nightmare. Celebrate Septandy by getting your copy of... Robot Nightmare. Robot Nightmare. Get it today at kenscococorner.itch.io. Good morning, Coco Land. This is Brian Schubring with Music Man here at the Coco Fest. Having fun fixing issues and making things roll and making lots of sound. Have a great day, guys. The music is back. As you're enjoying Coco Talk, we also want to remind you about the Coco Discord server. This is a place where people come to connect, to ask questions, to provide answers, to share information, and to socialize. So when you're done, why don't you head on over to the Coco Discord server and we'll continue the conversation there. The easy to remember link is discord.cocotalk.live. See you on Discord. <laughs> 
Let the Radio Shack TRS-80 put the world of color computing into your home. Instant loading program packs turn any color TV into an exciting game arcade. And there's more. The color computer is an educational aid, a home management tool, and up-to-the-minute electronic information service. The programmable, expandable TRS-80 color computer from $399 only at Radio Shack, the biggest name in little computers. At GSoft, we make games for the TRS-80 color computer, TRS-80, MC-10, and Dragon computers. Our basic games cover the range of genres from arcade, to text adventures, to simulations, to 3D dungeon crawls. This is our latest puzzle game from Japan, Fruit Panic. So come on and drop by our website and download our latest games. Greetings, YouTubers. Atari Leaf here, and you're listening to Coco Talk. And we're back. So welcome back, everyone, for part two of our interview with Dave Dyes. Um, I've actually got one thing I had to cover from Gatesteel, and I forgot to ask before we went for break, and then we'll get into Coco 3 stuff. So Andrew Ayers actually, uh, as Tim Linder mentioned, was one of the people behind getting that whole Gates of Delirium archive created. And he actually passed on by email a question and comment for Dave. He said, I wanted to ask him if he recalls that he told us back then when they were creating the archive that he that you had had a warehouse or something that possibly contained source code and other stuff, floppies, et cetera, from the DICOM days, but we never heard back from him if that was the case or not. So, Dave, I will let you respond. Uh, I did have a whole lot of stuff, um, but when I did my last move, I purged myself of all my color computer stuff because I didn't think I was ever going to need it, and I wish I had not. <laughs> There's a lot of people here have had to rebuy stuff, so that's fully understandable. And actually, I, I guess one other thing, because I know it's come up a, a couple of times in the chat and stuff here, um, the fact that you're not putting your 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 live you know picture of yourself uh, on here right now is mainly because of some, uh, you kind of hinted before, uh, the crazy users of some of these massive multiplayer games and, and what they do. Did you want to give a bit of an explanation on that, just so people know? Uh, yeah, I mean... Uh we did tech support for going on six years for our chat rooms and our, our MMO and, and all of our products. And there's, there's endless uh, stories about, uh, about all of that. And, and I was threatened with death more times than I can count. Um, and, uh, and in general, uh, we could have a whole extended conversation about social media and that, and I just have no interest in, and in, in being sort of front and center on social media and publicizing myself. And it's not because I think any of these people would would uh, come after me or anything like that, but I just I just don't have any sort of real desire to be front and center uh, out in the public with with what I do. So, although that may change with with one of my new uh, projects, the the bricks and mortar thing, but uh, uh, as a rule. I just sort of stay out of the mainstream as much as possible. So, okay. Now, I, I did because of that kind of promise. We do have a picture of you actually at uh, Rain Rainbow Fest itself here, manning the booth with some people around you. Um, so, there's a picture of 
of Dave showing off. I don't remember which particular festival this was from. And that's how I know Bill Noble and I met you when we actually visited with you in the Chicago one. I think 86, 87, and 88. I think we went and bugged you a lot. So thanks okay. for putting up with us. Oh, Left I, side yeah. or right side? Right side. <laughs> yeah, it was a long, long time ago. I don't know if anybody <laughs> on this this call was was either at, was it Steve's show in California or one of the Rainbow Fests in New Jersey, in Princeton, uh, at both of those, I went with a group of people that were there and played Photon. Um, and I don't know who, if anybody was part of that group, uh, but we did uh, we did it in California. I know Steve Bjork was there um, at that one. And, and I know for some unknown reason, I got in a car with someone who was at the Princeton show and we went to, uh, to play photon. So, um, have, and, and just to be clear, you're not talking about the photon color computer game. You're talking about like the cues are kind yes, of yes, shooting the, at each other, but the, the, like laser tag style game. Yeah. The, the, the original laser tag was, was photon. They had one up here in Toronto and I know I played the, the one down in uh, California and uh, I know two two friends of mine from when I was growing up in Montreal were living down in Los Angeles. They came to the show uh, along with Steve and a couple other people. We went to the California, the LA one, and with some people from from the Princeton show, we went to the one that was in I think Newark, New Jersey. We we drove there and played there. So okay, so in this picture here, which I think's from eighty five, eighty six. 87, somewhere around that time period, how roughly old would you have been at this point? Uh, probably 18 or 19. It would probably have been one of my first shows. If I, yeah. if I, if I don't have a corner booth, it was my first show. Because <laughs> we demanded a corner booth every show after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they're behind the camera here, or like the person that's taking the picture, if that would have been. And I, I, I know I have pictures of Glenn from the shows back then. I don't know. I wasn't really taking photos the first couple of Rainbow Fests I went to. Don't ask me why. I don't think I had a corner booth. Anyway, that, but for the people who have never been to a Rainbow Fest or have been to a Cocoa Fest, you can kind of tell the crowds are much thicker here than uh, they are nowadays. Though they have been picking up. I mean, after you know, falling down to around 60, 65 attendees five, six, seven years ago, and uh, we're back up to like almost 130 now. So, you know, the market's actually expanding, which is kind of amazing considering how old the computer is. Now, uh, Grant, I, th I believe, because that's kind of on topic, talking about fests and stuff here, I think you had a question probably both for Glenn and, and Dave. You're still hanging around your mic there, Grant Leedy. What do you think that is sitting there on the table? Hard drive? Or? Uh, those, those monitors, I think he's showing something on the monitor There's right two now. monitors. There's probably a hard drive in the middle between them uh, hooked up to the... Uh, the far uh, computer. Actually, I see two hard drives, three monitors. Looks like it'd be an FD500 or 502 drive. Yeah. Actually, one thing I wanted to ask you, you actually had some extra merch because that was actually part of your prizes was like, you know, baseball caps and stuff like that. How well did those sell just out of curiosity? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Like, was it something you consider a profit center or was it more just for promotion? Uh, it was more for promotion. Okay. 
Okay, stop that share. Now we'll get into the Coco 3 era, which actually has some more Coco 1 and 2 games. So. Okay, so this is uh, part of the inside front and inside uh, back covers. So this has Mission Russian Assault, which actually was our game on challenge of the week this week. So I don't know if Ken wants to mention anything about uh, that in brief before we actually get to his segment later on, but uh, that's the game. And Grand Prix Challenge, which is kind of a super sprint style game. And I believe that's one you did solo, right, Dave? Yes, it was. With a ton of tracks in it. So Russian Assault is one I we we talked about <clears throat> a bit during our, our you know setup calls for this interview, and you'd mentioned uh, that this game actually ended up being drastically different from what you originally had planned. So I was wondering if you can kind of give a history of where you originally were planning on going, where it ended up, and then why it ended up that way. Um, so initially, I one of the games I played in the arcade was um, uh, Russian Attack, which was a side-scrolling. Um, sort of commando type game that I, I really enjoyed playing. And that was what I was originally going to do. Um, I think it switched to this because I'd also started playing, I'd played commando and I'd played Akari warriors and uh, it just seemed to be a, uh, a more interesting way to go. And I, I think we'd been playing around with more vertical, vertical scrollers when we did uh, F 16 assault and that. So uh, I think that's why we, we landed here. Okay. And then also the other question I had about it, uh, both F-16 and Russian Assault were both called Mission Colon, et cetera. Was that because that was kind of a series that were kind of supposed to be linked in some way, like some sort of a theme topic that you were planning on expanding with other games later on? Or was that just kind of coincidence? Uh, no, we were. The the next game was going to be um, uh, some sort of future assault game, um, sort of a, a space more of a space version of uh, F-16 Assault that, uh, that Kevin was going to work on. Uh, but Kevin, uh, was uh, he got an opportunity to go work for another company on an Amiga game, and he, he went down that road. Oh, okay. You remember what the game that was, just out of curiosity? Because I know some Amiga crossover fans here too. So, uh, The initial game that he was working on was called Brute Force. Um, which I don't know if it ever came out. And then he ended up doing a conversion of um, a, uh, a racing game, a driving game. And I can't remember what it was called, but I know that was one that did make it to market. Okay. And then as far as the, the Grand Prix Challenge, this was another one um, that I, I, I wanted to ask you about this one because this one... I mean, I mean, everybody was obviously just learning how to use Coco 3 graphics, et cetera. Uh, and you have a lot of like really nicely drawn shapes. It's a beautifully uh, good appearing game, but it does run a little bit slow and there's actually not that much running on the screen. So I was wondering, was this one that was kind of rushed to get to market for Coco 3 or were you just kind of still learning the hardware? Or? Uh, I think I was still learning the hardware and it, it may have been a bit rushed as well. It, it, the trick in this one was the overhead to... Um, to be able to make the cars drive on their own and to uh, make sure that you didn't cross the uh, the start finish line and and just loop back around. Yeah, so and then also you also had like levels, like the, the one screenshot here where you have to go underneath a you know a bridge type thing, so you have to kind of keep track of what plane. You're yeah. On. 
Okay. And then I'll switch over to the other one from the same month. Okay, now this is where you, as far as I remember, this is the first time that DICOM and they did like two product announcements in the same month here where you actually got involved in hardware. So you had the Rat Graphics Design Package. Now, this is one I have to honestly admit I never used or never have used because I already had Color Max 3 by this point. Um, but you actually had a PC two-button digital mouse um, for digital accuracy rather than the analog where it kind of jitters a bit and everything else, the problems that we've had since. And you also had the uh, the famous uh, adapter for the Sega Master light gun that you used for Iron Forest. And uh, I was just wondering, like, what made you decide either yourself or I believe you had Roland and others, you know, Kelly and helping devise the hardware for this. What made you guys decide to get into hardware and and assuming the risk that the on software, I mean, it's your time that you're basically getting paid for, but hardware, you have stuff you actually have to pay for up front in order to sell it. Um, so it's a bit more risky, I would think. Uh, Rick Eulin will probably attest to that. Um, but I was just wondering, like, what made you guys decide to get into the hardware? Was it because you had software that required the hardware? Was it a kind of a combination of both? Or, or what, what exactly triggered you to want to do that? So with the, uh, with the graphics, we, we ended up uh, writing our own uh, uh, drawing program to be able to edit our own graphics. And we w I wasn't a big fan of the ones that had all the, uh, the interface around the outside. And we had been uh, using or we'd played around with, uh, I think it was Deluxe Paint or something like that on, on PC and Atari and that. And we, we tried to mimic that where... You, you had a full screen to draw on and there was a second screen where you could you know select whatever function you were you were using um, and having a you know a real uh, proper mouse which could uh, you know access all of the pixels properly just made sense so that's why we ended up going down that road and we ended up using uh, I think it was a Commodore 64 mouse um, that we were able to buy uh, fairly inexpensively and hack off the connector and put a, 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 a color computer connector on it. Roland wrote the the software to access it. Um, so it was partly out of out of our desire to have our own thing, and it we just thought it was it was worth trying to to get it out into the mainstream because a, a bunch of other people were were getting mice and and drawing programs out there. So we had it already written, so it, it wasn't really uh, a huge expense for us to. Uh, we didn't spend a lot of time creating it, so because it was already done. Okay, uh, so it was just ma a matter of, of that you had everything kind of there, and you decided, what the heck, I'll, I'll we'll try selling it. Yeah, and then the the light phaser we. We had experimented um, uh, with uh, um, the, initially the uh, the Nintendo uh, a light gun. We had done uh, we'd able we were able to interface that when we, we were we had been playing uh, you know the old you know games in the arcade and then on the uh, uh, the original Nintendo and, and it was a lot of fun and we were like well if we can get this to work on the color computer then then why not and uh, we were able to effectively with the uh, the hardware that Roland was able to write, we basically had pixel accuracy on the screen um, that it was literally sensing the exact pixel um, uh, in the display. And uh, we were able to, to create the interface and uh, Nintendo said, no, you can't use our, our gun. Um, but Sega uh, Canada said yes as long as you don't uh, 
uh, modify it. So that's why we we kept the nine pin connector uh, on the phaser and uh, just had to put the uh, uh, the female uh, uh, connector on our interface. And uh, we were trying to capitalize on you know doing something that hadn't been done before and, and allow us to create a, a whole new genre and style of games that uh, um, you know hadn't been done on the color computer before. Okay. I'm just going to switch to the camera here because I've actually got my Sega like gun interface that uh, I bought from you back in the day. For those who have not seen, I'm just trying to entangle the cords right now so I can show it properly. <laughs> and this was, it, and the Iron Forest um, was being written by uh, Kevin, um, but this is when he ended up uh, uh, going off and doing the Amiga stuff. So he ended up finishing the, the last bits of the artwork, but I ended up doing all the coding on the game. And, and that's also the, the original demos that most people saw, um, at least at the, uh, the LA show and possibly another one would have been a Western theme game. Um, and that was uh, all artwork that uh, Kevin had mocked up for, for us to show off the, uh, the, the gun and to see what kind of interest we, we would get from it. Um, but because he was gone and we just never bothered getting circling back and, and doing the Western game. Yeah, that was actually one you showed Bill Bill Noble and me at the Chicago uh, Rainbow Fest in 87 or 88, I think it was. <clears throat> I remember because we wrote about it in our local uh, Color Computer Club newsletter. We actually mentioned specifically that you'd showed us that. So I'm just going to stop the share here for a sec. And uh, so this is one of the Sega Master System guns. And then it plugs into... You got your logo and everything off here. So you, as you said, you could not modify the original connector. So it's the original nine pin, and then you have the actual connectors that go to the Coco here. And uh, you just plug that in, and then you add a second game that was released a little bit later, which we'll cover in a second here. Um, and one went into the serial port, and one into the joystick port. I think is how that works. I remember correctly. I believe so. Yeah, the only thing I didn't like about it is that it had required a nine volt battery, and that's like it it drained the battery pretty quick because I played it too much. So I eventually just went and bought a wall wart with a you know a nine volt adapter thing on it, so it's permanently plugged in. Right. Yeah, that was one of the problems with the color computers. It didn't uh, have any power coming out of any of its ports to uh, uh, to allow us to uh, to power it any other way. Now I wanted uh, before I get down to screen sharing ads again and going through the later stuff here, I wanted Tim Linder to talk a little bit about this because Tim actually made a blog post on this Franken Diary blog where you kind of reverse engineered how, how to build your own DICOM interface. So if you can find this Sega light gun, you can actually, you know, play the games on the Coco. So take it away, Tim. Yeah, I, um, I, I posted a reverse engineered schematic, um, 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 you know, theory of operation behind the device. It was, it was a fun thing. I also uh, included a software emulation and MAME for it if you want to play it with a, with a mouse, play the games with a mouse. It was a lot of fun. It's a very interesting device. And of the hardware itself, like who all was involved with the design of that, uh, Dave? Uh, that was all Roland. Um, <laughs> he, he's he's the the hardware genius. Basically, all it is um, is a it's effectively just a counter. Um, it uh, when you pull the trigger, it synchronizes to the refresh. You, 
you'll notice the whole screen goes white. Um, and basically, it synchronizes to the, uh, the scan of the, the monitor. And the first time the gun senses a pixel being turned off and back on, it stops uh, the counter and then it just calculates um, how far, how many scan lines down and how many pixels across it would take to get there. And then it reports that back to us. Okay. And then I wanted to show off since I actually have the original discs and the original manual here, if you want to zoom me up there, it'll work. I used to have all those too. <laughs> so I think if I remember correctly, this is one of the ones that um, your sister drew the cover for. Or is that one you did? Uh, she may have done that one. And then the discs. Who came up with the DICOM logo? Because actually, that's kind of an interesting graphic too, though. It's, I'm assuming it's a you know vicious wolf with you know rabies or something. Uh, it's a very Japanese-ish dragon. And I believe my sister did come up with that. And over the years, we actually reutilized that uh, a few times. We we chopped it down and used only the head uh, for Shadowsoft, I believe. And then we actually ended up with a, uh, a version of it, which is just the claw wrapped around a, uh, a world that we ended up using for, for Cosmic Games. Okay. Yeah, I always liked your logo. It was, it was quite unique in the Cocoa world. Most, most people just did the, like stylized wording of the the wording of their company, like Spectral had that kind of <clears throat> inverted 3D where one came out, one came out towards you, one went into the distance. And Tomix did the big TM connected, but you actually had, like, had a full logo and everything else, which was a bit more rare back in those days. Okay, so I'll screen share again. Jumping forward in time a bit more. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, how well did the the hardware interfaces sell? I mean, obviously, the rat would be a bit more limited audience for people that actually have their artistic bent. But as far as uh, the two light gun games, how how well did the light gun sell? Uh, I think we sold uh, three or four hundred units. I think it was in in that ballpark that we we did. Okay, yeah, because it was obviously it was more expensive. If you remember the ads there for the who are watching. Yeah, it was, it was it like was, 99 bucks, you know, combined if you wanted the game and the interface. Because, you know, like I said, it's hardware. You, you can't, you know, get away with, you know, charging cheaper just to give up your time. Yeah, no, it was like we basically sold the, the gun and the, and the interface at cost. And, uh, you know, the whole, the concept would have been over time that if you, if you bought the hardware that, uh, you know, it became cheaper and cheaper. Um, it, it, if we'd gotten to three, four, five games, then, um, you know, it, it wouldn't have felt as bad because after the first time then you're only buying the game itself. So. Yeah. Okay. I think I closed one by accident. I didn't close here. So again. Actually, I'll just skip it. So uh, basically, the original Gantlet 2, which is the Coco 3 version of Gantlet, um, was like Gates of Delirium. It went through a major design change from the original screenshots. I'm assuming that was a mock-up as well, the original version? Yes. Which basically had a black background, but it had 16-color graphics, etc. You know, much more detailed, close to the arcade. When the final one came out, actually, it had full-color backgrounds, like you had tiles and background stuff here, which I'll show now. So you can see it up here. Um, yeah, so that was a product of 
so the, initially we, we, we figured we were going to have to keep the black background so that we wouldn't have to display the transparency for the, all the, the monsters and the characters and everything like that. Um, but again, through the, the brilliance of, of Roland coming up with crazy ideas, if you look really closely, you'll notice that uh, all of the, the monsters and, and characters have, um, uh, they're all broken down into four by four um, blocks and anything that isn't uh, colored has uh, brown that matches the bulk of the background color. So we basically broke everything down into four by four pixel blocks and we displayed them translucently or uh, yeah, translucently on top of the brown background. And you don't really notice that they're there's no transparency in those because they, they match the bulk of the background and they're, they're fairly small tiles. And again, we use the, we only did the redraw of tiles that changed. Yeah. Cause this is one, actually I did attempt to optimize for six or nine. And I did manage to get it cause we have the 32 bit Q register. So instead of doing two low D store Ds, you know, from your tile shape to the screen, I just did load Q store Q, which is faster because it's a single instruction for each. But this one is actually frame-locked, so it didn't actually make that much of a difference, which is why I haven't released it. Um, I think it does make it a bit smoother if the screen gets really busy with a lot of ghosts or something on it. It, 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 There's a very slight ripple effect when the screen's full and you're moving and it is changing a lot of tiles. And it did smooth it out slightly, but it didn't actually increase the speed of the game pretty well at all. And most of the optimizations I've been trying to do is because, you know, some people want the game to run a bit faster, so... That's one I have not released yet. But uh, yeah, that one had much tighter coding. Uh, that's something else I want to touch on. Like I, I've done some optimizations on a few games like Marble Madness and Gantlet. Um, Russian Assault's another one. And you can see the progression of your coding techniques because you're doing like a load A story loop and then you do load E story D the next game and then you, know, you eventually get the stack blasting and all kinds of stuff. So you obviously were learning as you went and, and getting much better as you went too, so... Yeah, no, exactly. And and the best ones will be uh, the ones that Roland did and, and Gauntlet was one or Gauntlet 2 was one that Roland did all the coding on and you know he was just just a superior programmer to me so his stuff was always going to be uh, you know better than what I had done. Um, and I tried to learn as much as I could from him over time. Now, now this is also the one that I wanted to touch on and we mentioned before cuz uh, Gantlet was the first three player game that I remember anyway. <clears> three <throat> simultaneous players in the Kogo. This is the first by a long shot that has four. Karen in the chat here has actually done uh, Dungeons, a port of a Spectrum game, which actually has up to four players as well, too, for the Dragon and the Kogo. But uh, were you concerned at all about how cramped it was getting on the keyboard, having two people share on the keyboard at the same time? Plus the fact that the way you have to read the PIAs to, to view the roll column, strobing to figure out all the keys, there's only certain key combos that would really work reliably. Uh, like, how much time did you guys have to spend on that? Did you ever kind of think, like, maybe we shouldn't try to do that, just stick with the three players like you did in the original Gantlet, or were you just going for it no matter what? I think we were we were going to do it. The crampness was was just sort of a byproduct that if you wanted to really play four players, we were going to give you the option to to make that choice. Um, so it was, you know, we we never really worried too much about the, you know, the rest of of that. It was like, we want if we can get four players, let's get four players. And if people choose to do it, um, it, it it's a choice. It's not like we we were forcing it on the players or anything like that. It was like, hey, if we can get four, let's let's get all four. Yeah, and one other thing you did, which I mean, it's kind of somewhat based on the arcade game too. Like the original Gauntlet, you 
whatever position around the arcade game you were, you were that character. You're the warrior, you're the Valkyrie, whatever. Um, same with the original Gantlet. If you pick keyboard, you were playing the wizard, you know, type thing. Controllers were locked to a certain character, but like Gauntlet 2 in the arcade, you guys did it in here too, where you can basically pick, you know, if I want to be the red player, you know, I get to pick which player it is, which type, but you also get to pick which uh, control you want to use. Like you can assign, I want to be the right keyboard or the full size keyboard for a three player or just keyboard or, or whichever joystick. So, yeah, again, it just just the evolution of of design and and the game. It was you know we we tried to mimic what the arcade did, and and we we just tried to make the game you know more user friendly and, and give you more options. Yeah. Now I believe this this is not too long before um, the the big fiasco with Rainbow, which we'll get into shortly. Um, so this is from September of uh, 1988, Rainbow Magazine, and I think Gantlet Two is. The last one that uh, Roland worked on, is it? I believe it was. Yeah. This and of course, would... you also um, you did a Christmas themed rad ad. Yep. Uh, and an edition update as well. And then you came out the second light gun game. Now this one's actually got some pretty cool digitized sound effects, like that barking dog thing, and uh, a bit more sophistication to the graphics. And you have like the the dragon's heart you got to kill at the end and stuff like that. I was going to ask you on the two light gun games because I'm not super familiar with light gun games in the arcade, but were those clones, each of these clones of arcade games, or were they semi-original or fully original concepts? Uh, they were both basically original titles. Uh, we didn't uh, really copy off of anything. There was there was one, uh, there was a game called Crossbow that sort of had um, backgrounds with a character moving uh, around on them, but uh, we basically came up with our own monsters and our own backgrounds for, for medieval madness. Okay. Cause medieval madness has a much more of a plot line. You're following. You have to like rescue the princess from the dragon type things. So you're, you're progressing towards a goal. Whereas iron force is basically just, you know, protect your little bird and, and shoot everything else that moves type thing. Exactly. And then this, this is a rarity, uh, Xenon, which actually was our game on challenge of the week recently. And we were hoping to interview Michael Duncan, but he's kind of disappeared. Um, after we'd already gotten everything set up. So I'm hoping he's okay and nothing physically has happened to him because he hasn't responded to emails from Nick or I now in close to a month, I think. Um, but this is actually, I think, one of the rare ones that was not part of your lives within 30 minutes of Dave Dye's circle <laughs> to, to get published. And this is actually from Australia. So I was wondering, how, how, how do you remember from your side of things, like how did that connection happen? And also the, uh, the original version of Xenon that he sold in Australia, I think it was Computer Hut, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that was selling yeah. it, but there was originally a Cocoa One and Two version. And Michael, from our private talks about set, when setting up the interview, had mentioned that he'd written it originally for the Cocoa One and Two only, and he got requested, and he couldn't remember if it was from you or if it was from the uh, Australian company. That since the Cocoa Three was out, you should make a Cocoa Three version as well. And uh, you never sold, as far as I know, the Cocoa One and Two version, though it does say on the ad here on the left, sixty-four Cocoa One and Two and joystick required tapered disc. But on the right, under the screenshot, it says 128K Coco 3 joystick and distract required, which sounds like two different games. I was just wondering, maybe that 64K Coco thing was just kind of left over from ad copy and you know, forgot to change the line or something like that. Yeah, I, I can't recall, but that's probably what happened. Um, like we discussed earlier with Glenn, this is one of the games that was submitted that uh, that I thought was was high enough quality for us to uh, to to include in our portfolio. And um, as far as I know, we only had um the 
color computer three version, but we may have ended up having both. I, I don't recall. Um, but it was, it was one that came in, it was sort of right towards the, uh, the end of our run there. So, but it was one of the ones that was, was polished enough that, uh, we, we felt we could uh, release it. Yeah. And it's got, I mean, it's using a four color mode to try to speed up and not as much memory around for a scroller. And, and obviously he hadn't learned stack blasting X. That's one of the things I patched, but it, it definitely has a polished look to the graphics. He's got a lot of detailed graphics and it changes as you go between the world. So it's 20 or so different alien ship types and stuff like that. And you get constantly changing terrain. So it does have that polish. It looks really well. It's well presented. The whole layout of the screen is quite nice too. So I can see why you would have done it. But uh, yeah, we've never found the Cocoa 1 and 2 version of it, though Michael has mentioned, yeah, that's what he wrote for originally. So I'm guessing you probably didn't get that version or maybe you weren't, you were trying to get more into the Cocoa 3 market at that point. I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously at that point, Cocoa 3 was the was the marketplace to be in, right? That's what everybody was looking for. And, uh, you know, we were, we were obviously focused uh, on the uh, the better quality, the, the extra speed that you, you could get out of the game. So that was sort of where our focus was at that point. And we weren't really developing anything for the, uh, the Cocoa 1 and 2 at that point. Yeah, which makes me have my next question, because, I mean, you caught the Cocoa 1 and 2 after the peak, which was probably 83-ish. Um, but you still did quite well on it. Uh, the Cocoa 3, you know, fresh new thing. And you were one of the ones that came in, you know, within the first year, bringing out your first Cocoa 3 only titles. And of course, your the career with the Cocoa 3 got cut short because of what we're going to be discussing pretty quickly here. But how are the sales of Cocoa 3 stuff versus the, what you'd experience with the Cocoa 1 and 2 stuff, catching it on the more on the tail end of the Cocoa 1 2 era? Uh they were they were just as good. I think Gauntlet, Gauntlet Two was probably one of our best selling games ever. Um, I know it probably had more pre orders than anything we'd ever had uh, on pre order uh, in the past. Uh, so yeah, everything uh, you know, it, it everything sold really well uh, from from my recollection. Okay, that's cool. And I think that covers here. Oh, the yeah, the one little snit or tidbit here I wanted to uh, to mention here. The also available where you mentioned some of the older games that you didn't have room to advertise them all this is where gold runner 2 finally appears for the first time which is a coca one and two game now i wanted to ask you a bit about this because uh, the 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 copy we have on the archive uh this has a big tomix software splash screen but it was never sold through tomix but you've mentioned that it wasn't because it's basically gold runner with 34 different levels in fact the last one spells diecom which i thought was cute um but I don't recall seeing it advertised even under the also available on anything earlier than this issue of Rainbow in September of 88. So was that something you had made and just kind of forgot about and then thought, ah, we might as well throw it out there? Or was it something that you designed at this point just to see if you could get a little bit more of whatever was left of the Cocoa 1-2 market? Yeah, I think we we had a bunch of uh, levels uh, floating around and, and we sort of played around. So we just we just knocked up a, a bunch of, of levels. I think we had had... We probably had inquiries about buying it, um, and uh, it just made more sense to to create a new one and, and throw a bunch of new levels in it. And I know we took it down, and we probably promoted it more heavily when we were at the computer shows than, uh, than, the than we yeah. did in the magazine. So, and and we, it may have been that it was it was coming uh, at some point to to our ads, but uh, uh, as the the story goes, that didn't happen. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, one other thing on Gauntlet 2 before we go on, or Gauntlet 2. Um, I, there's a, an editor, a, an editor for the tiles and an editor for the maps on the Color Computer Archive. I don't 
know if it was anything to do with what the, you guys had used internally or somebody come up with that after the fact. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. And unfortunately, that's one thing I forgot to grab screenshots and stuff of. We have shown so, it on the show before, but it would have been something that someone else uh, did. Uh, I would, I don't recall ever having released my editor that I use. So uh, I would uh, be pretty certain that someone else uh, built one. It would have been if you had, uh, you know, you know, reasonable skills. It wouldn't have been that difficult to to decompile the uh, uh, the levels and, and create an editor for them. Okay. Okay, so this year is September of 1988, <clears throat> and we've heard a bit of the story from Glenn, uh, what happened by the time the December 1988 issue came out. So I'm going to show, first of all, the cover so people know which rainbow this is referring to. Then I'm going to jump to the advertiser's index at the end, which tells you what page everybody is doing their advertisements on. And then we'll follow that to the DICOM page. But if you and Glenn want to kind of discuss the story, you know, from both your perspectives now of exactly what happened and, and what the result was. So this would have been at the time where, where Glenn and I were, you know, fairly good friends. We were, we were talking on probably a fairly regular basis about uh, a variety of things. And I think I'd got, I don't know if I'd gotten him a copy of the assembler at this point, or if it was shortly thereafter. Um, and I think uh, we had, had we, dropped one of our covers and and glenn had picked it up um and for whatever reason uh glenn decided to to tell me how much he was paying for his cover um and <laughs> it was it was enough less than i was paying for each of my covers when i had both um that uh i i was a little bit irked with uh with uh, the rainbow magazine for, for. So uh, let me, let me just jump in a little bit. Cause it's a little bit different than that. Um, so this was at a rainbow fest, I believe when I actually met with Lonnie and he, I think one of the, I think you dropped a cover um, and the, the inside front became, or one of them became available. And uh, he specifically wanted to go after those Canadians and so he offered it to me at a price that was sort of in my package um, that I had sort of inherited from Prickly Pear. So it was significantly less. Um, and I had not yet decided that I wanted to do that. I had not yet put together an ad, not yet had it. And, and that's when we talked. And I didn't realize that when he wanted to take down the Canadians that he was talking about you. Um, I, I'm not sure that I would have changed anything because I certainly was way more interested in talking to you about it than him. Um, but I, I sort of inadvertently stepped into the, into that situation. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, for whatever reason, we, we, we found that information out and, and like, I, I have no animosity towards Glenn, never have, never will. Um, it, it just, it came to my attention that, you know, uh, someone was getting a better deal and, and I had been with the rainbow magazine for quite a while. We'd had both covers. Um, and usually when you're, you know, you're getting more advertising space, you get a better price. And, and our price when we had one cover went down when we got the two covers and, and sort of standard business fare. Um, and, and we sort of contacted, uh, uh, Lonnie and, and sort of complained a little bit about that. And, uh, Lo and behold, uh, the next month, uh, 
we weren't advertising anymore. Um, and it, it kind of, because it was all done really, really last minute on, on Rainbow's part, and they didn't notify us of anything because we were still, uh, you know, under contract with them. But, uh, um, you know, all of a sudden our ad was gone and it, it kind of looked like we had run this this Christmas you know, ad or something like that. And, and, you know, that was sort of it. They, they kind of killed our contract and, and, you know, we were sort of getting close to the, you know, the end of the cycle with, with the color computer and, you know, it, it just didn't seem uh, worth the fight to, uh, to have to uh, to deal with Rainbow and and being that they were like basically the only avenue, um, you know they could kind of do whatever they wanted and and you you weren't ever going to win that battle, uh, so we just took it as a um, uh, a uh, an opportunity to to move on from the color computer and and go in a different direction. Yeah, I, yeah. I think he just I think Lonnie just didn't realize that Dave and I spoke. And he just assumed that, you know, that it wasn't going to go anywhere if if he gave me those numbers. Nor did I have any idea that the numbers he was giving me were anything different than what Dave got. Because I thought, you know, why would he not be getting this deal as well? Because he's sort of, you know, big fish in this pond. Because I'm I'm assuming you you were in the same boat as me. Like you contacted Rainbow and they sent you out their their list of prices for ads, and you just assumed everybody was was basically working off the same. Um, template of, of advertising to a certain degree. No, no, absolutely not. I knew there was favoritism going on. Um, and one of the reasons I was able to do my company, to make my company, was because um, I got the advertising rate that Prickly Pear had, because our relationship made that happen. And so everything, and when you got that thing, it was locked in. But I assumed that you had the same sort of deal. I didn't realize that he was overcharging you so much more than, than what I was paying. So that was my mistake. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just figured, you know, you were sort of in that club and I guess you weren't. Um, yeah. And no, I was, I was just, when we, we contacted them back in, you know, you know, 85 or whatever it is, when we started, they sent us out their, their standard advertising sheet. And uh, you know, I, I know at a certain point, I know, uh, when we had the multiple covers, we had negotiated a, a better price than was listed on there because we were getting two covers and, and, you know, it just, you know, everything seemed, you know, pretty above board business wise. I, I didn't think anything of it. I just, just, you know, you know, anything I had done it and, you know, I was still you mm-hmm. know fa- fairly fresh, uh, to being in business and, and, you know, never really thought that, you know, uh, some of this was going on and, um, I had no, I had no idea that that they had any animosity towards me being a Canadian company. I have no idea <laughs> where that came from. I don't think. I, see, that's the question that I always had that I never really understood. Was it against your company? Was it against you? I don't think it was against you being Canadian. I just think he knew. He thought that I would know what he meant without him actually saying your name. Yeah, and and like again. I have no idea why he wouldn't have liked me or my company or that we were Canadian. I, there was like, at the end of the day, we had very little interaction with him. Um, you know, I think the most, you know, 
push we ever had was when we were trying to book a corner booth at the show because you got more visibility space there. You paid for a second table, but you got two tables instead of one facing the public and it allowed us to show a lot more stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it wasn't like we were, you know, making demands on, on them or anything. So, um, yeah, like it was just sort of came out of the blue that, you know, all that happened. And then when they just dropped us for no reason, it, it obviously they wanted to get rid of us for some reason, um, because apparently our ad money wasn't good enough for them or something. I, I really don't know. Well, I yeah, know that so, so, go ahead. after all that happened, um, I saw some blowback too, because they tried to, to take my deal away. I think he was pissed at me for having spoken to Dave and giving him that information. Um, but I think we were now sort of in the decline of the Coco and they needed people to take that space. So after telling him, you know, he gave me another deal that was much worse than the first one that he gave me. And I said, no, I, I'm not going to take that. I can't afford it and I won't do it. And so eventually they came back to me with the original deal. And that's why I ended up in that place. Yeah, and it was such a sudden thing, like like just showing this December rainbow. The fact that they still had DICOM inside front cover listed in the adver- you know the advertisers index, and then they pulled this. So one thing I want to ask you, because from what you said, Dave, you were still you still had the contract for however long you had set up the ads for, and they cut it off on their end. So did you get money back for the part where they didn't fulfill their part of the contract, or did they just stip you for that too? Uh, well, we were paying monthly, so we hadn't paid for for this ad, so and and none of the the subsequent ads. So it didn't. There was no money out of pocket for us. Um, it, you know, it just it just basically ended. Um, so, you know, from that standpoint, no harm, no foul. Um, you know, just you know, just just, just bad stupid. business. Yeah, just bad <laughs> business. At the end of the day, to uh, to do that to one of your your paying customers, like you know, if we'd if we'd been running ads for six months and we came in and made some crazy demands, I could see them cutting you off. But you know, we'd been nothing but a good partner for them. We'd been to you know all the Rainbow Fest. Maybe it was pissed off that I went to 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 Steve's Coco Fest or something like that, or <laughs> who knows? Like I like it just it just came out of nowhere um, that they, they cut us off. Like they could have just said, well, you know what, we can offer prices to people, whatever we want. Like, and you know, that's, you know, that's the route I go down Um, or, you know, you could, they could have just gone, well, you know, you know, Glenn's just, blowing smoke up your ass he's he's just being a dick and and then, then you call up glenn and go hey glenn stop talking about your rates if you if you like your rates just shut up and tell people you're paying full price like <laughs> like you know that's 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 the route you go down from a business standpoint you don't sure. just you don't just chop a guy for for no reason uh, no especially as you mentioned before this was this was when the cocoa was starting to decline at this point like sales from rainbow were shrinking they were losing advertisers ready from companies that were just retiring from the cocoa i don't know if it had anything to do with rates specifically or not or just the market shrinkage but you guys were still going strong you just brought out some brand new products just literally three months before so why would you cut your nose to spite your face here as far as getting advertising review i don't understand that at all and I know Bill Noble and I, being Canadians, I mean, we we talked to Lonnie a few times at the shows too, and he actually wanted us to write an article on our work Coco system, and he sounded pretty enthused by it. So I don't know if it was, you know, animosity to Canada or Canadians in general. I think he, as as Glenn said, I I, I speculate the same thing that he was referring to that you know Canadian company because you know you were the Canadian company that was advertising in Rainbow. 
Yeah, it could be. I don't. Again, I I have no clue. It it, it really doesn't make any sense to me. Um, we just sort of use that as our, uh, you know, a way of of getting out of the marketplace without having to, uh, to make that uh, decision ourselves. And you know, we we were still selling. You know, for for you know six months after that, we we still had residual orders coming in. So, um, and and then you know the market was you know sort of on on a decline. So we just utilized that to. You know, I took uh, some time off that after that. Well, actually, not that much time because I ended up writing something for Glenn. Um, and then after that, uh, you know, took a little bit of a break and then 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 hopped into the Atari Lynx stuff. So, yeah. And speaking of writing something for Glenn, so that was one thing I wanted to ask you. So, we, like, Glenn finally revealed which something that we a few of us had suspected for years, type thing, but there's never been anything official um, that you were the person behind Phantom Software doing Sinistar. Yeah, actually, and, and, and I I don't know if if Glenn approached me, if I approached him, if it was just something we we came up up with when we were chatting for whatever reason. Uh, I don't even remember the story behind why we we did it, um, but but I ended up writing you know one more game for for the uh, the Coco Three, um, and, and Glenn uh, uh, marketed it, and uh, all was good. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, like, had you started this before this, like before, you know, Rainbow shut you down or was it something that came totally afterwards? I, I don't recall having started it. Yeah, it was it was completely new. And I remember I remember the conversation. I don't remember who broached it, but I do remember you saying, you know, if I'm going to do anything, it's going to be 512K because I just got no patience for anything else. And at that point, that was sort of a big leap. So, you know, I was like, OK, I, I think we can make that work you know, go ahead and make a 512k game. We'll hope that there's a market for it. But if you'll notice, um, you know, you, you mentioned that I occasionally um, helped out. There were at least two things in this game that I did. Do you know what they are? Do you remember, Dave? Uh, you did the voice for Sinistar. Right. I, and I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not. I think that I drew Sinistar. You probably did. I, I know the asteroids. I had digitized. Yeah, yeah. Something I myself. Taking pictures of rocks. Yes, I, <laughs> I, I, I rotated a rock and digitized it and and edited it in. But you're probably right. You you probably did do Sinistar. I think I I think I remember drawing that thing. And I'd assume you would digitize the sound effects from the arcade too, because the you know the shots and picking up the mines and stuff is extremely close to the arcade game. Uh, I. Or did you just kind of come up with similar? Glenn may have done the sound effects. Do you remember? I, 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 I remember I did the voice. I did the yeah. voice, but I don't remember if I did the sound effects or not. You may have. I didn't digitize them because when I did Robotron and Joust, I actually had the Robotron and Joust arcade machines in my office. So I was able to hook directly up to them and, and digitize them. So I, I didn't have a Sinistar machine. So I, I wouldn't have digitized those. I wouldn't be surprised if Glenn did those as well. Um, that that's a distinct possibility. Yeah, I, I can't pull. And, it, and, I, and I forgot about the five twelve k thing. That may have been one of the reasons we 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 decided to try it is you, to see if we could do only 512K. do it. Yeah, you would only do it if it was five twelve k. I remember that. I think it's because it just needed to be because yeah. of the scrolling. Well, you said it was just going to be too hard. Yeah, <laughs> you just didn't want to do it. Didn't want to you know the pain of having to deal with it. 
yeah, wanted- there was probably yeah, there was definitely something, some reason why I, I wanted to do the the five twelve k or or it demanded it because mm-hmm. I've I've worked on a variety of things at different times where you just go, you know, I I, I can't do this without the memory, so I'm either not going to do it or I've got to roll a dice and. And, and that was probably part of the reason why, you know, all the early games uh, under DICOM went to 64K only. It was just like, yeah, I could do them the other way. But really, is there any reason to not just go that extra mile now? Yeah. Um, and and like I was telling, uh, you know, Curtis uh, you know, a few weeks back, when I ended up getting into the, the, the early downloadables in the early 2000s, it was a total throwback to, to developing for this because the original cell phones, the Java-based ones, were, were like 32, 64, 128K of RAM, limited, you know, two colors, four colors, eight colors, um, really, really limited devices. And it all my history in developing for, for the color computer, it sort of just lent itself to the platform where everybody else is going, well, I need, I need 512K for my splash screens. It's like, well, no, you don't. <laughs> but they, they were using up all of their memory to have the 12 splash screens to cover the 14 companies that were involved in the development where we just like threw some text up there and, and wrote like a really cool game. And, and it, it sort of worked really, really well for us. Yeah, I, I suspect part of the reason for 512K too is like that's something that modern game developers or even some in the later Cocoa 3 market, including Contras that uh, uh, Jeff Steidel and uh, uh, what's the other guy's name? Dave Ma- uh, Doug Mastin mm-hmm. uh, did for Glenn and then also stuff like, you know, Brian O'Neill's pack dude, 3D Monster Maze and stuff is that you either needed it for all the extra graphics you had or quite more probably for digitized sound effects because this is at the point where everybody was starting to learn how FIRQ sound effects could work really well, but they take a lot of RAM. And and Nick Morantes, I mean, you know, I don't think he's made a 128K game since, I don't remember when, probably the 1990s or something. Like, everything's 512K because you need the resources for the sound effects, or you got to, like, you know, put them at really crappy frequency rates, and they sound like crap, so... I I, I'm pretty sure Citastar is the game that showed me that I could release 512K games, and that's what led to Contras. Yeah, actually, that was my next question because this was the first 512K game you ever released too. And I think one of the very first 512K required games, period. And I was just wondering, how did that sell compared to the 128s? Like, was there a big difference in the market? Or, um, I think the fact that it was new and novel actually worked towards it. Uh, it helped it. Enough people had 512K game or a 512K that they bought it because they wanted something that actually used it. Um, so it definitely did as well as the other titles that I was selling. Okay. Gee, I don't remember that. I never got any royalty checks from you from did. Got <laughs> all of them. I got this report that said zero copies sold, no royalties. This <laughs> didn't, didn't he send you I a Christmas had ad? Negative copies sold at some point. Yeah, I got a Christmas card. <laughs> yeah, it, it said compliments, Rainbow, and uh, yeah, it sees his <laughs> greetings from him. Yeah. It looked a lot like that ad did. He's looking just. <laughs> Took him out of one of his magazines, folded it in half, sent it to me. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Actually, Dave. I think he, he Xeroxed it and he gave you a cheap black and white copy, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Dave, how long were you selling uh, Cocoa Games after the whole ad fiasco? Uh, we probably had residuals for probably close to six months. Actually, uh, yeah, just uh, an aside, um, I sold his games inside Rainbow after that. I actually had to get a, you know, go to directly and ask him, you know, can I do that? Can I advertise uh, the DICOM products? And you're like, uh, really? 
I guess we can't tell you no. So, so that was fun for a while. <laughs> An extra little finger in the eye. <laughs> anyway, thank, thanks, Dave, for coming back to do that one because it's actually one of my favorites. And I know it's one that Stevie really likes. Unfortunately, Stevie couldn't make it. He's actually quite sick at the moment here. So he's, he wasn't able to make the show today. But um, it's also one of the first ones, like I said, that uses really good digitized sound effects that sound close to the arcade game. And and then you know, use the the five twelve k properly as you mentioned. Contras is another standout uh, pack two three D monster. Now we've got pretty well every new game for the code three D requires five twelve. I'm still waiting for the first one and two meg games now. Hey, give, give me a uh, a C compiler and I can cross compile a ton of stuff for you. Oh yeah, no, we've got cross assemblers, cross compilers, all kinds of stuff now. So yeah, well, that's 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 sort of the. The, the catch-22 nowadays is it's become so easy to write code and you get so lazy because there's so much memory available to you that you just cut and paste big, huge chunks of code and you just don't care anymore. Like everything <laughs> runs so fast and 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 you want yeah lots. memory's not a requirement yeah just yeah they'll have 32 gig don't worry about it yeah you know. oh yeah it's 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 just irrelevant nowadays that uh like you, you don't even you don't even think about anything like that anymore code is just big and like you develop with the unity engine and before you even push a button you've already got you know what five meg for for just the the core engine and then you start writing a game on top of that it's just like um you just stop caring at a certain point yeah even mobiles that way now i mean when you started mobile was like revisiting the 8-bit days like you said for the modern ram and stuff and now then you know a phone has four eight gig 16 gig of, of raw ram and then your storage which is ram based is like way past that so it's just insane uh, it's, it's yeah it's just totally insane and that that started uh just after i i, I left capcom and and the the iPhone came out and and uh, you know the App Store and the Google Play Store became the mainstream uh, and then everything just the, the devices just exploded and and uh, there, there's just no limits anymore. Yeah. No, I do have one question. Uh, the last one I have actually for the Coco step, and then we'll get on to your career past that point. Um, the Phantom Software name and the Phantom Software logo and that cool effect where the face splits apart and spreads out to spell Phantom Software. Where, where did you come up with that? Or did Glenn have any you know say in that? Or how did that come about? Uh, I, I just wanted to come up with something that uh, you know was was a, a bit removed from uh, from DICOM and and that's sort of what I, I came up with. Um, and just I, I don't think Glenn had a any input in that? I, I think it was just something I came up with and, and just threw together to to, to do it. My, my only recollection is that I thought it had something to do with you wanting to conceal your identity. That was the the whole mask thing. Yeah, but I could be wrong. That's probably a little too deep for me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess one other question I just thought of, I'll add to. Um, some authors, especially like, you know, the uh, Warren Robinette's famous for doing adventure because he wasn't allowed to have credits. And of course, he wanted to kind of hide the things so that, you know, Lonnie wouldn't go yank Sundog ads on uh, on Glenn. But did you get did you put any hidden clues in there that some of us have just never found that might have hinted the fact that you were the one that did it? Uh, no, the only thing is if you were to really dig into the code, you you probably would have seen my style if you if you could, you know, pull it all up and, and see it would have there'd have been, you know, snippets of code that I had used before um, because I, I, I tend to, you know, use 
sort of a, a core block of routines for for anything I write just to, to save a lot of time. Okay. But no, okay, no, no, so hidden, no, no hidden messages or anything like that. So at least, at least none that I've admitted to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do know there's a few Coco people that did tend to put in a lot of hidden messages. Steve Burke snuck a few in in some of his stuff. Um, Dave Edson of Aardvark was famous for putting some in almost every game he ever made. But I wasn't sure. Like that was a bit of an opportunity to do it, you know, because you were hiding your identity up front. And so I was kind of curious. Okay, so that basically covers the Coco stuff. So um, another break. Yeah, I think another break, and then we'll get into your career after that. Okay. Here we go. Which one am I doing now? That one. Hi, Retro Tech Heads. Data Soup here. You're watching Coco Talk, the world's leading live talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and proudly Patreon-sponsored by RetroTechTime.com. Hey guys, it's Stevie Stroh, and if you've been watching Coco Talk for a while, hopefully you understand that everyone is welcome to join this show. You don't need an impressive resume to get on. You just need to enjoy the Coco and be willing to talk about it. There is no wrong way to Coco. There is no wrong way to be a fan of the Coco. There's no wrong way to be on Coco Talk. You just have to want to talk Coco. So if you would like to join us, then reach out to us on our Discord server, which is discord.cocotalk.live, or send an email to cocotalk at cocotalk.live, and let's get you on the show, and let's talk about the Coco. Tired of switching your joystick between the left and right port? Want to change between different controllers? Well, Joey has got you covered. The Joey Controller Switch. Take control of your controllers with the flip of two switches. Order today at cocoman.biz. It's a Radio Shack Merry Christmas. This year, I needed to give a real family pleaser. Honey, please help me with this budget. How about a new game, Dad? Please. And I found it. Radio Shack's Color Computer 2. On sale for just $99.95. It entertains, educates, manages. It's expandable and affordable. Now that really pleases me. The Color Computer 2. Sale price for Christmas. Only at Radio Shack. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tim. I'm playing dagger like that idiot from the book. <laughs> You're watching Coco Talk. And we're back. Okay, so uh, Glenn has notified us that he's going to have to leave fairly soon here. So I did want to pose a question to both him and David before they leave, or before he leaves. Um, and this is back on the Coco stuff. Um, so basically, uh, the, the two questions I want to ask both of you, and this is covering Dave's entire career in the Coco side of things. Um, what is each of yours personal favorite of Dave Dye's games? 
I'll let Glenn go first. I actually, I just sat down and I, so the question is, what is my favorite Dave Dice game or? Yeah. Um, or Dicom for that matter. I mean, I, so uh, Sinistar has a, you know, a place in my heart. Obviously I, I can't not say that. Um, I'd say the game that I spent the most time with from Dicom was probably Gauntlet 2. Okay. Uh, let's see. My favorite game. The game I probably played the most was probably Car Action. Um, it's uh, of the stuff that I did all on my own because Gauntlet was was a lot. Gauntlet Two was a lot of Roland. Um, uh, played a lot of Bouncing Boulders as well. I think Car Action was probably for my first commercial game one of the best pieces of code that i wrote um everything else is you know you know is derivative of that in in some way um it's one of the ones i'm most proud of because it was one of the most polished things i did and it was probably the first commercial one um that i wrote um i like i said once i'm done i just don't play any of my stuff anymore um, it, it, it's just the nature of the beast because I've played so much of it and I, I loved all of them when I started. I mean, I, you know, um, yeah, Marble Maze, maybe because it was one of my favorite arcade games at the time. Um, Gauntlet, I had played so much in the arcade and, and having done two of them, uh, probably didn't put a whole lot of time into it. And it gets games like that are really mind numbing because you spend a lot of time building the levels. And building lots of levels just becomes tedious. Gates would have been the same way, building all those maps and all the worlds. It's like, uh, you, just, you just get tired of it after a while. Something where, you know, you can just play a lot of it without having to, to do a lot of extraneous work um, is uh, a lot more fun at the end of the day. Okay. And then one quick question for Dave, and then I'll let Glenn say his goodbyes here. Uh what was the best-selling game? Like you mentioned, Gallant Two was one of them. Was that the best-selling game? Do you think you ever did? Or ah, uh, hard to say. Um, it probably was. Um, looking back, because because we did do because uh, it was delayed coming out, and we did have a lot of back orders for it, pre-orders for it. So I would probably say that was the best-selling game. Okay. And Glenn, uh, you said you have to go here, so I'll let you say your uh, goodbye. Yeah, I, I I actually stayed longer than I was expecting to, but it was so much fun. I couldn't possibly tear myself away, but I, I have to go now. Dave, um, it is, it's uh, wonderful to talk with you again. We should keep in touch more. Um, we should uh, reach out. I don't even know if I have your contact information anymore, so send me an email or something. Uh, you yeah, definitely. I'll uh, uh, I've, I'll get your uh, contact information from from Curtis uh, if I don't have it in my my thing, and uh, I'll drop you an email, and we'll uh, we'll definitely chat again soon. Or you could go to mysterium.blog. Aimless <laughs> <laughs> uh, plug. Yeah, and order can, some uh, books. <laughs> well, you could. I didn't say you did order any books. Jesus, the last but, time I last time you wrote <laughs> games, I got sent free copies. Man, he's gonna make me buy <laughs> books from him. Actually, shipping to Canada is rough. 
Uh, you should. So if you want oh, to ship it to Canada, it's cheap. Good oh, Lord. no, not anymore. Not in the last <laughs> oh. few years. It's, it's rough. Anyway. Um, yeah. Mysterium.blog. You can actually send me an email from there. I mean, I'm Glenn Dahlgren at gmail.com, but that's not nearly as interesting. Um, so <laughs> thank you everybody for having me on again. It's always a blast. Um, this has been great. This is, you know, walking down memory lane like this. Uh, and, uh, and Dave and I had definitely some, some interesting experiences together. A lot we didn't even cover. So maybe if we do this again, part two, got to say something. Part, part two, absolutely, absolutely for sure. Actually, actually, before you leave, Glenn, one one thing I grant was he was out walking his dog or CDP. This is the original prompt I gave him, but uh, he was wondering if either you or Dave at some point would be interested in being a speaker at one of our cocoa fests. Um, if I got there, I would absolutely be interested. But um, you know, figuring that out is not something that I would uh, take for granted. Um, so I'll never say no. Um, but I'm, but making that happen might be difficult. Oh, it's in April. So plenty of time to plan. Yeah. And, and I, we might I, be I able to contribute something to help get one of you guys down there. If you are, if you are interested, I mean, I don't want to like force it on you or anything, but yeah, no, just, uh, you know, like, uh, you keep me, keep me posted and I'll, I'll see what I can, uh, do and schedule in. All we have okay. to do is promise Dave that there'll be photon. And uh, he'll be there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll set up a big Christmas booth for him. You know, just on. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> big Christmas tree. I'll be happy. <laughs> thanks again, Glenn. Uh, thanks, thanks for coming and co-interviewing. Uh, usually, when we do these dual interviews, of people have known each other back in the day. You guys have questions that you guys are talking about experiences that none of us know about, so we never know to even ask. And it, it's really helpful having you on. And I would love to have Insider a part two of the two of you just to kind of go through development tricks or something like that, or talk about the assembler or whatever else. So. Sure, definitely. Awesome. Well, thanks again for having me and, and wonderful to, to talk to you, Dave. Yep. yep. And you have a book signing now? Great. Is that why you're heading out? Um, to, no, I don't have one today. Actually, I need to get lunch. I, I haven't eaten anything okay. today. And so I'm, that's why I'm running. Uh, I do have a book signing coming up um, uh, next weekend at a local bookstore, a railroad bookstore, and then one after the weekend after that, reasonable books. Um, anyone that's in the Bay Area, you know, come see me. That would be absolutely fantastic. That, that's I why I gave you the opportunity to plug it because I knew they were coming up. You originally <laughs> thought there was going to be one today, which is why you were originally not going to be able to stay too long. But um, no, no, it's the first one's next week. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Yep, bye bye. Thanks, again, Glenn. thanks, Glenn. Okay. Now that we got rid of the riffraff, now I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay, so after DICOM, like you said, you you sold DICOM games even for six months after Rainbow kind of booted you out there. So that would have been, you know, mid-89 by that point. So your next uh, opportunity after that, besides for you doing Sinistar for Sundog, is you started a company called Shadowsoft. So I just wanted to ask you, like, how did that get started? Uh, how did you come up with the name? How did you come up? Because you actually did some official arcade ports for the Atari Lynx under that. How did that whole thing come about? Yeah, like so. Uh, I don't know how I came up with the name. I don't remember that. Um, probably just a brainstorming session with a bunch of people. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, I had uh, seen stuff about uh, about this new Atari system coming out, the Atari Lynx, and that they were uh, going to be uh, making it uh, accessible to um, third-party developers. Um, and I had been down at uh, one of the CES uh, shows and, and met with them and uh, was sort of on their list for when uh, the dev kits came available. 
Um, and when they did become available, I was thinking about, uh, you know, what games uh, might be fun to do. And, you know, two of the games that uh, I had played in my, my past were Robotron and Joust. Um, contacted Williams and uh, uh, was fortunate enough to be put in touch with one of the most professional people uh, I have ever dealt with in in my 40 years of business, and that was Roger Sharp. Um, <clears throat> he was he, he handled their licensing, but he was also uh, his his real love was uh, was pinball. And, uh, but, uh, um, he managed, uh, sort of the, the licensing for stuff like that and was, was just super fantastic to deal with and sort of ironed out the, the details of, of, uh, the, the license for them because it's both of these titles were jointly owned by, by Williams and Atari at the time. So he ironed out all those details. Um, you know, we, we got the rights and, uh, um, ended up uh, developing both of them for the Atari Lynx. And, and what, what order did those come out in? Was it Joust first or Robotron? Uh, Robotron first, and then Joust uh, this the year later, I think. And and was there any talk with Shadowsoft about possibly putting these some other console? I'm trying to remember. I think did Atari still have the Falcon and stuff out at the time, or anything like that, or. Uh, they had, uh, no, they were uh, pushing the, the Jaguar for their, their home console and the Lynx for their portable system. Um, and so partway through, Robotron uh, got produced and went into the stores and everything was great. Um, partway through the production of Joust, uh, is when Atari, in their infinite wisdom, decided that uh, they... So the standard practice was uh, at the stores, you'd, you'd order in X, num- X amount of product. If it didn't sell, you could basically ship it back and get other product for another system, another game, whatever. And Atari decided that they were going to cancel that policy and in the process, they lost uh, Toys R Us and Child World, as, who were their biggest distributors of Lynx software. And they basically both said, well, if you're not going to um, keep that policy in place, then we're going to drop all your products. And that was the beginning of the end of the, the Jaguar and the Atari Lynx. Ouch! <laughs> yeah, kind of sucked because yeah. uh, it was it was going really well. We were gonna we would have had other products that we would have developed, and and the market it was the system was so much fun to develop for, um, and uh, I, I really loved it. But it, it just overnight it just went kaboom. And uh, I remember uh, talking to uh, my one of my contacts at Atari, and he was like saying, "Yep, all the rats are jumping ship." And so we ended up getting saddled with a, uh, a whole lot of Joe's cartridges that uh, ended up in a warehouse somewhere that we could never sell. You probably could do it now. <laughs> Retro's coming back. Yeah, Retro's coming back. <laughs> I, I can't remember, like maybe I missed it when I was looking at my notes while you were talking at the beginning here, but did you explain how you came up with the names Shadowsoft? Uh, I don't recall how we came up with it. Um, we just probably 
usually there's a group of us that, that sit around and we just brainstorm and throw out ideas. And that's probably just the one that stuck at the time. And how many people were involved with Shadowsoft then directly with you? Uh, it was it was mostly just uh, me. Uh, there was a, a couple people who who did some some side work. Um, uh, another buddy of mine ended up doing uh, the music for Robotron. Um, but again, pretty small projects. Um, uh, I, I did pretty much all of Robotron myself, and then uh, Roland did all the coding on Joust, and I did all the artwork and sound effects for it. And uh, and that was. Uh, that was pretty much it for that. Again, fairly small projects in the in the grander scheme of things, since we were dealing with arcade conversions that we were pretty familiar with, and we had at least with Joast, we had the full source code, and and we had the uh, you know a good contact with Eugene Jarvis and Roger Sharp. At pretty Williams, much all of so they were myself able and to and provide us with did all the coding uh, on Joast, and I did all the artwork and sound okay. effects for it. Now, how long did Shadowsoft uh, end up lasting? That been? was. Uh, that was pretty like much a couple it. Years, Again, probably a couple years. projects in the in the okay. grander scheme of things. And then after that, I believe you went to Cosmic Infinity, right? Like that's we were pretty familiar Cosmic with, Infinity. and we had at least uh, the Joe's yeah, yeah, source code. Uh, I, I took and a little bit of break. The, I dabbled in, uh, in some, you know, some web development with Eugene Jarvis and Roger Shava. I did all of the work myself. I also did did all the coding on Joe's. I did all the artwork and sound effects for it. Now, how long did Shadowsoft end up lasting? That was like a couple Again, probably a couple years. Projects to in the, in the okay. grander scheme, of and then after so that, I, I believe you went to Cosmic Infinity, right? Like uh, that's a couple of years with it. One or two games, at least. Uh, like, uh, yeah, yeah, we had source code. Uh, the game I, I took a little bit of break. I, I dabbled uh, in system uh, tiger so development. Electronics, uh, it was a, a very not well known um, uh, portable game system, um, and I ended up doing a version of an official version of Centipede for that. Um, and then after that, I did um, triple play 2K3 or 2K1 or 2K0, I can't remember, 2K1, I think, uh, for uh, the color Game Boy for THQ. Um, and that uh, the person I was doing that for had been contacted by or was in somehow in contact with TELUS Mobility here in Canada, and they were looking for people to develop for this new mobile platform, and he didn't want to sign a non-disclosure with them. Um, and uh, I ended up, um, after the, the triple play thing was done, ended up sort of breaking from working on that and i ended up contacting talus and bell and rogers and and that's how we sort of got into developing for the uh the mobile space okay is there a story behind the name cosmic infinity or uh cosmic infinity was the name that we were going to use so back in my early coco days uh roland and i had discussed actually building our own photon um, and we had gotten fairly far down uh, the path with that and cosmic infinity was going to be the name we were going to uh, use for that um, but nothing uh, we never sort of finished that out and when i was trying to come up with a new name for uh the mobile company uh that's sort of where i landed and we we sort of had the name and some stuff available so we said okay let's just use that 
Okay. Yeah, because my question was like you you've you've had multiple companies over the years, but you've always been doing game development. So I was wondering if there's a reason that you create a new name each time you, you switched over to a different platform, et cetera, rather than just keep the old name and you know, Shadowsoft is now doing mobile games or something like that. Yeah, so to a certain degree, you we we change names just to um, separate ourselves from any of the the baggage that may or may not come along with that. Once I got into the Atari Lynx, um, I didn't want to be associated with all of the the arcade clones I'd done because once you get into a much more mainstream marketplace, uh, they're a little bit uh, more finicky about. Uh, stuff like that, copyright infringements and stuff like that. The color computer market being what it was, you could get away with an awful lot. Um, but once you got into the the Atari links and more mainstream stuff, um, you you just couldn't do that. And I just wanted to make sure that I was separated enough from from the past stuff that I'd done that that wouldn't come back to bite me in the in the butt. So okay. So I've got a list that I think you supplied me with here with some of the games that Cosmic Infinity did. So there was Shade in 2004. Now there was a later Shade Two published in two thousand eight. Were you involved with that at all, or uh, it was never officially published? Oh, okay. that was that was a product that was in development, but uh, kind of got uh, got kiboshed by by Capcom and the powers that be. Okay, yeah, we'll get into Capcom in a second too. Uh, Rocket Bowl. Yep. Um, who wants to be a millionaire? Mobile edition. And ESPN Poker Club. So those latter two would be licensed properties too. Uh, I'm assuming the first two are games that you created yourself, correct? Uh, well, Shade was original, uh, for sure. Um, uh, Rockable was actually a license. Uh, it was a PC game. Um, oh, okay. It was, it's from Large Animal Games. Uh, they were really, 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 uh, really great guys to deal with. We had a lot of fun working with them. Uh, obviously, ESPN Poker Club, we, we licensed through ESPN. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire through ABC. We also did Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Um, that was with, uh, uh, I don't know if that was with Fox or the, uh, the, the company that actually owned it uh, at the end of the day. Um, so we, we did that. Um, we had a bunch of, of stuff in the, the shade era, um, sort of the early 2000s where we, we had chat rooms and we had casino games and, and solitaires and, and a bunch of your, your standard fare, stuff that could be easily uh, put together on a, a really simple uh, HTML um, uh, browser platform. Okay. I just got, a, I found this actually online. This is a, a programming book of all places that showed up and I'm, I'm assuming you must've known about this, um, which was talking about developing multiplayer games for the mobile market using Java. And Shade was one of the ones they actually pointed out from Cosmic Infinity as being one of the more impressive multiplayer offerings out there with some screenshots. Unfortunately, the resolution is kind of crappy, but kind of get the idea. And it also shows where it was kind of loosely based on some of the stuff you guys originally done with the Gates of Delirium. Um, yeah. So this, yeah, this we 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 had the original uh, the WAP version, which was the WML sort of text based uh, browser based one. We also did have a downloadable version of Shade um, that was done in Java and the Brew technology on the, the Qualcomm devices. Um, and uh, yeah, it uh, we actually uh, I should have brought this up for Glenn because I can. I can sort of rub his nose in it. Uh, <laughs> the The original shade we uh, uh, we actually have uh, 
uh, we're registered in the Guinness Book of World Records as having the first um, massive multiplayer wireless role-playing game. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. So that was sort of uh, something that came uh, uh, sort of post all of this because someone else tried to claim that they were the first, but uh, we actually predated them by about a year or so. And, and this was just a couple of developers doing this or like with yourself or was this a larger team at this point? Uh, it, even then, most of the, the stuff was a pretty small team. It was uh, myself, uh, uh, my, my, my wife was involved uh, in, in sort of some of the design work. Uh, my, my sister was involved and, and her husband, uh, you know, did a lot of uh, the business work and, and some of the artwork for, for the games. Um, so it was a, it was still a pretty small team until, uh, we were getting close to being, but the year before we were purchased by Capcom, we started to expand. We, we had brought in another artist and, and two or three programmers. So we had started to, to ramp up. And then when Capcom bought us out, we, we really ramped up to about uh, 25 people. Okay. So actually the team was starting to really grow there at that point. Yeah, um, Definitely. Now, who wants to be a millionaire? I've got the little logo that you sent me, so I'll share that first. I'm, I'm assuming everybody here knows what that is. <laughs> Hopefully. And I've actually found the original press release, too, so I'll share that next. So this was announced August 4th, 2005. The Cosmic Infinity has entered into a licensing agreement with Bonavista Television for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Mobile Games. Um, was it hard to get these licenses or did they approach you? Did you approach them? How did, how did that come about? So the story behind this one is really interesting. So back in the like 99, 2000, we, I was doing some work for... Um, the, the old Palm Pilots. And when the, the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire TV show came out, my, my wife mentioned to me at that point, hey, we should do something like this. So we actually wrote a game called Who Wants to Be a Zillionaire, which was sort <laughs> of a, a spoof version of this that we, we developed for the, uh, the Palm Pilots. And we, we added a, a billion-dollar question and a zillion-dollar question. We changed the, the structure of, of the answers a little bit. We made it really, really stupidly easy at the beginning, and then it got really hard towards the end. And uh, the game ended up being really, really popular on, on that and it ended up being insanely popular because um, we, we ended up creating that for, for the, the cell phones because it was you know a text-based trivia game worked really, really well on the, the devices back in the day. Um, and, uh, we were, we were live with it on Bell Mobility and a few other places. And it was, it was uh, doing really well. And then ABC created a mobile division cause that was the, the thing to do. And they created their a version of who wants to be a millionaire. And they tried to license it to, to all the telephone companies, uh, in North America, but nobody would touch it because AT&T was sponsoring, um, the phone a friend on the TV show. Uh, right. So nobody wanted to be associated with the show because AT&T was associated. AT&T wouldn't pay ABC to have the mobile game because they were sponsoring the phone a friend. So they thought they should get it for free. So nobody picked up the game. And then Bell Mobility decided to, to, to pick up the, the license for it. And, and they got the, the license for 
North America with the ability to sub-license it to the other telephone companies, not realizing that another telephone company, another mobile company, wasn't going to license it from one of their competitors. So they ended up having this game, and they were paying a fair bit for it. ABC decides, ah, this, this mobile space is going nowhere for us. They basically tell Bell Mobility, we're, we're canceling uh, the game, so you know, you, you're going to lose this product. So I was, we had a pretty good relationship with Bell Mobility, so we kind of said to them, hey, well, we could reproduce this game in five minutes and you could transition your your links to our game and nobody will be the wiser and at least you can finish out the the rest of your your contract with with ABC and so we we cut a deal where we we got a, a small chunk of the money ABC was amenable to doing it at the end of the contract Bell Mobility was like, well, this is not working for us because we can't make any money off of it. So they were going to drop the license. We jumped in and ABC had no other takers. And we said, okay, well, we'll, we'll pick up the license for this. And fortunately, ABC said yes. And it became sort of the cornerstone of our, our mobile product line. It got our foot in the door with all of the big companies that had huge venture capital because we had a marquee title that worked really, really, really well for the mobile space. Um, and it sort of became our tent pole. And then like a year later, everybody and their brother wanted the title and we more or less had it locked up enough that as much as ABC wanted to work with a bigger company, they couldn't really get out of the contract with us. Uh, so we, we kind of were able to, to leverage that and it uh, ended up uh, catapulting us up and uh, putting us on the map. And, and it's ultimately one of the reasons that uh, Capcom came in and bought us out. Yeah, well, we'll get to that shortly because that, that's a pretty pretty big thing. So the other one I want to show you because I actually found some screenshots and even some video of the gameplay is Rocket Bowl. Now, you said this was a licensed? Yep. I've not seen this in... Oh, okay, this is the uh, the PC version of Rocket Bowl. So how similar was this to the uh, the mobile version? Just the graphics are a bit more in so detailed or... So early on in the early days, there was, there was no 3D on the phones. We ended up... Uh, taking this and we ended up doing it in a style very similar to what I did with Marble Madness. We did the isometric view. So we basically, oh, okay. we ended up making this in, in ISO and uh, it ended up working out really, really well. And it was a whole lot of fun to play. Yeah. I don't think they have shots then of the uh, mobile version. Yeah. They won't have it there. That would have been uh, from IGN. If you dig deep, you can probably find them. I, probably have some lying around but it was uh it was a lot of fun to write um and it ended up mimicking this really really well and and being a pretty pretty fun game one of the games i'm most proud that i developed in the mobile space um just because it's a pretty involved game and and we we took something that was 3d and and made it really playable in in iso Okay. Yeah, because I mean, just looking at some of the screenshots here, because I've never played it on any platform, it looks like a kind of a cross between a mini golf course and bowling. It's exactly that, and it's there's um, there's basically rockets on the bowling ball, so you can fire <laughs> them. So you can ma either make it move faster, you can make it jump up in the air, or you can make it go left and right. 
but you're basically right. It's basically like a miniature golf course with a, a you know, bowling pins on it, and and you're trying to sort of and a rocket powered bowling ball and a rocket powered <laughs> bowling ball. So, so rocket powered bowling balls become cannonballs, pretty much. <laughs> uh, and there's and there was there were different types of bowling balls you could get that had different uh, features on them, um, and uh, it was you you unlocked them as you played, and it was it was uh, it was a lot of fun. And then the ESPN, I didn't find anything on the ESPN Poker Club, but I'm assuming you guys come up with a contract with ESPN themselves. Did, how did that, did they approach you? You approached them, same question I had about who wants to be a millionaire? Yeah, that was, so that was after uh, Capcom had bought us and uh, the, the guy who was our, our marketing sales guy had contacts everywhere. And because of our involvement with the uh, uh, fifth grader and who wants to be a millionaire, ESPN was really interested in us doing stuff. So we ended up doing uh, a couple things for them. And that okay. was back in the day when poker was was really really big on TV and everything like that, and uh, so we ended up doing a uh, a multiplayer poker game for the cell phones. Okay, and then speaking of the Capcom acquisition here, so this is the actual uh, copy of the press release for that from May twenty fifth, two thousand and six. Now, in this case, they described it as basically you guys were going to be operating independently, um, keeping your offices in Ontario and keeping your staff and everything else. It was going to be like a wholly owned subsidiary type thing. Um, from what you kind of hinted, we're talking with Glenn earlier, it sounds like that's not exactly what happened. <laughs> well, it, it is. So there's there's sort of three entities of of Capcom or two entities of Capcom. There's Capcom, the the game publisher that's out of Japan, uh, Capcom Entertainment, the the group that effectively bought us was their mobile division uh, working out of uh, the U.S. Um, and uh, they bought us out because they were just sort of floundering in the mobile space and they needed our expertise in development plus some of the uh, the titles that we had that uh, uh, were good revenue generators. So uh, Capcom Entertainment continued to operate sort of their head office out of the LA office and they did some of the the deployment and and behind the scenes management from there and the sales uh, but all the uh, the mobile development stayed in the uh, the cosmic studio out of uh, out of the Toronto area here okay and it sounds like like the original relationship was pretty good but then you were kind of mentioning that they hired one particular guy who was supposed to be your wingman type thing that turned out to be like the Antichrist or something Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Just kind of, I guess, go into a bit more deep. No names, obviously, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how how long were you at Capcom before that suddenly happened on you? So I had a two-year commitment uh, with Capcom. It was probably about a year in when things started to go a little bit sideways in the office, and we we brought in this uh, the new um, person to be sort of the the second in command and and overseeing all of the projects. I was the studio head, so I was sort of in charge of of, of everything, but on a day to day basis, watching over the projects. We had another guy. There was a, a bit of a, an issue there, and he ended up leaving, and that's when we, we brought in this other person. And it, on the surface, everything seemed fine and should have been should have been fine. But I think behind the scenes, Capcom was was moving towards um, getting rid of anybody that was sort of loyal to me or or 
brought in by me from the initial from from pre-acquisition and they wanted to move to to their people uh, by the time my commitment was was up and that hopefully um you know the the expertise that uh, had made us successful and and made them not successful would have been in place by the time my commitment was up and that they could just move on without me. Um, and so there was a lot of stuff I think going on behind the scenes um, in, in them moving people around and, and really going in a direction that wasn't going to include me long-term as much as they were saying um, they, they still wanted me to be involved. Um, it just, it just didn't feel that way to me. And, and uh, you know, I was becoming more and more out of the loop on the decisions and, and they were starting to listen less and less to, um, you know, my, you know, my knowledge of, of the gaming industry and everything like that and, and the direction we needed to go to, to live uh, for the long haul. And uh, they seemed to have their own uh, idea of where that should go. Okay. So you ended up leaving on your own volition around 2008, you said about two years later? Yeah. So we, we were sold in uh, the like July of 2006. My commitment was two years. I did my two-year commitment and, and left. Okay. And, and what, what, did you, what were you up to after that? Uh, so right after that, uh, I took uh, a bunch of time off and uh, uh, we, we bought some property, built uh, a house um and uh did uh did not a whole lot for probably two three years uh before i i started sort of dabbling back into the mobile space okay so when when about did you do that and how did you come back i think you started another company at that point yeah so that's when uh i i created rigor and mortis and uh, we started, I uh, brought in uh, another uh, creative guy as well as an artist, and we started to develop some, some products for the mobile space. Okay, and I just got a picture of the logo for Rigor and Mortis here. Now, is this, this, this the creation of this name in particular, is that based on the zombie craze that was kind of hitting at that time, or was that just something you came up separately? Oh, just some crazy idea that, uh, that my wife and I had, so... We we tend to, to come up with some some stuff that's sort of sort of on the darker side sometimes and a little bit edgy <laughs> so and 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 lots of fun for us so uh, we we just sort of came up with that as as the logo and and that's uh, it we, we sort of came up with the idea and then my, my artist came up with the sort of the coffin and the, the crossbones and stuff and, and it, it worked out pretty well and, and this is also a company that is also basically mobile games is that correct yes. So, like once again, that brings up the question. Well, I guess I you'd, you'd sold uh, Cosmic Fantasy. You didn't have any rights to that name after Capcom bought it, so you couldn't have carried that on anyway. Yeah, we couldn't carry that one on. So, okay. And do you remember roughly what when this started? I'm just wondering how much of a break did you have? Was it uh, a year or half a year or longer? Oh, probably 2011, 2012 that we started uh, doing any work with this. Maybe a little bit longer. Okay, so it was actually a pretty long break then. Yeah, yeah, I was I was pretty pretty burnt out. I had sort of jumped from company to company without having a whole lot of time off, and and the the mobile space was was nuts. Like the the, the cosmic games stuff was like two thousand to two thousand and eight, uh, for, but for the first six years of that, it was. 16 hours a day, seven days a week, did that for the six years uh, 
building up the company, there was just literally no breaks. It was, um, it, it was just a lot of work. Yeah. And you mentioned you have kids too. So I imagine family life was probably, you know, wanting your attention a lot more than. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the wife and, and my son definitely uh, became a, a much more of a priority uh, after we sold the company and, and uh, obviously devoted more time to, to that part of my life. And cause I'd spent so much time uh, up until then uh, with the company. So. Okay. Um. I'm presuming like uh, the, the the time period between when you left Capcom roughly the 2008 up until now is basically when the whole app thing revolution came by because that's when iOS was released and then Android shortly after. So the, the mobile market you returned to in 2011, 2012 would have been completely different than what you left because left you would have been doing a lot of Java stuff for a multitude of different phones. And I'm imagining now you're probably doing all iOS and Android or just one of the two or... Uh, well, I use the uh, the Unity platform, so you basically write in C sharp, but it'll cross compile to both platforms. Uh, most of the engines that uh, you can use for for mobile development will cross compile to to both iOS and and Android. So uh, that part's uh, pretty pretty simple and straightforward. So it's nice, but the marketplace is vastly different. It is totally not what I expected it to be. And, and we just have not had a whole lot of success because it's, uh, it, it's just a crazy space to be in. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot more competitive. I mean, now just, I mean, there's so many apps in the app stores for both platforms that just to try to get yourself noticed by anybody when there's thousands and thousands and thousands of apps. Oh, it's thousands uh, and thousands a day. Are, are going into the into the stores. Yeah, yeah, that's um, true. You're talking half a million to a million, you know, games out there. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a real numbers game now, um, and it is it is almost impossible to break in if you don't have a publisher um, to get into the space. It's 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 an entirely different animal to to when I was uh, doing it, and it was not quite what we expected it to be. So. Like I know, I know, like Apple and and, and Google kind of hype up the fact that you can be a, your own self publisher again, kind of harkening back to the days of Coke, where you can be completely control of the company and they just handle like credit card transactions. You don't have to deal with any of that stuff. So they keep trying to make it sound like it's an easier market to get into. And maybe at the beginning, you know, the first year or two when they were out there, I think that probably was true. Like whoever got to learn to program at first basically did quite well, no matter what they came up with. But now it's just so oversaturated. I. I like what? What do you do to try to get yourself noticed in the store? Like I, I don't even know what. What could you possibly do? Yeah, so it's it's totally accessible. Anybody can write for the platforms, um, which is great. Um, the problem is everybody's writing for the platforms, <laughs> yeah. um, and it, it, you're the big companies just absolutely dominate everything because they have endless amounts of money being generated on a daily basis. It's absurd the amount of money they're making. Um, but they also have a massive advantage. The, the way to get noticed is you basically buy it. You, you have to pay for insane amounts of advertising and you have to buy customers and give them your game for free. And then one to 3% of those people will you know, uh, spend money with the in-app purchases. The problem is it's really hard to get those customers at a rate that is reasonable. The big companies can do it because they have 
install bases of 50 to 100 million people so they can run ads in their own product for their next game for free. Um, and then on top of that, um, they have top placements based on their downloads in the stores and they get all sorts. They, Apple and Google don't talk about the insane preferential treatment that certain companies get as well. And so they're featured everywhere. They're, they're getting installs uh, for next to nothing and nobody can compete against that. And so it's, and when you hear about something going viral, it's not true. Nothing goes viral uh, on its own accord. It's still manufactured viralness. Like you can get something to go say it goes viral, but you probably paid an influencer $100,000 to hype up your game. And then all of a sudden everybody's downloading it in the app store and it goes, oh, it went viral because we didn't do anything. It's like, Yes, you did. Um, there is no true viral anymore. Everything is manipulated or manufactured in some way. So has that ever given you to take the consideration of maybe you you create a game, but you try to upsell it through one of the bigger companies and have them kind of handle that aspect of it? And you, do, you can get back to just the creative part or is, are they so filled with developers already that's just not even possible? Uh, well, that's what we've been trying to do for the last few years. The problem is, they call themselves publishers, and if you're familiar with publishers in the mainstream, and and Glenn, if he was here, would be able to talk to this from, from the book standpoint, is a true publisher goes, you present them an idea, um, or in this case, even a completed game or a completed book, whatever, they would look at it and go, yes, we can sell that, and then they'll say, all right, we'll take that and we'll publish it. Well... The way it works in this industry, because it's so backwards and polluted, the publishers who call themselves publishers say, well, you go write a game and we'll throw it into the store. If it sells really well, then we'll pick it up and publish it and put money behind it. But until then, we won't. So it, it, it's it's not like a true publishing. Like if, if you go into the mainstream gaming market and you 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 pitch a, a product to a publisher, they'll go, okay, here's here's fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand, whatever. Here's a bunch of money, create a prototype, and then once the prototype's created, if we like it, okay, we'll fund the development of the project and then we'll publish it and you'll get your 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 ten percent of of the revenue. These publishers don't work that way. They expect you to do all the work. And if the game isn't good, they just discard it and take the next game up. And so it, it's it's not really truly publishing. Okay. And so it, it's you can approach them and then everybody's they're all over the places. We want we want ultra casual, we want this, we want that. It's like, oh, we have a game like this. It's like, okay, well, sure, like, okay, you've got this style of game. It's like, but there's 50 of them and they're all top sellers. Like it's not like there's only one of every genre of game out there. There's 500 first person shooters. There's 500 match three games. There's 500, um, you know, breakout games. Like there, there's room for, for lots. It's whether or not it, it stands out or it's more polished, whatever. Um, so it's just a really backwards marketplace and, and the whole mobile space, even from day one, has been backwards again we were really lucky we we got in before it was even a market so we were able to establish ourselves. we ended up with a marquee um brand and and who wants to be a millionaire that that really got our foot in the door in places where nobody would have even 
taken our phone calls. Um, so it, it, it's just a really, really backwards polluted space that's gaming that doesn't work by any of the standard rules. Geez, we'll have to get you back into doing hobbyist market cocoa stuff then. Um, it's less stressful. Uh, yeah, might need to. <laughs> like, I, I, I'll just throw this out here. Like, I'm not expecting you to actually do that or anything unless you just want to do it as a hobby just for fun. Um, but, you know, we're the, the current games that are coming out now are starting to sell between 80 to 120, 140 copies. Um, you know, which, and you can just distribute them electronically. So there's no like having to ship a thing. Though a lot of people do like the collector's boxes. So it's not enough to make a living or anything, but if you just wanted to do it for fun, it would be, you'd get something back for it, I guess. So I'd try to say. Yeah. I mean, I'm in the same boat with the mobile space. Like we, we will make some money. You just don't make it. It's like, I, I look at things from a, a business perspective and, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking to, to build a business. If I'm going to devote my time to something, I want to be able to build up something that uh, can be sold off at the end. There's always a, uh, a plan and an exit strategy now, ever since, um, you know, the Atari links, my, my business, um, mind works in a, in a very different way than it used to. So I, I look at things from a, a certain perspective now of uh, the amount of time I have to put into things and, and what I'm going to get out of them. So, Okay. Now you'd send some screenshots here from a couple of games, which I'm assuming are all from Rigor Mortis. Um, there was uh, Dusk and Match Budo. So which one of those did you do first? Uh, the ones you're seeing there, Dusk or Match Budo would have been, was the first one that uh, I did. And then Dusk was... Um, it, it, it's sort of a uh, a reimagined version of the the shade game, which is also a a hybrid off of the old gates. So, um, and they've been done for for multiple platforms. The the only one that's currently live, uh, the Dusk one, is actually currently live in uh, the Google Play Store right now, and and we're looking at uh, uh, how we can sort of bump that up. Okay, so I'm showing some screenshots here from. Uh... Yeah, those the, are the from, match from match game. game. Yep. Yeah, from match voodoo. So obviously you've got a bit of a voodoo Halloween theme here with the little, you know skull and the bat wings and stuff like that. Was this meant as a theme like for a Halloween style game? Like, did you introduce it that time, or was that just happened to be a a skin so, for a match three game that you just randomly picked? Yeah. So we were we were looking to do a a you know a, a different games and and we decided to do something on the in the match three space. If you look in the match three space, almost everything is a derivative of Candy Crush, and they're all really geared towards a a female audience. As much as it it commands people, a pretty broad spectrum of people that, that play them, um, they they really visually um, uh, go after a certain audience. And if you talk to people, you'll go most guys won't admit that they play candy crush even if they play them it, it's a it, it's a well-devised game it's just thematically it's not something that you're going to run around and say that's what i play and we were trying to come up with a theme that would still be fun but something where you know the guys wouldn't be embarrassed every, everybody <laughs> would go yeah i play that because it's kind of cool it, it's not like these little gummy bears and and little little dolls and stuff that, that all the match three games have. So we we came up with this voodoo theme, and we've we've done a bunch of games with this uh, this style. We have a, a trivia game and a couple other more casual ones that all have this kind of fun voodoo theme. It's not hardcore voodoo. Um, it, it's just very fun um, 
goofy characters and and we, we have a lot of fun with it with spiders and and poison bottles and you know skulls and stuff like that it's, it's just thematically um it, it's just a really fun area to work with you can do a lot of stuff uh, really creative with the with it and it, it looks really neat so okay and then i'll switch over to the other one here that we talked about dusk and you said this one is still an active property yeah, this one's active in the uh, the Google Play Store right now. We haven't uh, converted over to the Apple Store yet. I got the right one selected. So it's a it's a full blown MMO. Um, you can go in, you can customize your avatar, you can uh, build up your character uh, in any way that you want. It's it's not class driven. You get to to do what you want. Uh, it's got a nice real time drag and drop interface. Um, and it's a throwback to, to our shade game. It's, it's been sort of expanded and, and enhanced and, uh, been made way more, uh, visual. So, but if you look at all of our, our history, you'll, you'll see some, some ties back to, uh, to the shade and then ultimately back to, to gates. Okay. Yeah. This, this one looks pretty good. It's, it's visually impressive, um, really good use of color, et cetera. It's it's not done to be completely realistic, but no, it, it's a little definitely bit cartoony, but not, yeah, not we, yeah, excessively yeah. so. Yeah, we've gone with a a very retro style with it, so it's it's more retro graphics than the the super high detailed polished ones that you see in in some games now. There's there's definitely a a renaissance for retro style games in in the mobile space. So, and you said this one is not out for iOS at this at this point, right? It's only out on Android. Yeah, not yet. We're 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 moving towards that. Have you done uh, other ones that are cross-platform where players play against each other on both platforms? Like, does that really add to the? Like, I know a lot of friends even like hate you know I'm a green bubble guy or whatever type of thing. And yeah, you know, pretty much. Every, yeah, but, everything we do, we we try to do uh, cross-platform. Yeah, okay, it, just, it just makes sense. There, there's no reason not to. Yeah, because you were mentioning like Unity and stuff here. It's not as much work to get it onto the other platform, or is it? Maybe I'm wrong. No, there's not a whole lot of work. The, the the only it, it's it's just dealing with the uh the submission processes and and uh just uh you know a couple idiosyncrasies to the compile process basically unity spits out an apple or an ios project that you have to compile in apple's you know uh, proprietary environment but it, it's not really that big a deal yeah i know and one thing you must be excited about i mean with all the th problems with app stores and how mobile gaming is sold now you must be pretty impressed with some of the hardware that you're getting to play with now like the capabilities of the newer phones is just insane oh yeah the hardware is fantastic the environments for development are are just uh, you know just incredible like it's they do all of the work for you um it, it, it's it, it's absolutely amazing like it's so easy to uh, to write anything nowadays, um, and again, like I said, you don't even have to try because you don't have to conserve memory for sound or artwork or code or uh, everything is everything. Yeah, just is assume so infinite, optimized. you're fine. Type thing. Yeah, everything <laughs> is fully optimized. It's just like yeah, tell it to do this, and it does that. You can uh, drag and drop the whole like this whole. The whole outside interface to this is is all drag and drop all of your artwork into the spots, save out the scene, and you know, one line of code loads it in, displays it on the screen for you. Like it, it, it's just so easy, and then all the effects that you can that you can do and add to it, it's it, it's sort of a dream. So, 
yeah, that's, that's what I've heard from a few people that actually are actively doing apps, uh, particularly games like the, the engines and stuff that are out there. And the hardware capabilities of the graphics chips on, and the CPUs on these these phones is, I mean, it's it's up to like you know console level just a couple of years ago. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like the, it's it's just uh, amazing. The the bigger problem is creating something like people. A lot of people are trying to create console apps or console games as apps, and you can't because the people who are playing them are are effectively ultra casual and you, the controls are all touch so you have to design for a an audience and b an input system that is vastly different from from console games so you you have to you, you have to understand your your marketplace and your device when you're doing your development it's one of the reasons we were so successful with the cell phones because people were trying to write tony hawk on a cell phone it's like well tony hawk is not going to work on a cell phone <laughs> you know and and even a twitch game like um tetris doesn't didn't work well on the early cell phones because the inputs just weren't conducive to that because um, you basically had like you know a, a dial pad and it, it just didn't work so you you actually had to design games um that were the new work. interface yeah. yeah and and that was one of the things that we did well and, and it's it's really what's lacking in, in a lot of the mobile games right now um that and it's just a a ripoff marketplace someone writes flappy bird and there's 500 flappy birds um it, it's really hard to uh to create something unique and then to ultimately actually stand out from the masses yeah, yeah, that's that's a huge like just from the sheer number of, of games there. There's going to be a ton of clones of each other, very slight differences. Yeah, um, I, I do know like there is a controller market for the mobile devices. They actually sell little things that you can stick your phone in to give you like you know joysticks and stuff on the sides. But I think that's very niche, and you probably shouldn't design a game for that unless you have like a working relationship to get it bundled with whoever's manufacturing the hardware or something. Yeah, it's super super niche. It's it's really not worth it to to try to build action games for for the mobile devices it, it just like you're you're talking about you know bringing your market from you know a billion people down to a million people like it, it just doesn't make any sense at all like even if you to corner that market it really doesn't make any sense because it's it's such a finite uh percentage of of the ultimate ultimate marketplace that it just doesn't make any sense Okay. Now, one other thing you mentioned that was a bit of a surprise to me is you're actually working on a brick and mortar uh, company, which I'll show the logo you sent me for here. And if you want to explain exactly what this is, and then also are your plans to keep both of these companies going because they're very different, or, or are you kind of phasing one out in favor of the other? Uh, not necessarily phasing out. It's, it's going to be sort of which one ultimately has the success. Uh, obviously, Fraglands has been uh, severely hampered because of COVID, uh, because it's a, a real-world bricks-and-mortar experience. Um, it, it's been on hold for uh, the better part of three years now. Um, so it, it harkens back to to what Cosmic Infinity was going to be, which was going to be um, a, a new version of um, uh, laser tag or, or photon. It's something that I had looked at way back in, in the past uh, doing. And uh, I started thinking about it again about three and a half years ago. And uh, a whole lot of things all sort of clicked at the same time with the, the advancements in, in technology, 
my knowledge of of gaming um as well as uh, and I, I keep bringing this up but um Fortnite opened my eyes to something um that gave me a different perspective on um on gaming so historically you look at popular games for for consoles and, and pc and you look at the the call of duties and and the the halos and the stuff like that and and a big game in there is going to sell you know 10 million some odd copies maybe 20 million copies that's you know that's and that's an insanely popular game and, and it's going to do really well and and you go okay well that's that's a it's a good audience to go after but when you look at a game like fortnite that has 250 plus million people have played it. And you look at the hardcore games, and that's, you know, 10 or 20 million people in the 14 to 25 year old range. And then you look at Fortnite, which is the five year olds up to the 70 year old range. It's everybody. And it changed my perspective on on reimagining laser tag because you're not going after initially you're thinking if you're going after the people who play first person shooters and and that's your market well your market for that is now 250 million plus people not 10 or 20 million people and it's a much broader spectrum of people um, with my gaming background I can literally recreate any game mode from any video game that is being played now including the battle royale that they play in in Fortnite which is either you know uh, a whole bunch of solo players duos trios quads any game mode that you see in in Halo or Call of Duty capture the flag um, guardian from Gears of War zombie mode or infection from from Halo, I can reproduce that because of my gaming background. You combine that with new technology where I can put a chip on a person and track them in real time in a, a real-world arena and display that for everybody. I can do hit-checking on them in exactly the same way video games do not the the really simplistic way that that laser tag has done it for the last 35 years with with infrared leds so i can basically do perfect hit checking as well as i know where everybody is in the real world and you can play every single video game that you love playing in the real world and so that's what we're we're working towards right now. We have new technology that we'll have a patent on that will allow us to mimic anything that can be done in video games in the real world. So this isn't meant like I originally thought when I was kind of reading the description you'd given that this was going to be like you'd set up a special building like a laser tag thing where you have you know props and walls and maybe a, a terrain or something that's built into it. But this is more like a Pokemon Go where you can literally just go outside and do this, right? Is that my understanding? <laughs> No, it, it's it's building a building. Like you oh, could, yes. okay. you could, you could ex extend it to other places. But no, it's it's to build like a, a destination where you go and there is a a real interactive world that you go and you you have battles in. 
Um, that is that is what it is conceptually. And we just figure, like, we've got a lot of things going for us right now because if your parents now, kids are becoming more and more introverted. They spend more and more time at home playing video games or on their cell phones. And if you want your kids to go out, like, you're not going to say, go outside and play football or baseball or hockey or anything like that. Like, the kids aren't getting off the couch to do that. But if you say, get off the couch and go play Halo at this Halo place, that might work because you're telling them to go play in the real world what they're playing while they're sitting on their butt at home on their Xbox. You've got at least a chance to convince them to get off their butts and go get some exercise. Um, yeah. And you're going to have to go drive them there first. <laughs> I, I think the parents will be more than happy to get them off the couch. Drop them by off for three or four hours on a Saturday so they can go shopping and have dinner. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like that, that's sort of it conceptually is this is you're, you're selling them on something they love to do, but you get to do it in the real world in this crazy real environment. Um, well, you used to get a good workout at Photon. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we, we have, we, we're going after the same, uh, methodology. Like if you've gone to any of the laser tags now, um, you know that you have to have a party of 10 or 12 people. You have to book in advance. The game is 20 minutes long and you play two games and then you're done. You go home. If you've ever went to Photon, you showed up. There were people there. It was more like a theme park. You got in line. The next block of people went in and played. The game was six and a half minutes long. You came out. You were so excited that you wanted to go play again. If you play laser tag now, you play your 20 minutes. 10 minutes into it, you go, I am so done with this, and I still got to play for another 10 minutes. When you come out, you're going, I do not want to play this anymore. Every time I go back to laser tag now, I remember why I don't play. Because it's just bad. Right, you have to pre-book everything. You have to have a bunch of people. The old way that Photon did it, did it just worked, and and the whole psychology behind how you do it, the shorter game time, everything just worked better, and that's the uh, the psychology that we're adopting for for building this is is playing into all of that. And you don't have to pre-book. You can just show up with a couple of people or alone or five people. There's people there playing. You get thrown into just a game. game yeah. it, it's just it's just a way better methodology. It's very much in tune to a theme park. Um, and uh, with the and then you factor in that huge block of people who actually want something like this. Like it's not just laser tag now is strictly a kid's birthday party business. That's all it's become, that's 90% of, of their business. Um, this is making it a gaming destination. It's it's more of an entertainment thing where you can just, you can go and play and interact with people playing the games that you love to play at home. So for me, it's, it kind of sounds like you're kind of trying to pick up a bit of the Wii vibe where you have the interactivity and stuff like, you know, obviously you're just waving a sensor stick around basically, but that kind of getting that interactiveness where the family can get together and, you know, battle each other in a sword fight or whatever type thing, or play tennis against each other, but on, on the laser tag with a lot more intense exercise, but you're trying to get that fun factor there and not having this very strict, you know, you've got 20 minutes. Yeah. Up and, your time type thing. Yeah. And you're playing, like, if you go to laser tag now, you, it's always two teams and you shoot each other. And at the end, you 
you see the score of who won. Well, this is going to be like playing an actual video game. Like you're going to have places where you can pick up different weapons that have different features to them. They have different ranges they can shoot. They do different amounts of damages. You have hit points. You actually have structures to games where you're you're not just two teams fighting. You've got a big display on the back of the gun. You know who's winning. You know who's losing. You know who's in first place. You know how many points you have. It, it's truly like playing a video game in the real world. It, it's just an entirely different experience. Now, have you actually got one of these open or are you guys still in the planning stage? Like, I know COVID would have really screwed yeah, things up for everybody. But. Yeah, we were very close to, to having a building just as COVID hit. And, and so we had to put the brakes on that. So we're, we're just finalizing all the, the hardware designs and the software designs now. And as soon as we feel that, you know, we can, we can open this thing up without the, the fear of, of another lockdown coming, then, then we'll do it. So it's probably going to be sometime next year that we'll, we'll have our location and we'll be opening up the first one. Okay. And is this going to be under a franchisee model or are you planning on running each individual one and kind of build them up yourself or? Uh, definitely franchise them out. Yeah, yeah. Like we'll 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 probably have a, a handful of corporate ones, but definitely the franchise model. Okay. Yeah, it sounds pretty intriguing. I I I did play laser tag a little bit, like in the Chicago uh, Rainbow Fest. There, there was quite a few people that came and joined the the laser tag games back in the day. In fact, they were kind of shooting around during the uh, breakfast uh, seminar that you know Lonnie would host. <laughs> so they'd run around tables and shoot each other type thing. Right. Not you know, with the very primitive versions, of course. Yes. Yes. It, it, it sounds like a very very fun way to get exercise too. And that's a, that's a big thing. Like you mentioned, like the, the young the youth of today are spending so many times playing, like even getting Pokemon to get them off their asses, to get out, you know, look for invisible creatures looking on their phone was a big improvement from just sitting and doing absolutely no physical activity at all. Um, the, we tried to solve that like 15 years ago, but that, you know, kind of went to the wayside again. So it's, it's good that you're actually trying to push for that. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, well, cool. I um, I have a ton of other questions, but they're more on the technical side, and I figured that would be good for a separate one. And as we we're talking with Glenn before he left there too, like yeah, having you guys talk about the assembler tools and development processes and stuff that you guys have done, uh, I think that deserves a whole separate show. And maybe we'll even get some other developers on too, like Nick and some others here, and just kind of compare notes, like doing it back in the '80s and '90s compared to now. You know what's changed? Sure. So, well, we'll do yeah, that. That makes sense. And, and I probably should uh, get off fairly soon, or the the wife will come down and kill me. So, <laughs> or, or she'll release all the cats on me. So, yeah, right, we, should, I, we should I don't know if you have three hour show to go through yet. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to inflict that on anyone. My my plan is we're going to do the game on challenge results, and that's actually one of the games you wrote, Dave. So I don't know if you can stick around for a couple minutes just to kind of see that briefly. Um, uh, but uh, the news and stuff, I'm actually gonna, I'm going to hold off to next week because I don't have a guest on next week, so we can do it as a double long news segment to catch everything up. So okay. uh, Kent, Canadian retro things. There you are. Yo, hey, hello. Me... Yeah, I'm still here. I'm here. All right. Let me reconfigure my screens here. Uh... I usually don't talk till after the results video. <laughs> okay. So let me go ahead and uh, run the results <laughs> video. Or does anyone need to break? No, I think we just go. This will probably be the last segment to be honest. So, All right. I'll make it Here quick.
Welcome everybody to the Coco Talk Game On Challenge of the Week results video. This week we played Rush and Assault. We had a total of 14 players. We had Mr. Dave 6309 with 7550. Tasman with 8850. Anarcana, Arcana 8950. Buck Owens, 9,150. Nine Finger Tom, 10,350. Rich N, 10,400. Sloopy Malibu, 11,350. Mark B, 11,600. Jim Rye, 12,950. Ed Rhodes, 13,400. L. Curtis Boyle, 13,700. Canadian Retro Things, 22,250. Shenley, 22,750. And the number one score this week is Sabhead with 28,300. Thanks everybody that played, and we'll see you next week. So, Dave, sure. since you're still here, I was just wondering, uh, like, w one of the things we normally do in this segment is have sort of tips and tricks and the players discuss, you know, things they discovered as they were playing the game. Since you actually wrote it, do you have any tips and tricks that none of us might actually know? Not offhand. I <laughs> cannot remember any uh, special tricks for playing that one. Don't die. Yeah. <laughs> it looks really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it being really hard. That much I do know, but yeah, nothing. Nothing special comes to mind from a, uh, a, a, a tricks on that one. None, none that come to mind. Now, as I mentioned before, this is one of the ones I actually did a six eight zero nine optimized version, so a little bit faster than six zero nine using the block memory move, which is a pretty close double speed, I think. But this is also because it was a Coco one and two game. You can actually do the Coco three double speed up poke, which speeds it up for you know everybody. Um, was that something you would have designed it for? Uh, a Coco One Two game that you have the option of playing at double speed on the Coco Three, or uh, it would not have been because it would have been uh, it would have been built before the Coco Three, so I hadn't even contemplated the double speed in that. Okay, because I know you did have support for two button joysticks, and those didn't come to the Coco Three, but that was probably a late add on. Then I'm guessing. Uh, did they not have some two buttons earlier than that? Did some of the Tandy joysticks it, have two buttons? I thought they did. The, well, ten, some of the Tandy joysticks did have two buttons, but I think the PIA wasn't even wired for the second one. Nick, can you correct yeah. me if I'm wrong on that one? Co I don't think Coco 2 was wired for the two buttons. Yeah, no, no it wasn't. They aren't. But they have the six They have the six pins on the plug, but it's not wired. I mean, it can be retrofitted, yeah. but... Yeah, you can add a, a blue wire uh, you know, and make it work. Yeah, it must have been something that... Uh, it must have been been working on that rate at uh, the time the uh, the coco threes were coming out but before i actually developed for for that so i probably had one of the the really current joysticks that that had the two buttons so i probably just included that as as something that uh, would work yeah because you had it as an option because you basically you asked if you wanted the two buttons because it rejiggered the space bar i think normally you'd use to fire a grenade off and right which, which does make the, the game button. infinitely more simple like easier to play having the two button yeah. joystick yep Yep, that's for sure. Now, I, I actually have a question. Um, why did you make it so that uh, you can't shoot behind you? Uh, <laughs> no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 
This, good, uh, it just seemed question. a little odd. Yeah, it's a good question. You, I hate you now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I don't know if, if, because it was modeled after Commando and Akari Warriors, and I don't know if you could uh, fire in all eight directions in those or not. Okay. Uh, and it may have just been because anything I had played, you just couldn't fire in those directions. Or in the grander scheme of things, probably because if you get into the position where you could actually get past something and shoot down um, because things are moving, you might not be able to actually hit them because they would be scrolling off as you were you move, moving up and, and the bullets would be, be going down at a rate that wouldn't work. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I did technical reason then, yeah. A, yeah. a lot of times the guys would get behind you and shoot you in the back. And, and you're running you could do nothing but try to run shooting. away from them. Yeah, because you can you can fire basically a one eighty degree arc, like you shoot straight left, straight right, or diagonally, or straight up. Yeah, but even if you're running backwards, you're still shooting forwards, so it was kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, and and there's there's probably some technical reason why I didn't. <laughs> um, and uh, offhand, I don't know what it is, but there probably was a reason. Okay. It I made mean, the one, game one more challenging. We haven't been. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Ken. I, I just said it made the game more challenging. That's why you did it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Because <laughs> one of my favorite aspects of the game, there's another uh, Coco podcast called uh, My Drunk Sibling, Sibling Rivalry, which is uh, Tim. <laughs> I don't know if he's still in the call. I think he's left already. Uh, but Tim and his sister actually get together and they play all kinds of retro games and television, Atari 2600, uh, Coco. And uh, this is what I'm going to suggest for them because they, they're they trying to play two-player games. They can be cooperative or competitive. It doesn't matter. But as long as two people get to play it simultaneously, interact with each other and get mad at each other and that kind of thing. So I'm definitely suggesting Rush Assault because I remember playing that with my brother and that was a hell of a lot of fun with two players you know, sure. trying to cooperate. Okay, well, um, I don't know. What do we have to say about the game? Uh, it's a, I can't... It's pretty straightforward uh, for tips and tricks uh when you uncover the um all of the uh power-ups and stuff they're always very random so sometimes you'd get a couple of point ones in a row and be able to really <clears throat> pad your score there but uh, uh um yeah it was uh in in my opinion a pretty good port of uh game like akari warriors or commando i know there was a few people that uh the hit detection of getting uh, stuck, your 3D, or uh, the, the character getting stuck on objects could be a little flaky sometimes, but. Yeah, that's sort of the nature of the beast with uh, sort of the odd-sized character and, mm -hmm. and doing sort of fairly um, uh, large um, tile-based um, objects that it, uh, it becomes a bit of a, an issue since trying to do uh, pixel perfect hit checking um, would have required a lot of overhead to to make yeah, that work better. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that would that would have been one of the the things that uh, I remember being a bit uh, a bit iffy in the game is that the 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 character to to object hit checking is a bit of a pain in the ass. I just found that. Uh... <clears throat> Once you figured that out, though, it's pretty easy to avoid getting hung up on anything or anything like that. You just—it's like any other thing in a game. You just—it's a learning curve. Yeah. Yep. Um, I don't know what else is there to say about it. Uh, I—I I guess you can play a little gameplay because we had people yeah. playing it at different speeds, so we can kind of. We did have a little, like. lot of fun playing it. Uh, there was only four of us on the uh, 
last night's stream, but um, I will uh, share so It's that. the last long weekend, you know, for, you know, kids back in school. So I imagine quite a few people were away. So thanks. Thanks I again, Dave, for popping by here on the long that. weekend. Yeah, no problem. Got so many things open. There we go. Okay. So there we had four of us uh, doing it. I don't know how good my internet is today, so this could just be a slideshow. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, me showing this off on the different uh, speeds doesn't really make much of a difference. But I think uh, most of us were playing the um, the uh, <clears throat> your your versions, Curtis, that you uh, enhanced. I know I was playing 6309 enhanced version. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely smoothed out the graphics. I, I wish we had known the capabilities. Like the 609, I don't even know if you know about this, Dave. Uh, but it was a Hitachi clone chip, which was first released in October of 1985. And it was meant to just be a low-power CMOS version of the 6809. So it took one-tenth the power. And it added a couple of IRQ things where it take one-hundredth the power. So it was really good for low-power applications. What nobody knew, though, until 1992 in North America is that it also had extra registers, extra commands, a native mode that runs 10 to 15% faster, and it's also available up to 3 megahertz. So we've, we've been rewriting you know, operating systems and, and games. Uh, Nick's actually released a game that requires it called Gunstar. But the, the, the speed ups you can get, like uh, the patches I've been doing to yours and some other people's games is basically like scrolling routines and stuff. And all I do is I add the block memory move command, the TFM, transfer memory. And that's literally like two to three times faster than even stack blasting can get to. So it's like a huge jump. And if, if we'd known back in 85 when that chip was out, you know, that tell people, go get this upgrade and you can try this new game and it runs way better on it. It would have been pretty interesting to see where you and, and Glenn and a bunch of others could have taken things back then. Yeah, it would have, yeah, it would have been really nice. Like, it's surprising that uh, that the Tandy wasn't aware of the <laughs> chip and, and uh you know, use that in at least the the Coco Two or the Coco Three at some point, just to to boost everything up. Well, um, we did talk to Mark about that. I mean, they he was aware that Hitachi had released this low power six three nine. The thing that it surprised me is that it was actually had a rated at three megahertz version, which Motorola never did, and that would have been really good on the Coco Three, like not just double the speed, triple it. Um, but I think they were worried as a second source. They were worried about having enough chips available. Sure. So they didn't want to really approach attaching that. But none of the secret features. I mean, I think Japan discovered them first in 1988, so three years after the chip's release. And then we didn't find out about it in North America until 1992. And by that time, the Cocoa was already you know gone from Radio Shack. They weren't manufacturing anymore. So there's not right. too much you could have done. But No, no. I, I'm just surprised like tech companies are usually sort of well-versed in in uh you know what's out there long before we are and uh you know unless they had sourced it and it was like you know quadruple the cost then you know if it's if it's inexpensive and and all that then you you tend to opt for the you know the best you yeah. know best person I mean, that's why everybody used the the 6502 right because it was dirt cheap yeah. um and so that's why and and low power that's why it's in that's why it was in everything for for so long, um, <laughs> as as abysmally horrible as it is to to program for, everybody used it. Um, yeah. But you know, and even going from you know the the sixty eight oh nine 
back to the 65 2 it's like holy crap it's like such a step backwards and i'd already stepped forward to the 68000 before i went to the um the color game boy and and had to do the step backwards and it was like oh man this is like night and day um and uh, even the uh, the Atari Lynx, which was 6502, was was still a step backwards. Now it had a, a graphics chip and it had a blitter chip in it, so it just overcame all of the the downsides to the 6502 because you just blasted graphics everywhere, um, and there, it wasn't sprite based. You could just do as many blitz as you wanted. Um, it was just absolutely fantastic, um, and just so much fun to work with. Yeah, I mean, you, you get used to 6502. In fact, you only have you know X, Y, and A as your registers, and they're all 8-bit. And if you want to do any jumps beyond that, you have to go into self-modifying code and all kinds of crap to do that. But uh, yeah, having having the graphics taken off the burden of the CPU like an, an Apple II would have to do, drawing everything itself, especially their crazy interlay screen type thing. Um, yeah, I, I can imagine that uh, it actually isn't too bad if you've got the graphics and sound hardware to back it up so it's not having to worry about trying to do, handle all that. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what the Atari Lynx had. It's what you had on uh, even a, a modified version on the uh, the color Game Boy with the way they they handled all their sprites and and the backgrounds that uh, were all tile based that were all handled by the hardware. At least you didn't have to worry about those display nightmares. Um, it was all uh, all managed for you. So yeah, and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier. Where you guys were experimenting with supporting the speech sound pack. I think the thing that really killed that though was that. You guys were selling games that probably were more popular in disc than tape, I'm guessing. And some games later on were requiring disc. And that means you also had to buy a multi-pack. So now this speech sound card, which is normally like 80, 90 bucks, it now needs an extra 200 and some odds so you can add a multi-pack to be able to put the darn thing on. And that's getting a bit too expensive. Yeah, that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, any, I don't know any other tips or tricks on that. I do prefer... Yeah. On uh, the six through nine speed, or just plain double speed on the original version for the Cocoa Three. But if you have a, yep. a Cocoa One or Two, if you have a six through nine chip in there, you definitely can double the speed with the optimized version. The six through nine version is a bit faster. I can't remember that. I figured out the exact percentage, it's like thirty percent or something like that. But um, it, it is a fun game, and there's a lot to explore. I, I know Ken, you got up to the point where you're coming up against the big armored trucks and stuff too. Yeah, <clears throat> so, I got it was it was interesting. the The game that I had that I got the furthest in it was uh, by far not my best score. So, yeah, well, the randomness of the 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 bonuses is what really it's luck of the draw. For, if you're going for a score based game versus a distance based game, like how far you can get into the mm -hmm. game. If like I've had a few times where the very first two uh, spots that you shoot with the grenades both come up as peas, so I got five thousand points right off the bat. Well, barely doing anything, and then there's other times like you don't see one of those ever. So, yeah, and sometimes you had nothing. I we, I never I saw that. Never saw that either. You're, I huh. think you're the only one that saw that, Mark. You had a glitchy copy. Hmm. Yeah. Another big thank you to Dave uh, as well because I approached him back in the early 2000s via email about you know releasing uh, DICOM games for download so that people could enjoy them you know long, long after DICOM's gone, and he graciously permitted them to be put up. So uh, a big thank you to again for that. Oh, no problem at all. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't find any reviews in any magazines of this game, but, uh, you know... Well, it, it came out late enough that, you know, the persona non grata with Rainbow was just around the corner, so we yeah. didn't have time to get reviewed. 
We'll have to get Glenn to write a review for it again. I think so. There you go. Do. <laughs> yep. There we go. It'll be very prolific now because he's a, a much more accomplished writer. So. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a hundred pages. It'll be award-winning. It'll be yes. an award-winning uh, review. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, I don't know. Do we have anything else to discuss yeah, about Russian um, songs? The, I don't know. Did anybody anybody else have anything to add about the game? Or I don't want to keep the, David the, too much the, longer. We'll be week? announcing the next game, so I thought we will. If this is finished, we'll let Dave go. Yeah. No takers. Well, I definitely enjoyed this game. It's uh I tried. I did try the version, the um, um, the the not sped up version earlier in the week, and uh, <clears throat> definitely playing the versions that you optimized, Curtis, were uh, definitely added something to the game. It, uh, I mean, it was still fun the other way, but it was more fun this way. It's a smoother running. So, yeah, I know Mark and I tried the uh, the double speed Pokogo three version and the six three nine combined, and it's. It's an arcade game at that point. It's almost too fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did do a decent score on it. I later came back and got my best score running the uh, rec- single speed on the 6309 version. Yeah. I guess, uh, but my only uh, tip on it is that uh, if you get past people, don't try to go back to kill them because <laughs> they yeah, will just, shoot just you in going. the back. Just keep <laughs> yeah. going. Or if, if you get past objects, forget about the points and keep going. Okay, well, Dave, thank, thanks again so much for showing up on a, yes. a holiday weekend and spending hours and hours with us, which, I mean, I kind of expected. <laughs> because once I actually went through and figured out everything you've written just on the Cocoa, and then you started filling me in all the stuff you've written since then for a variety of platforms, including mobile, I was just like, this is going to be a long interview. And that's why I decided to hold the technical <laughs> questions off for a separate one later on, so... Thanks Sounds again good. for. Oh, we don't by. have another four hours. No, we we, we do another four hours another time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're pushing <laughs> five hours right up. now. I I got nothing to do for the next. We'll do a Coco After Dark continuation of this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks again. I will, we'll arrange with you and Glenn for uh, doing a follow up uh, when we start getting the technical details. Do a bit more of a probably a shorter one that time. I'd also go through the assembler. That's something we would really like to be able to you know add to the archive. Just to preserve that cocoa history, because I mean, it, it, there's not any other assemblies I can think of that were really as hyped up as this one was from developers themselves that actually were between multiple companies. Like some companies came up with their own, like I don't know, Jerry Spiller did it, his own assembly for Xenix and uh, Crystal City, which sounds competitive, though I haven't seen either one of them, so I can't really judge. But uh, he never shared that with anybody, and you were actually willing to share it. And I think I believe Triad used it too, didn't they? Uh, I would imagine so. Everybody that was associated with with us uh, all ended up having access to it. So, but uh, yeah, I'll I'll track down some contact information from for Roland and uh, send that across to you. And uh, uh, I would imagine once you ping him, he'll have no trouble uh, uh, letting it out into the wild. Yeah, because Glenn apparently still has a copy now. Is he or somebody at some time had nicknamed it Phantasm, but for you told me there never was an official name for it, right? It just... I, I don't recall there being an official name for it, but it, that I could be wrong on that front. So that, okay. may be, that may be what we called it. So Okay. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll let you go and uh, have, have a real life rather than be stuck in with us nerds here. Okay. <laughs> it's been a blast. Uh, I look right, forward to doing you. it again sometime. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks, thanks, Dave. Thanks for coming. Bye. Okay, well, I guess I can talk about uh, next week. Well, actually, next uh, two weeks. This will be for the next two weeks. 
as next week is uh, VCF Midwest, and I'll be there, and Sloopy will be there, so there'll be nobody around to do Game On Challenge. Yeah, Eric Canals <laughs> will be there. Um, some others, uh, Taylor and Amy from the Taylor and Amy Show are going to be there. Coco um, Man and uh, Stevie. Uh, Stevie's might oh, be a Stevie's, wash. because oh, uh, right, he's, he's sick, isn't he? Yeah. He, uh, well, he's sick with a couple of things at the moment, he thinks. He's got a sinus infection, which he's had several times before, but a particularly bad one. And now he might still have COVID on top of it. So yeah. Oh wow, I did oh, not okay. know this. Yeah, well, maybe I won't be seeing him next week. Well, he kind of gave a warning in in the private uh, Discord channel. I might as well reveal it so people know that he might not be here next week on the show or at VCF, depending on how he's doing. So, so okay. a, a big wish to uh, Stevie to get yeah. well soon. And actually, I'll throw this in. It was going to be part of the news, but I'm going to hold the news off to next week because we don't have a guest there. Um, John Linville revealed on their Coca Crew podcast episode that came out that he was in the hospital, which a lot of us knew, but we didn't know the details. And it was very serious. Um, he was there for a week and uh, he's at home now starting to recover. So, uh, best wishes to both Stevie and John. Get well soon. Do you know what was wrong with John? Or Yeah, I don't know if, well, well, he mentioned the podcast. I guess it's public knowledge congestive heart failure. He had fluid oh, and stuff and everything else. So, he was yeah. having. Nighttime panic attacks, trouble breathing when he's sleeping and stuff like that. And uh, when he finally got to the doctor and, and that checked out, yeah, it was it was serious enough. They had to hold him there for a week. Jeez. Mm. So best best wishes to both. All right. Well, um, on to the games. Before I announce the two games for next week, I am also going to announce uh, that for October 1st, we will be playing Robot Nightmare, so uh, you can uh, have some time to get a hold of a copy. And Betty had so, time to, to gain skill in it. <laughs> yeah, so that will be the week of October 1st to October 7th. So it'll be actually technically for the October 7th or 8th or whatever that Saturday is um, show. So Cool. And I actually got that one on my website, and I finally put Nightware Highway up. So now I used to change all of his commercials. <laughs> El Kurt S. Boyle, because uh, it's featured on my site now. But you're not El Kurt S. Boyle. We're, we're kindred spirits, the two of us. So I'm kind of speaking on his behalf. <laughs> so the first game that I am announcing for next week is if anybody knows what this game is. I do. Yeah, because I told you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would have recognized it just seeing it. I, I know you told me, but uh, are those slugs or frogs? Those are ghosts. Oh, they're ghosts. Okay. Yeah. Does any does anybody else recognize which game this is? And this is a later release. This is in the mid two thousands. Yeah, two thousand two thousand twelve. I think. Or was oh, it? Or like? is it? Yeah, it might be. Actually, now I'm thinking about it. Can't remember. Is it Kaikai three? Uh, it does have Coco 3 options. It also runs on the Dragon native. In fact, it auto-detects which one you've got and will adjust itself accordingly. It even runs on 32K or 64K, if I remember correctly, too. I didn't buffer some stuff on 64K. It's written by James McKay, if that helps anybody. Uh, Wayland and Chad is guessing Lemmings. Nope. It's actually a clone of a game that we just saw two clones of the same game from DICOM, if that helps. <laughs> And those orange things at the bottom are treasure Oops. chests. Maybe that helps. Yeah. So another guess on online is uh, Jab or Dig Dug. 
Nope and nope. Nope and nope. Okay. <laughs> Although, think, think back to our interview with Dave here. What game did he clone twice? Once for the Cocoa 1 and 2 and once for the Cocoa 3. Gauntlet. Bingo. So this version is called Glove. Oh, 2006. Okay. Ah, uh, yeah, Glove. So you have the option to play as one of three. This one only allows you to play three different characters, but... Uh, Which, to be honest, the original Gauntlet did too. Yeah. So, yeah, this will be game number one. In game number two, I went back far, far into the archives. Bottom of the barrel, you say? <laughs> oh, this is a Dale Lear game. Yep. Oh, produced in 1982 by Adventure International, and Nick got it right. Yep. Fire what? Firecopter. That's a fun one. Uh, and one of the first real-time 3D actual line perspective games I, I remember from that, that time. What's going on Something here? went wrong. Yeah, you're sharing your desktop. That looks, is that food I see? It is. I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. What just happened there? We just got a private sharing of Ken's diet for the next week before he heads to BCF. That was cool. Maybe we have prunes or something. <laughs> no, um, Lots of greens. Good I've job. I completely lost my window of Firecopter. So anyway, look at, look, at, look at it in Discord. It'll be up there. For some reason, it went into my photo album rather than uh, the Firecopter. Well, I can share my, my web. Or do I have a web, I have a web page? Yeah, you have there. a web page for that. I'll, I'll, I'll bring that up and you can talk over it a little bit here. Let's get over there. Ah, here, wait. I oh, you found it? Got found it again. See if I can share that properly now. We've seen Firecopter on the show before. There we go. So the basically the idea in that game is that you're flying a helicopter with water cannons and you have to go around and keep putting out uh, fires all over the city because there's somebody. Don't die. Yeah. yeah. And you've got two actually, different... it's not it's not don't die. Don't let buildings burn down. Yeah, because you lose if you uh, lose too many buildings. Well, if one building completely gets engulfed in flame and burns yeah, to the ground, that's... the game's over. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's two different opponents too. There's the firebugs themselves that actually are lighting the fires, and then there's also the guards that shoot at you, so you're also getting shot at because they're protecting the firebugs. And if you hold the button down, it's a single button game because Coco wanted two. The hold button down is to do the water, but if you do a quick press, you'll actually fire lasers instead, and you can actually kill the people that are trying to set them all. And you fly in a 3D perspective. It does get a little bit warped going through. But I mean, the fact that this ran at 16K and uh, had real, real-time real 3D graphics with decent sound effects and original gameplay, it, it's it's actually one of my favorites. And I, I think we, uh, I think Dale actually talked about it a fair bit uh, when we interviewed him and, and Rick that one time. So if you haven't seen that interview from back in the day, that's at least five, six years ago, I think now. Uh, definitely go check out that interview for some perspective on it. Also, the game was originally going to be called Firebug. I don't know who overrode that. That was Dale or Rick or that was Scott Adams or. And considering that uh, for next Friday, some of our regulars of the Game On Challenge uh, live play are going to be at VCF Midwest. Join them in the uh, channel over on Discord and play one of one of these games or any other Coco game you feel like playing because. Uh, Jim Rye, I believe, is going to be hosting it this Friday, and 
you know, he needs the company. I will try. I, it looks like work's dying down enough. I do have some work starting at the beginning of the week here, but I'm hoping I don't get too much more in by the end of the week. I should be gone. And if I do manage to make it, I will try to play both games. All right. Well, that's all I have to say about uh, um, the Coco Talk Game on Challenge of the Week or Game on Challenge of the Two Weeks this time. Yeah. I thought maybe you were going to sneak in an adventure game or something there. Ah, I'm going to do that eventually, but. So news will be held off till next week, um, which will be a fair bit because I've actually got 16, 17 stories total already for this week. But I figured oh. with you know, the length of the interview here, we didn't want to add another hour or two. Well, and we got no interviewee next week, so it'll be just straight to the news and game on challenge, et cetera. So well, we should have um, a, any uh, project live report from. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're getting live reports from them. Any, any project updates or acquisitions that anybody here on the panel has for today? Oh, looks like Rick does. A big bag of electrosensitive parts. So that's a good week. I haven't installed it yet, Rick, but I did get the uh, the little switch for the keyboard adapter. Mm -hmm. I've tested the keyboard adapter. works fine in my Cocoa 1. Oh, i got to um, get a hold of you about that. I haven't uh, got mine yet, but I'm ordering yes, another keyboard. I have address for you. I know. But I'm ordering another uh, keyboard. Uh, I tried so. Captain somewhere Canada and it didn't work. <laughs> I'm going to order another keyboard board so you can send me two of the uh, switches when I do that. Save yourself some shipping there and, and ship yeah. it all in one box. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, like my uh, squirt, ketchup squirter proof wrapping for the part so it didn't come flying out of the envelope as it goes through the postage squashing cooler things. What are those parts for? Well, the keyboard was supposed to have a little handle that came out the bottom, and I never actually designed it. So oh. I finally did it. And How about the parts you received in that baggie you were showing us? That, is that for the network card? Or? Oh, yeah. This this is uh, Nick Morenti's things here that he's worried about. Oh, oh yeah. Blame me. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> well, we do for everything uh, else. But. I got all the parts. I didn't get the circuit board yet. But while I was oh. waiting, I did draw this. So here's the... Uh, Oh, the, the ROM pack looking version. Of, I can cram it all in a ROM pack. There you go, and you've got two um, audio out it, jacks. Yeah, it's it's just stereo, four channels stereo. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that's, that's the Amiga, fine. basically. At that point, just fits. So, <laughs> and we're oh. just inside the current. I can really suck out of a cartridge slot without making things yeah. get crispy. <laughs> cool. Oh, put, put, put me down for one. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Look at that. You got a sale already. <laughs> well, it's a fun project. You know, it's something that, yeah. that uh, you know, hasn't, could be done and hasn't been done. And hey, I'm all for it. So, actually, I do, I do have two other announcements I want to make. Uh, one was a news story, which I, I won't wait till next week. So, uh, people that are trying to order Coco SDCs, uh, Ed's completely out and has been for about two weeks, I think. Um, Frank sold a whack load. They had a couple pre-order chunks that he sold off at the show in, was it Waterloo or Kitchener? Kitchener, I think it was. Kitchener. Uh, the retro show. And then he sold a whole bunch, just, you know, people walking up and just buying them type thing. So he was sold out. So a few people on the Discord, a few people on Facebook are asking, like, when they're going to be back in stock. Now, he had parts for them. So he stayed up till 3.30 this morning, making a bunch of more Cocoa STCs. And, you know, we had basically announced this morning that they're they're available in the store again and as of before the show started today he'd already sold two of those so uh 
I'm not, I'm not sure exactly uh, how many he made. Uh, he had parts for about 50 total. I don't think he made all 50 of them working until 3.30 in the morning. But they are available again. So if you need uh, Coco STC, RetroRewind.ca, you can get them now. And then I also remind everybody, it's Septandi as of uh, two days ago. So there's a ton of stuff on YouTube coming up. Just look for the Septandi tag. Hopefully people remember to put Septandi 2022 because otherwise you'll be picking up all the previous years, which if you've never seen them before, definitely worthwhile checking out. This covers all Tandy machines. This is like the Tandy 1000 series, model 1, 2, 3, 4, 4P, 100, 200, 600, mm-hmm. you know, the whole the whole gamut, uh, and the Coco. So uh, there's been a few Coco videos already up so far. Uh, Alan Huffman's going to be doing multiple parts. He's going to be mixing stuff between videos and his blog stuff on uh, Sabitha software. Uh, there's been some other ones too. I'll cover all, all the ones that are out in the first, uh, you know, nine, 10 days here next week when we do the show so you'll, you'll see a lot of septandi stuff but there is some stuff up already and don't forget on the uh, uh retro rewind.ca there's a mm-hmm. discount code right there in the bottom of the screen scrolling yeah coco talk gets you 10 percent off which is a wicked deal and if you're new to the coco and just got one like an ebay or from a friend or an estate sale or whatever he has the option of ordering it with the sd card preloaded with the latest full color computer archive image so you get all the software already there you don't have to go download it and hunt it all down and download one at a time you can actually get an sd card preloaded so you're ready to go and then include zou because i'll plug that for me because <laughs> i'm shameless yeah. <laughs> all right is that it unless somebody else has a, an update all right acquisition all right once, want, going want twice skip, want to skip the outro yeah, yeah. I, this is a long enough show, and I have to head out to a 60th wedding anniversary yeah. right now. It's three hours out of town, so i got a big drive ahead, too. So. Oh, quit All whining. Right. Three hours? That's nothing. Nothing I say. You drive 24 Ooh. hours. Well, i got to drive there. i got to attend it. i got to drive back, and then i got to go back to work tomorrow. So it's it's going to be a long day. Yeah. All right. So yeah. Bye, for you. everybody. Bye. Bye. See you Bye. next week. Bye. Come back next week. Bye.